Greetings ladies and mentalgents and welcome to this match video for the web novel Fork This Life taken from the website Royal Road. And as always I hope that you enjoy and if you do please consider supporting the channel. It would very much be appreciated. Chapter 21 A Series of Unfortunate Events Ferdinand POV I am running without a direction or destination. My only real goal is to get away from the man trying to kill me. I can barely tell where I'm going because of the fear filling my mind. But I don't trip or stumble as I run. I don't know where Gerald is, whether I'm being followed or not. So it's a big relief when Gerald's voice sounds in my head again. Change direction he's following, but I don't think he knows where you are, he says tersely. A moment later, he pops out of the ground in front of me and flies into my pack. Not even looking back at or stopping, I turn right and continue running. Over the hills around cliffs, my feet keep pounding a steady beat against the bare earth below. Earth turns gradually to grass, grass turns to sand, and sand turns to lapping water. I've actually run as far as the ocean without noticing. Just as I'm about to turn again and run along the shore, I hear Gerald speaking again. Hey, hey, you can stop now. You could have stopped ages ago. He's long gone. Can you even hear me? I've been saying this for a while now, he says, irritated. Stopping, I suddenly feel exhausted and sit down on the sand. It's as if my body had forgotten to get tired while running, and now it was catching up. I take deep breaths and steady my heart rate. The air feels like it's burning my insides. And it reminds me that I still have a stab wound in my side. Shrugging my pack off and my back, I open it up and stretch through the contents until I find the small vial. It's a healing potion. I keep one in reserve in case I get a serious wounds while away from the city. I pop off the cork and drink some of its contents. A red liquid bears a strange resemblance to blood. Thankfully, the taste doesn't share the same similarity, instead tasting like very strong tea. The rest I pour onto the wound, wincing in pain as the potion irritates my injuries. I walk for a moment as our wound stops seeping blood and starts closing at a visible rate. Are you sure he's gone? I ask, my mind now calm enough to talk. He responds a moment later, sounding relieved. Quite sure, you okay? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Just a bit tired, I say, still struggling to catch my breath. What happened after I left? We fought briefly, if you can call that a fight, Gerald sighs. It was more of me charging at him in increasingly fast speeds until I just used a whole bunch of key to blow him away. It wasn't able to do much damage to him, regrettably. I'm just glad that we both managed to get out all of that with our limbs intact. Did you manage to find out who he was? Better. I found out what he was, he says happily, and then his voice turns grim. A doppelganger at level 48. A doppelganger? What's a doppelganger? Not just sure myself. From what I remember, if you see someone who looks exactly like you, then you're a doppelganger. It's supposed to be bad luck or something, Gerald says uncertainly. But level 48, I say in shock, his stats must be way higher than mine. Let me just math it out for a moment, he says. Math. His total stats is 123 points higher than yours. What? How can you know that? Can you read people's statuses now? Nah, but 
If you get 2.5 stat points for the first 10 levels, the 3 for the next 10, and 4 for the next 10, my guess would be that the next 10 would give you 5.5, and then 7.5. Knowing that, it's simple multiplication and addition to see if you've gotten the total of 87 points from leveling, and he's got a total of 210. He states as if it was the most obvious thing in the world. Are you done talking yet? Someone says from behind me. My slowly relaxing mind goes into full alert again. I scramble to my feet, looking warily behind me. Standing there is a carefree smile, and his face is the same grimy old man from earlier. Seeing that he doesn't seem to have any bad intentions, I relax a bit. Who are you? Why are you following me? No need to be so tense. I just want to chat. Have a seat, he says, sitting down in the sand and patting the sand in front of him. I don't sit. Oh, don't. That's fine, too. But aren't your legs about tired from all that running? I sit. Are you talking to yourself, or is someone invisible again? Gerald asks. Someone invisible, the old grimy man says. Not even a conventional sense, though. Gerald just can't see me because I have no manner. How did he... He knows about Gerald as well. Wait, what? I remember you. You're that fortune teller from way back in... I try to remember exactly what city was called. Fizo City, he supplies. Honestly, Ferdinand, you stayed there for almost a year, and you still don't know the name of it. How do you know about us? I asked, thoughtfully confused. One second... He starts writing rapidly in the sand, his finger a blur of moves as it moves. I can't leave Gerald out of this, can we? He finishes writing a few lines and wipes the sand clean, and starts writing again. To answer your question, you already know that I can see the future. It's much easier to see the past or even the present. Of course, I know about you and Gerald. I am not sure if that's how it works, but then again, I'm not sure it isn't. Who are you? I ask. Everything about him is so strange. Knowing about the things that should be impossible for anyone to know. Being unharmed from a strike from someone almost at level 50. He thinks about it for a second and then smiles. You can call me Joe. As for the reason I'm following you, it's to ask if I can follow you around on your adventures. What? Don't worry, I won't be a bother. I can take care of my own meals and accommodation. And I won't get in the way in fights. His finger continues to dash across the sand as he says this, although I don't see him glance down even once. I frowned. I'm not having a stranger following me around for no reason. He shrugs. All right, then. I look at him for a few seconds longer, but he doesn't do or say anything else besides look at me steadily. Shrugging myself, I get up and dust the sand off my pants. Grabbing my pack, I start walking along the shore towards Lanesport City. Oh, that was strange, said Gerald. Yes, it certainly was. I trail off as I look over my shoulder. The gr- Joe was still following me. I stop and turn around and face him. What are you doing? He scratches his head. Well, see, when I asked of you if I could follow along, I was just being polite. I'm following you regardless. He says, smiling abashedly. For a moment, I'm lost for words. The way he acts is so abnormal that I don't quite know how to treat him. And this is coming from a guy who is talking fork as a friend. I can't help but remember how the doppelganger sphere slipped right through him and how he was right behind me after I ran so fast as I could until the ocean. 
and thinking about it, he wasn't even out of breath. He probably wouldn't be a hindrance in combat like that, and with skills like those, it shouldn't be hard for him to provide food for himself. All right, I concede reluctantly. You can follow me, but take a bath first, would you? Joe freezes. Damn, he swears, looking down at himself. All that time and not a single bath. No wonder people weren't eager to get their fortunes told. He looks back at me. Just a minute, please. And then he sprints into the water until I can't see him anymore. Times like these I start to wish that I was still a farmer. Gerald POV Welp, that was more than a mite strange, writing in the sand by an invisible hand, detailing the other half of Ferdinand's conversation. And there isn't even a depression in the sand where I presume the owner and the hand were sitting. Or footprints. Nothing really. If not for the writing, I might have thought that Ferdinand had gone a bit loopy. And now we seem to have another member in the party. Yay! Still, I think I can metaphorically breathe a sigh of relief now that we weren't talking towards almost certain death. Is that a death flag? Maybe. Meh. We should be fine. I suppose we should all be considering whether it's safe to return to Lionsport or not. After all, the doppelganger knows what Ferdinand looks like. But then again, there's that Harry guy. The doppelganger says he knows who our informant was, so he's definitely in danger. We can't just leave him to be killed, so we should at least alert him before moving to another city. Conversing with Ferdinand, he quite agrees, and is understandably eager to get away from anywhere the doppelganger may be able to track him down. It doesn't take us long to get back to the city, since we all have to do is follow the ghost. It's a strange feeling returning to a place where everyone was nonchalantly going about their daily lives when we've just returned from a legitimately life-threatening situation. Repeating our actions from last time, I communicate with Harry, telling him to get out of the area for a while and briefly explaining why. Then we leave again as quickly as we came. Harry, point of view. The day after the voice spoke in my head, it speaks again. Sorry about this, but you may have a level 48 doppelganger coming to kill you. He's the one who killed Richard, and he said that he knew who provided his location to us. So you should probably disappear for a while, he said. Not what I was expecting with the day when I woke up this morning. And he let you leave, I asked skeptically. The man I'd met yesterday didn't look anywhere near strong enough to face off against the level 48. We managed to run away since we couldn't do much to damage him. He covered himself in some sort of red armor, apparently. Oops, been speaking for two... The voice stopped. Really? I met... Didn't even meet you. I've only ever heard your voice yesterday, and you expect me to believe they have someone coming to kill me. Ha! It's more likely that this is a ploy from someone aiming for my position. It wouldn't be hard to incriminate me if I suddenly disappear. People would have their suspicions, but if I don't turn up to dispute them, they might as well shrug and give it in to him. Still, by that same notion, it's likely that they would have hired an assassin to tell me as I went into hiding to make me truly disappear for good. I'm not suited for combating stealthy opponents, especially since I haven't seen much combat in the last few years. How could I find an idea to kill an assassin before he kills me? Unfortunately, I doubt I can enlist the help of a wizard. We have so few and they're all overworked as it is. 
No choice but to draw him out, huh? That said, it would be suicide to do so thoughtlessly. If I am going to do this, I might as well be on my terms. First, a place. I seem to remember, thumbing through the mountains of files stored neatly in a cabinet behind my desk, I select one for what I'm looking for. This one is new. I got it only yesterday. Looking at it, I read through the details. Tons of supplies have been moved from this particular warehouse near the docks. In other words, it is now empty, and it will be for another few days before it is filled up with another shipment again. A large, open space was perfect for my needs. Now, for equipment. It should be strange if I were to go around work wearing my combat gear. So, I wait for the end of the day before I head to the armory. Taking a small, intricate key from my pocket within my coat, I unlock my personal storage chest. I unstrap the rapier from my side. It's an ornamental piece and doesn't even have an edge. So, I would hesitate to even call it a weapon. The rapier in its chest, however, is a true blade crafted with a rare metal. Mithril. Unsheathing it partially, I test its edge with my thumb. A thin line of blood wells from the paper-thin cut, making me smile despite the pain. Truly an exquisite piece of work, sharp as the day it was first honed to a razor edge, and without the faintest trace of rust or wear. I put the blade to one side and lift my armor from the chest, brown with faint lines of gold. It's a fairly simple design, but despite looking similar to leather armor, it can deflect arrows and blades alike with relative ease, as it is in fact made of a heavy leather of verum. Stripping off my coat, I don the armor over my soft undershirt, rolling my shoulders as the familiar weight settles over them. The only item remaining inside the chest is a small pouch, which I attach to my belt. A bag of holding, as expensive as it is useful, through some strange wizardry that I don't understand in the slightest, is somehow able to contain a volume about three times what it appears to be, while completely eliminating the weight of those items. This one contains a collection of useful potions, some money, and a few other items that should be helpful. I leave the building and head over to the warehouse sticking to the busy streets to dissuade a potential assassin. Of course, it very well may be that there are no assassins, but in that case I'll just be a bit late for dinner. No harm done. Perhaps I could even make use of the opportunity to do some light training and get myself back into practice. There are a couple of guards patrolling the place, but not nearly as many as there would be if this place was loaded with goods. After a few minutes of observing their movements, I take advantage of the gap and slip inside. Shutting doors silently behind me, blessed oil hinges, a large open space greets my eyes. I briefly glance around the rafters just in case anyone is there, and walk into the middle of the space. The only sound that is heard is my own footsteps, vastly different to the bustling noise of the headquarters. Reaching the center, I take a deep breath and settle myself into a state similar to vigilance skill that sentries and guards often possess, but rather than focusing on eyesight, it focuses on hearing, or hear can. Through it, I can hear the footsteps of the guards outside, still on patrol, a gentle lap of water against the piers, a breath of wind subtly breezing along. Barely a minute later, I hear a body hit the ground, and then another. My hand tightens around the hilt of my rapier, and it draws silently from the sheath. 
The door swings open, a bloody spear head precedes the entrance of the wielder as it steps inside. My eyes narrow. There is a sense of uh, familiarity about him that I can't quite place. I take a second, more careful to look at him, and a name almost forgotten over the years floats to the forefront of my mind. Rodney, I involuntarily utter in my shock. He looks different, but that can't be attributed to age. But then again, he's dead. He can't be here. And that leads my mind to other possibilities. He must have been why Richard came here. Demons, he said. He would be concerned about demons, but not enough to come out of retirement for it. He would have just sent a message back here, and washed his hands of the matter. However, if his son was involved, it would all make sense. But how? My mind flicked back to earlier today. Level 48, Toyopoganga, the voice had said, and it suddenly seems much more plausible than it had earlier. And if so, I'm in trouble. A doppelganger, is it, I say, hoping to buy time. His face twitches slightly before he reins it back into an impassive mask. You know, I used to enjoy talking to people before killing them, seeing their fear, their pain, he says quietly. Then I lost my arm. I glanced to his side to see the empty sleeve. I'd been so focused on his face that I hadn't even noticed. Without another word, a red mist explodes forth from his body, bringing with it a primal fear. My throat tightens and my mouth draws itself into a grim line, but it isn't because of the fear. It's because I recognize the mist. Only the most brutal killers, the ones who truly enjoyed the pain that they cause, can wield it, and it is as dangerous as it is rare. Even my mind is coldly recording information on it. My hand is transporting potion after potion to my mouth, and my legs are rapidly shifting me backwards to gain distance. Within a few seconds, the mist settles around his body and a spear in the shape of armor, making my blood run cold. He must have killed several hundred people to be able to physically manifest his killing intent, perhaps more than a thousand. I can't even begin to guess because I've never even seen it before, only ever heard of it. It looks as if escaping this battle alive will be no easy feat. Calming my nerves, I raise my sword, rouse my fighting spirit, and leap into combat, flinging an orange vial ahead of me. POV Gerald How do you evade pursuers? In all honesty, it's as easy as breathing. If they don't have the tracking skills, just head across country, disappear into a forest or something, and hey presto, as far as civilization is concerned, you don't exist anymore. Well, in this world at least, back on Earth, search parties and things would be organized. But you catch my drift. Unfortunately, Ferdinand has this strange attachment to having food, shelter, beds, etc., so... We have to figure out a way to confuse people that could be tracking us. Fortunately, we don't have a set destination, so we can go any number of directions. For now, we are heading north and west, heading across the land to a place called Pixa City. It is not linked directly by roads or to lane port, so any trackers shouldn't assume that we would go there. Of course, if they have magical means of tracking us, we're screwed. Always look on the bright side of life, right? Uh, so uh, we should be fine. From what I've seen, there aren't many wizards in the cities I've seen so far, so it is unlikely for there to be one with a particular ability to be chasing us. 
and it might just be the doppelganger following us, or it might be nobody. I mean, I haven't seen anyone. There probably isn't anyone. With Ferdinand's experience and my skills, traveling over the countryside is a breeze. I find wild animals when we need food, one of us kills it, and Ferdinand cooks it. I keep watch at night and Ferdinand keeps our course as we keep each other company with idle conversation. Apparently the person is following us, the invisible one. It's an old man type character and he's quite strange. According to Ferdinand, he's never seen Joe eat or sleep. Instead, Joe often looks up at the sky all night. Ferdinand tells me that when he wakes up, Joe is usually in the same position as he was when Ferdinand last saw him in the previous night. I really don't like it. I can't see him, which means I won't be able to notice or stop him if he ever does something. Still, Ferdinand says that he's a good person when he's not doing weird things, so I can give him the benefit of the doubt, for now. A couple days later, I see something emerging on the edge of my vision. It's a village, and it's currently inhabited by skeletons. Again? End of chapter. Chapter 22. Ferdinand, Paladin's Gods, and a Largely Ignored Fork. Ferdinand POV. Seeing a village in the distance, I adjust my course towards it. Not long after, Gerald's voice pops into my head again. Might want to speed up a bit, he says, those skeletons in that village. Again? It was only slightly over a week since the last time, and it couldn't be that I just so happened to find the only two skeleton-infested villages, can it? What in the world is the army doing, letting some necromancer run rampant in the villages like this? These thoughts cross my mind for a few moments before I discard them and focus on the more pressing matters at hand. I start running towards the village, but I don't draw my sword yet. It will only get in the way when I'm running. It only takes me a few minutes of running to make my way there. As I arrive at the edge of the outlying fields, I am greeted with a very odd sight. In each of the fields on either side of me, there is a single skeleton wielding a hoe. I rub my eyes, but my sight does not change. They are still repeatedly lifting their hoes and striking the same place on the ground, doing nothing more than deepening the line in the dirt. I saw this earlier, but this is normal skeleton behavior? Gerald asked, sounding about confused as I feel. Completely unable to figure out any reason why they would be doing such actions, I say. I don't know much about skeletons, but I'm going to guess no. No, this is not normal. Okay, then. Kill them anyway. I draw my sword. Kill them anyway. Vaulting over the fence and surrounding the field on my right, I move towards the skeleton there. As I approach, it starts acting strange and starts acting as I would expect a skeleton to act, by attacking anything near it. In this case, me. The skeleton lifts a hoe and swings it at me. I dodge it and it may be a farming tool, but it can still deal quite some damage. After the tool passes harmlessly in front of me, I dart in and break off its arms with my sword, causing the hoe to drop to the ground. After that, I make short work of it. I didn't even break a sweat from that, and vaulting over the fence and into another field, I move to take out the other skeleton. If anything, that one is easier than the first, 
quickly jumping as it gets to strike the ground once more. It can't pull up in time before I take off its skull in a swell slash. Vaulting back over the fence once more, I walk along the path and further into the village, and I get closer as the sky starts to dim slightly, and I look for the opportunity to ask Gerald for more information on the village. Looks like about 30 in the village itself, but uh, there seems to be a skeleton in every field as well. About 10 of them that I can see, but there should be a field that I can't. Nobody living except us, unfortunately. Which means that the villagers are either dead or have escaped. Speaking of dead villagers, where were the corpses of that last village? Hadn't quite a few of the villagers died in the escape, and yet there were no corpses. Had they just been turned into skeletons? It is unlikely for me to figure anything out, even if I consider it further. So, I throw the matter to the back of my mind and venture into the main area of the village. As I enter, the skeletons turn their skulls creepily towards me and brandish their rusted weapons, moving in to attack. They creep out of the buildings and spaces in between the buildings and to the sound square. Taking a deep breath, I ready my own weapon. There may not be as many here as there were last time, but there is only me facing them this time. Taking out a single skeleton is a simple task. One, maybe two solid hits is all it takes. But with a horde of them, you have to be wary of the attacks coming from multiple directions. Make sure they don't surround you and at the same time get an attack in every now and again. I make my way into a space between two buildings, which is small enough to restrict the approaching skeletons to come two at a time. Doing this makes it much easier, and I make short work of the seven skeletons before Gerald alerts me to some starting to loop around the other end. Escaping before they surround me, I find another gap, repeating the process until the skeletons in the village are nothing more than scattered bones, and I'm quite exhausted. I sit in the town square, half wondering whether the well would be safe to drink from, or if it, like the other plant life around me, had also been poisoned by the death energy. Better not risk it, but the thought makes me wonder how those villagers are doing. Just as I start catching my breath, Gerald pops into my head again. That elven woman with the armor and the horses coming here, and it looks like she's brought a friend, he says. Thanks. Is the other person a paladin as well? I ask curiously. Paladin? Well, they're wearing similar armor and weapons, so probably, Gerald says hesitantly. All right, not wishing to repeat my mistake from last time. I ask one more question. Is the new one a man or a woman? Man, actually. He looks even younger than you, so I don't know if he would be old enough. He cuts himself off and asks a question. What age do people become termed as a man and a woman rather than a boy and a girl? I think about it briefly. I couldn't say about places outside of the Empire, but here it's about sixteen. Ah, thanks. He's probably a bit older than sixteen. See, why I ask is because where I'm from it's eighteen, and I knew about some places where it is as high as twenty-one, he explains. Interesting, but does it really matter all that much? It's just a way of calling someone after all. Taking a swig from my water bottle, I run my tongue over my dry lips and continue to sit where I am. I have no doubt that they will soon be here. As far as I know, most churches detest the undead, so they won't pass up the chance to destroy some. 
And sure enough, a few minutes later, I can see the two paladins on their steeds trotting down the street towards me. Standing up, I sling my backpack over my shoulder, and I watch them draw close. Because of the similarity in design of their armor, I can hardly tell the two apart. Dismounting from the steeds, they walk towards me, stopping a couple meters away. The one when the right asks suspiciously, Who are you? What are you doing here? Since he doesn't sound like a paladin I met last time, I assume that this one is a man. I am about to reply when the other paladin pushes a visor, revealing a face that, uh, all I can say is that the elven reputation for beauty is in no way exaggerated. Her eyes remind me of a field in spring when they covered in a carpet of vibrant green. You're that adventurer who is helping villagers reclaim their village from skeletons, are you not? Why are you here? she asks. I was traveling and saw the village in the distance, so I went towards it. Then I found all the skeletons here, so I started to clean them out. I shrugged lightly. I don't suppose you know where all of the people who lived here are, I asked. She frowns. As far as we can tell, they all perished in the initial attack. And who is that behind you? My head whips around and I see Joe standing there smiling and waving. Since when was he there? I'm not sure what to say about him. That's Joe. I'm not all too sure why he follows me around, but he's a good person as far as I can tell. Because I was bored, obviously, says the now significantly less grimy old Joe. Figured I'd find someone interesting and tag along in their adventures. Then why me? I ask him, bewildered. Oh, come on. With all the things that you've encountered in the past month or two, you're asking that. Joe says, raising his eyebrows. He begins to count them off on his fingers. First, you discover an ancient ruin that's fully operational. Survive an encounter with the spider. Befriend one of the former top brass of the Empire's navy. Survive an encounter with his murderer. Kill the... Wait, no, that one hasn't happened yet. But you get the drift. What was he about to say? The Lady Paladin looks a bit confused but addresses me again. Would you be willing to assist us in defeating the necromancer who did this? If he's sending out the skeletons and each village he attacks, I'm afraid that he may have several hundreds to defend himself, as well as a more powerful and dead. We may not be able to handle them all ourselves. But surely, with the holy magic going on bane of the undead, we would be able to defeat the necromancer with relative ease. The male paladin asks the other, she turns her head to face him. Luck, would you like your eventual death to be because of your stubborn refusal to accept help? No, Luck replies, taken aback. Remember that while we help others, we are not to be above receiving help from others. She reprimands and then turns her head back to me. So, are you interested? I smile warily and shake my head. I would be happy to, but I don't think I'm as strong or as skilled enough to be able to fight against a weak necromancer, let alone a strong one. Last time I tried something like that, I nearly died. Her eyebrows furrowed. How about if we train you as we travel? Accept her offer, Gerald said suddenly. I was about to do it. Then I gladly will join you, I agree happily. But why would you trust a random adventurer like me? Although the question is addressed to the female paladin, it is Luck who answers. 
because we paladins have skills to detect lies and intentions, and you haven't spoken a single falsehood or had a single impure intention during this whole conversation. I pause. Well, that would explain it. How about you, Joe? Will you also come with us? She asks. I glance at him and he shrugs nonchalantly. Sure, but I'll have to give you forewarning though. I don't fight. I won't get in the way and I will keep up with your traveling. But the most I can offer is a few wise words every now and again. For some reason, she just nods and accepts this. Maybe like me, she realized the futility of arguing against a guy who doesn't care about your opinion. Well, at least he's honest about it. Luck flips up his visor, revealing a face similarly graced with alban beauty. An officer gauntleted hand. I shake it. It feels strange. I've never shaken hands with someone wearing metal armor before. My name is Luck and I pray that we get along well on our future journeys. He said warmly. She offers her hand as well, and when I shake it, it feels startlingly different from his, despite the gauntlets being so similar. While his grip was firm and strong, hers are somehow gentle and yet not way weak. My name is Lily, she says with a small smile, and then asks, And yours is? Finally, reminding me that after all of this I still hadn't introduced myself. I'm Ferdinand. As I look at the two paladins, I can't help but notice a black cat slinking across the edge of the town square. I don't think of it at first, but until I remember Gerald telling me about the cat in the last skeleton-infested village visited. Lily catches my gaze and turns around. When she sees the cat, she turns back to me and shrugs slightly. Just a cat. Why? I say slowly, asking the very same question that Gerald asked me not so long ago. Is there a cat in an area full of undead that hate anything living? Lily's eyes widen and quickly catches a small fairy fair lion. Why didn't we notice this sooner? She mumbles, looking intently at the cat as she's holding it in one gauntleted hand. Enslavement magic, observation magic. Now that I think about it, there must have been one of these in every village we visited. The necromancer has been watching us the entire time. She exclaims in frustration. Are you able to track where the magic is coming from? Asks Luck seriously. Perhaps if... The cat falls limp in her hand, causing her face to darken slightly. The necromancer killed it and cut off their connection to it, before I was able to get anything more than a rough direction. Southwest. Luck asks, do we head in that direction then? Lily narrows her eyes for a moment, thinking... No, we will find some more of these skeleton villages, purify them, and find some more of these cats. Then I shall be able to pinpoint the necromancer's location. With that said and done, Lily and Luck roam around the village for a few minutes, purifying the earth energy that lingers in the area. After this, a pair of paladins remount on their steeds, and Lily pulls me up behind her. Grip with your knees, but not too hard, or you could hurt him she advised, and put your arms around my waist. Slightly dumbfounded, I awkwardly do as she said, gripping the horse's flanks with my knees and uh, wrapping my arms around her heavily armored waist. In a brief moment of clarity, I adjust my sheath so that it won't poke into the horse while we're riding. I might not have ridden a horse before, but I know enough about them to know that irritating them is something that you would not want to do. 
After that, I must have fallen into some sort of daze, because the next thing I know, we're already trotting around the road. In my defense, this is the first time I've been so close to a woman, even if she is wearing a suit of armor. Twisting my head to look around, a tad, I'm taken aback about how far from the ground I am. I mean, I have no problems with heights, but it is a very strange sensation to see and feel yourself moving along while your feet dangle off the ground. The distinctive smell of the horse tickles my nostrils, and I catch sight of Joe behind us. Not unlike Sol's, as I had assumed, but jogging along with a relaxed smile on his face, looking around and taking in the view. He sees me looking at him, and he waves at me. Right, okay. Try not to move around too much, please, says Lily, making me turn my head back to the front and adjust my posture slightly. For a while, I just take in the sights, for once other people are moving out of our way on the road, instead of me moving out of theirs. Reaching the city doesn't take more than an hour, much faster than it would have on foot. Although, I suppose that with my recent increase in endurance and dexterity, I should be able to jog quite some distance. How do we find about these villages that have been attacked? I asked. Without turning her head, Lily nods towards a large building that we are moving towards. The local churches are amongst the first to know about things such as these. We only left here a few hours ago, but perhaps they have learned something new in the meantime. I nod an understanding, before realizing that she can't see it. That makes sense. By the way, which god or goddess are you two paladins of? I must confess that I'm not overly familiar with the signs of most gods. We are devotees of the elven god Vitius, who represents harmony and survival, she replies. And who do you follow? Who do I follow? It must have been years since I last prayed. The last time must have been uh, when my parents sent me away. I try remembering which god it was they were worshipped. Theodatus, the god of farming, Liddy asks, a hint of surprise in her voice. I would have expected Kamal, the god of swords, or perhaps Urzura, the god of strength, due to you being an adventurer. I used to be a farmer, I explained quietly. There was a famine, and my parents sent me away with a sword and the rest of the food. After that, I became an adventurer. The god of farming didn't seem to fit me anymore, but as I said... I don't know much about the other gods. I'm sorry for your loss, Lady said softly. The horses plodding through the streets, neither of us speak for a few moments. The priests here will be glad to tell you about their deity. If you wish to change who you follow, just keep in mind that you do not need to follow a deity that relates to your chosen profession. You should choose one whose ideology and beliefs marry yours, she explains. Thanks. When they reach the church shortly, they dismount, warm the horses, and the young boy takes hold of both pairs of reins, guiding the horses to the stable off to the side of the church. We walk inside. Inside is a massive multi-tiered circular area, every tier lined with shrines bearing the symbols of different deities. Some have priests standing to them, while others stand largely abandoned. People mill about, offering prayers and tributes, these windows are covered with some sort of colored glass depicting various scenes. The enormity and the majesty of the building makes me feel tiny, insignificant in comparison to the hundreds of deities represented in this place. Humbled, I quietly walk asking a few questions of the priest here and there. 
There are a lot of gods to go through, too many to go through in a week, let alone in the hour or so that I wander around. But I managed to go through quite a few. I even visited the shrine of Adiodatus. Some deities have similar beliefs and ideals, while some of them are quite, um, unique. But now, either I think about it, all of them could be loosely termed as good, or at least can't be described as evil. Are there no evil gods, or are they just not represented here? You know, religion is a very different on how to religion was in my homeworld, Gerald says suddenly. Really? In what way, I ask him? Well, he begins, for one thing, every religion was sort of the silent holy war. They were all believed that they were the only true religion, and were all thus trying to spread to as many people as possible, while simultaneously telling people why the other religions were false and trying to pick holes in their beliefs and such. Confused, I ask, true religion? Yeah, the one religion that was right, see? Every religion claimed that their god had created the world and everything on it, and there could only be one god who had created everything, right? So you had so many religions in one place like this here, talking about their beliefs so openly, there would be arguments everywhere. Hell, there'd probably be riots. All I can say is, wow. That reminds me, which one of these created this world, or is it all of them, he asks. I have no idea, so I asked the priest nearby. Who created the world? The voice behind me says, Crap! Who would speak so vulgarly in a church? The priest in front of me, a bald man dressed in white, frowns in confusion. I'm afraid I don't know, child. If you wait a moment, I'll ask my God, and perhaps he will gift us with the answer you seek. He bows his head down at the shrine behind him, his lips moving soundlessly as he prays. Finally, he stands up and sighs. I'm afraid he hasn't... Wait. He breaks off seemingly listen to an unheard voice with an expression of rapture. The tears glistened in the corner of his eyes as he said, My god has told me that the world existed before even the gods. Well, there you have it, I told Gerald. All right, that was convenient, he says strangely. What more does he want? A god personally answered his question. At that moment, an armored hand grabs my wrist and starts pulling me along towards the exit. I have a moment of panic before I recognize the person dragging me along. Luck! What's happening? I ask, regaining my balance, swiftly walking alongside him. He releases my wrist. We need to go now! He urges me, hurrying along with a pace that feels entirely inappropriate for this holy place. In a matter of seconds, we are outside and back on the holsters. I am not sure whether to be relieved that I'm behind luck because I won't be distracted by being so close to a woman, or disappointed that I'm not behind Lily because I won't be so close to a woman. I think Gerald has affected me. Why else would I be thinking of something so useless in a serious situation? What happened? I asked him on the trot through the town. When Luck replies, his voice is thick with worry. Skeletons are attacking almost every village where the priests here know about. Alarmed, I ask, what about the army, the adventurers? Surely they are doing something. We did not want to waste the time it would take to have gotten and find out. However, it would be ridiculous if they were not assisting, Lily answered in a similar tone in her voice. That's true. But then again... Why didn't they help in the last two villages that we saved?
End of chapter. Chapter 23. The fork can't move. Wait, isn't that normal? POV Ferdinand. Two horses trot along a flat dirt road. It seems a painfully slow pains to be travelling at when there are people dying every moment. Can we go any faster? I asked anxiously. If we go any faster, the horses will run out of stamina all too quickly, especially since we are riding double. Trust me, this is the best pace for travelling, Luck replied calmly. Horseshoes continued crunching against the soil in an endless rhythm, somehow making the silence even more prominent. I briefly ponder if there's anything I can say to break the silence, but most of the things I think of would be inappropriate, given the situation. Mentioning the queer behavior of the skeletons is a possibility, but I doubt that it's anything important. If the necromancer wants to divide up his forces to make it easier for us to kill them, he can go right ahead, I say. We arrive at the village a couple hours later, and the sun is starting to get low. It's unlikely that we'll be able to make it back to the city before nightfall, I think absentmindedly, before focusing on the problem at hand. Skeletons. Dismounting from my horse, I draw my sword. Forty-five, including the ones in the field, again with the weirdness. Also, two of the skeletons here have armor and weapons, informs Gerald. My eyes narrow. Unfortunately, that's not all. Mixed in with the normal, pale white skeletons are black skeletons. Now, I don't know much about skeletons, but I'm fairly sure that the white ones are the weakest of the bunch. Therefore, these black ones must be stronger. But with a couple paladins by my side, they won't be a threat. I charge into battle, but Lily and Luck overtake me before I'm even halfway to the group of skeletons that are turning to face us. From atop of her horse, Lily raises a gauntleted hand towards them. A holy light springs forth from her hand, and the skeletons it shines upon have their flames extinguished, regardless of color. Luck mimics her action, and another group of skeletons fall apart when they stand although a smaller number than when Lily attacked. At this rate, there won't be much left for me to do. I continue charging, but by the time I reach them, Lily and Luck have already cleaved through them, leaving only a single black skeleton. They head deeper into the village, leaving this one for me. Upon spotting me, the dark frames in its eyes lay sinisterly. It opens its jaws wide as if it's trying to shout or scream, but no sound comes out. Then, to my shock, it starts running towards me. I barely parry its first blow, again finding myself startled by its speed and power. Until now, skeletons could be described with two words, tenacious, slow. But this one moves almost as fast as a regular human, and just as strong. Of course, that still isn't as strong or as fast as I am, so after the first few blows, I become accustomed to the difference and the stats to retaliate. With a kick, I shatter its leg, sending it tumbling to the ground, and with another step, I stomp on its head, shattering it, much stronger than a normal skeleton, but still weak in its own. The skull fragments crumble under my boot as I run further into the village. Everywhere I go, all I see are piles of bones and hear sounds combat from up ahead. So I hurry along, reaching them just in time to witness the last armored undead get beheaded. Lily sheathes her immaculate blade. Perhaps the only benefit of fighting undead is that you don't have to clean your weapon afterwards. Let us split up and see if we can find another one of those cats. Leaving her horse to graze on the grass by the roadside, 
Lily picks a direction and begins searching, with Luck doing the same. Inside the house over to your right, the one with the broken window. It's under the bed. Meanwhile, I had a helpful fork supplying me with the exact location. Striding over the house, I step over the fallen door through the entrance and follow Gerald's directions to find the bedroom. Peeking under the bed, I see a pair of feline eyes looking back at me. Stretching out her arm, I grab it, but the cat hisses and claws at my hand. I wince at the pain and try again, this time managing to pull it from beneath the bed, still flailing its limbs and trying to inflict whatever damage it can. Awkwardly trying to get a hold in such a way that it can't scratch or bite me, I hurry out of the building and call out, I found it! Well, Gerald found it, but he doesn't want other people to know about him, so what else can I say? And I did find it, Gerald just found it first. Lily and Luck promptly returned and I deposit the unruly cat into her hands, where it is unable to do any harm. She closes her eyes in concentration, but soon opens them again as the cat falls limp in her hands. Again, if we're able to catch him when he's sleeping, then we'll have more time. She trails off in frustration. What now, I ask, clean up the skeletons in the fields? Lily shakes her head. That is what I shall be doing. Meanwhile, the horses will be resting, and you will start your training with luck. At first, I'm faintly disappointed that she wouldn't be teaching me herself, but that feeling is replaced shortly by excitement. With this training, I should be able to become at least somewhat more powerful, right? Come, let's find a more suitable area to train in. Luck beckons me over, and we find ourselves in an empty paddock, the animals formerly residing here having long since fled. He looks around and nods, drawing his sword. All right, first let's have a brief spar. I need to find out your current level of skill and style of fighting if I am able to train you. Drawing my sword, I say, I've reached advanced proficiently recently, if that helps. He shakes his head and he swings towards me. He sword little more than a gleam of silver, faster than I can react to. I try to block, but I am barely able to raise my sword halfway before his sword stops just short of my forehead making my whole body break out in sweat. It does not. Two men can have the same proficiency in a skill, yet entirely different methods of using it. The only way for me to truly understand how you fight is to fight you, he says, lifting his sword away from my face and taking a step back. Again. This time he lets me attack and calmly parries with one of his slashes, his green eyes steadily tracking my movements as I endlessly try to breach his defenses. Enough, Lux says eventually, sheathing his sword. I think I have a clear enough picture of how you fight now. Hands trembling, I lower my sword and try to steady my breathing. Now that I am not fighting, I notice Joe sitting on the fence nearby, a stalk of wheat wiggling about in his mouth as he chews on it. Where did he even get that? Aren't all the crops here dead? Not terrible for someone who's obviously never been trained, but not great either. However, that just means you have much room for improvement. Let us start with the basics. Luck grabs my hands, shifting them slightly on the hilt of my sword. At least part of the reason why you are so tired right now is because your grip on the stance are sloppy. He explains, you aren't exerting as much strength as you could where it matters and exerting too much where it doesn't. There are many other problems with your style of fighting, but we'll start with that. Gerald POV Hello, I'm bored. Hello, bored. I'm insert name here. 
I hear you say. <laughs> but seriously, not much is happening for me. Lately, a bit of recon here, some chatting there, and the rest of my days are in silence. I am half tempted to notify those paladins of my existence, just so that I have the freedom to move about again. Plus, there's a whole bunch of questions that I would be interested in asking someone a bit more knowledgeable than Swerdenand. But anyway, all I can do is the usual training, minus some of the more showy skills. For obvious reasons, and watch what's happening. Ferdinand's currently getting a bit of training, which is nice to see. I'm watching that closely for future reference. Never know when I might get a skill that allows me to assume a human form, after all. Although, given my stats, I'd more fit into a wizard. Then again, with the strength and dex enhancement traits that I have, perhaps melee combat would be the way to go. I'd really rather use magic, but it will depend on whether I can find something with a good trait. Intelligence and wisdom, all I can think of in terms of intelligent animals are dolphins, and for wisdom I'm drawing a complete blank. I mean, they have say owls are wise, but are they really? Then, what about the monsters? I can think plenty of intelligent monsters, but that generally means they are of a similar intelligence to as a human. I need something particularly intelligent or wise. Mind flayers come to mind, and I didn't get the last time, but maybe if I come across another, an evil one in the future. Dragons are often depicted as intelligent and wise too, but I don't think getting a dragon is currently within the range of my capabilities. Not much else I can think of, but what to do. After all the time playing it before, I'm pretty much hate Minesweeper now. I suppose I can only thing I can do is meditate. Meditate the days away. Patience. Telling myself to be patient seems almost like an insult after how long I've waited. Days and villages go by a constant life of traveling, fighting, and training. For them... Guys, reckon we can switch places for a bit. Almost 60 in this village with four of the armored ones. Looks like we managed to get one of them this time. Some of the villagers are still fighting. As always, I inform Ferdinand of the movements within the village as soon as we get in range. Ugh, scratched at the last one, just got mobbed. Well, at least this time we'll be able to recover their bodies. Every single time there hasn't been a single corpse in the village as if the village had just vanished and were replaced by skeletons. Except, that would mean that there would be more skeletons in each village. By now, I'm quite curious what exactly the necromancer is doing, so I'm keeping a close eye, so to speak, on the events currently happening. The skeletons are carrying the bodies to the center of the village, where the usual cat is watching them. Once they are all there... A huge mass of manor appears in the village in a suddenness of which temporarily blinds me. Seconds later, it disappears, and along with it all the bodies and the skeletons carrying them. Eh? Did they just teleport or something? I'm so shocked and confused that I missed most of what Lily is saying about summoning magic. Right, makes sense, but now I reckon I can say because magic to anything that I don't understand. All right, whatever. Moving on. Ignoring what just happened, the rest is as usual. Running into the village, re-kill all of those undead, find the cat. Cat dies. Move on to the next village. Some adventurers turn up now and again to help, which is something, but the army is still conspicuous by its absence. 
By now, anyone with half a brain in this empire should be able to see that the necromancer has some ties to the people at the top echelons of society. But then again, some of the nobles on the city lords seem to have less than half a brain. How on earth has this empire held itself together when most of the people of importance are blithering idiots who, when not sleeping, are either spending money extravagantly, losing themselves in debauchery, or yelling at some unlucky chap in the street because their face looks funny? Honestly, I hope the rest of the world isn't like this. Ferdinand Point of View Crackling, the light spits out sparks and curves through the air, landing only a wink out a moment later. I roll my stiff shoulders. The rigorous training in the past week has been taking its toll on my body. Gerald is lying somewhere in my pack, as usual, probably bored out of his mind, as he so often tells me. Like me, Lily and Luck are seated around the fire, sipping at bowls of vegetable stew. Their god apparently restricts them from eating meat unless they have to. Personally, I enjoy a good steak, but this isn't half bad either. Like every other night, both of them have taken it off their armor and are instead dressed in simple tunics and leggings. Like this, I can hardly liken them to the usual appearances. Armored holy knights that will dominate the battlefield or heal the wounded wherever they appear. Finishing gulping down the stew, I set the wooden bowl down to one side. It will be cleaned before we leave in the morning. Stomach full, a question comes to my mind and I can't help but voice. You two are very strong, so how is it that I've not heard of you before we met? Luck lifts his gaze from the fire. We came from far north, so it is not a surprise that you have never heard of us. He looks over at Lily, a hint of amusement in his eyes. Besides, even we did not know each other before this. It was only when I was upon the Empire's borders that I heard our Lord's voice telling me where to find Lily, and that she would be heading on the mission here. My eyebrows raised involuntarily. You get along well for two people who barely know each other. Why would we not, Black shrugs. We serve the same god, after all, and Lily is such an accomplished wizard that it's hard for me not to be in awe of her. While I appreciate this sentiment, I am only proficient in a few miscellaneous magical skills. I cannot claim to be anything more than average in other areas. Lily leaned forward, warming her hand over the fire. Rather, your skill with the sword is much more impressive. It approaches that of an old master's where I live. Luck smiles slightly. My sword master says that he's nearly out of things to teach me. Soon I'll only be able to rely on myself to improve further. How about you, Ferdinand? What are you good at? Taken by surprise, I say the first thing that comes to mind. Farming. Farming was the only thing that I was ever good at. Why did you never go back to farming then? Luck asked curiously. I never thought about it before, so I take a moment to think before answering. I suppose I saw too many people who needed help, and not enough people who were helping them. If I went back to farming, that would mean more people wouldn't be able to get that help. How noble. You might do well to as a paladin yourself, Lily says, and then turns to... Was Joe sitting there the whole time? That guy was so quiet that it was hard to notice him, I swear. And how about you, Joe? I don't expect him to answer, but to my surprise he actually does. Actually, I'm a farmer too. Pulling the straw hat from behind his back and he places it on his head. It's hard work, you know. 
Figured I'd take a short break after all the ends and go back to the farm for me. Call me skeptical, but I don't believe him, says Sir Gerald. You can hear what he's saying, I asked. Nah, he's writing it on the ground. I look at his finger, and indeed he's on the ground. It is still right now, but I know from experience that it can go at an incredible speed. I go back to the original topic. But does it mean anything if he's lying? No, Gerald sighs, it doesn't. Or rather, it would make less sense if he's telling the truth. But either way, we know too little about him to determine anything. Even friend or foe, although from his actions so far, it's neither. Really, there's no point in thinking too much about it. I never did. How close are you to finding the necromancer's location? Luck asks Lily in the meantime. Lily takes out a map and looks at it. Very. The directions I'm able to find with every one of these cat familiars are quite inexact. But if I can do it once more, maybe two more times, I should be able to narrow down it to one area. Furrowing his brows, Luck asks, And if he has not been staying in one area? It would make something difficult, but in that case, there should be a larger deviations in the direction and a pattern that he could follow. She answers, then it looks like a big day tomorrow. We should get some rest. A dim, pale light shines down on the world as Terok glowers down, alone in his own piece of the sky. One ghostly, pale hand resting lightly on the rails of a balcony, a young man looks up at the sky and shivers. Turning around, he walks back into the room, pulling the gilded doors closed behind him. He glances briefly at the large bed, with its silken sheets twisted into knotted clumps at the foot, and walks instead to his desk. He sits down with a practiced motion, and reaches under his desk and presses a concealed button. His other hand enters a number combination, and a slight click notifies him that the secret compartment is unlocked. Apparently, the man thinks that even this is not enough security, because the book he slips out from the compartment is itself padlocked. Taking the key from where it hangs around his neck, he unlocks it. Glancing fearfully about the room one last time, he opens the book and flips through to an empty page. Taking up a magical pen on the desk, he begins to write. Night 257. Questions surround me no matter what answers I give, and those who should be loyal hounds pay for my blood without regret for what I feed them. I fear that soon all my plans will unravel, and with them so too will the noose be tied for my demise. Oh, how I wish that I could simply leave this all behind. But archers lay in wait to fall me with arrows, daggers lurk in the night, and soon enough my own soldiers will march against me. Only here am I safe, and yet even here my protectors will tear me limb from limb if I so much as utter the wrong word. What a fool I was, what a fool I am. If only I'd never been brought here. If only I'd run when I still could. Too late, too late. I still cannot sleep. The tear glistens against his pale skin as he once again locks the book, placed in its compartment and resets the mechanism. Head in hands, he weeps. End of chapter Chapter 24 Skeletons, Skeletons Everywhere Ferdinand POV With a scratching sound, the final line is marked upon the map. Scooping up a large piece of earth in her hands, Lily lays a new deceased cat within the shallow grave and sprinkles the earth over it. She looks up at us. 
I have the necromancer's location. The place doesn't have a name, but it is near the Empire's border to the west. Excellent, exclaims Luck. We should make haste towards him, lest he moves or does further damage. I nod. Joe chews absently on a strand of wheat, seemingly uninterested. Indeed, but we should at least inquire at the churches we pass to see if there are any other paladins or priests available to assist us, Lily says. Gerald POV We pass through several cities without any trouble from bandits and very little from the monsters. They were likely intimidated by the heavily armored paladins. Speaking of, they managed to persuade some of the other paladins and priests to join our motley troop. As we go along, some of them look sideways at Ferdinand, but more of them are looking strangely at his empty spot near us, where I assume Joe is occupying. In total, we have five paladins, four priests, and an adventurer, a weirdo, and a fork, against a single necromancer. Usually, good odds, but then again, a necromancer is a one-man army. We finally arrive. Everything looks normal. A slight breeze tumbles petals through the air peacefully. The scene is so very different from the magical image most of them must have been holding, so much that some even mutters, I was sure that this is the right place. He's got quite the compound on the ground by the looks of it. The entrance is hidden about a 150 meters in front of you, and a tad to your left. I tell Ferdinand, but how can I say that without seeming suspicious, he asks. I must be rubbing off on him. He's starting to ask the right questions. Not sure, I reply honestly. At least some of them can detect lies, so if you just keep saying it, they should believe you. Ferdinand starts trying to tell everyone where the entrance is. They agree that they may as well start looking there and start walking over. The horses they leave tied to a lone tree. Mounts will only be a hindrance underground. Meanwhile, I take a closer look at the compound hidden base thing. Evil layer? The necromancer is, um, there. Oh, that doesn't look good. That doesn't look good at all. Might want to hurry it up a bit. The necromancer is doing some sort of magical ritual thing. With a lot of corpses, I guess around a thousand... The rest of the rooms and his evil lair are completely empty. Not a sign of undead anywhere. Unless those lanterns are undead. Could be. A feeling of pressure on my handle brings my attention back to my body. Ferdinand is taking me out of his pack. You do know that if I can easily get myself out any t And he's handing me over to luck. Okay, what? Look, if you're having trouble with something, just use this fork, luck. You're right, he didn't see that one coming. He goes on to clarify that luck should throw me at an enemy. Luck is understandably confused, but puts me away in a pouch on his belt nonetheless. That sneaky little... He knows that if I try to do anything here, I'll expose myself. Fine, just remember that if you get split up from luck, I won't be able to help you. I warn him. I know... Raising holy symbols, the priests begin cast blessings upon everyone, me excepting, obviously. Ferdinand says that they have raised both his physical and mental stats by five, as well as granting him some resistance to death energy, poison, and rot. Not bad. We reach the entrance and Luck draws his sword. 
He jabs it into a ground, piercing through into an empty space below. Nodding to himself, he starts slicing at an impressive speed, the first piece starting to fall just as he completes the last cut. Around us, the earth begins to bulge. Rather than a single massive distortion, there are hundreds upon hundreds of small bulges starting to break the earth around them. They are large, perhaps the size of a large ball, or a head. Skulls start to surface all around them, skeletal hands putting themselves free of the shadowy graves to reveal a horde of skeletons. Soil tickles from between empty ribs and hanging jaws, and a few stubborn flowers cling to some of the skeletons' pale domes. Three of the priests raise their arms in prayer and call out, Holy Sanctuary! A softly glowing hemisphere expands from the position until it encompasses the entire group. Half a beat later, the last priest raises his arms and calls out, Holy Sanctuary! in an oddly high-pitched voice, causing the sphere's glow to get slightly brighter. As the first skeleton step foot into the sphere's radium, the dark flames behind their eyes dim considerably, and their movements slow to a standstill. It takes practically no effort for the paladins to cut them down. Fear fills the priest's eyes as they recognize the distinctive twangy sound from the rear of the horde. The holy sanctuary repels the undead. It has no effect against ranged attacks. One of the paladins raises his shield and shouting lowly, Divine Barrier! The edge of the sanctuary surrounding the group turns solid, just in time to deflect a volley of arrows. Glancing off the shield, the otherwise deadly quarrels scatter ineffectively into the horde, doing practically nothing to the skeletal undead. Walking over towards the living, the skeletons begin to batter the barrier. Their attacks are unable to breach it, but the bright light slowly begins to dim. I cannot hold this for long! exclaims the paladin, face pained as he strains to keep up the barrier in face of a constant assault. Everyone underground, Lily shouts, leading the group down to the formerly hidden staircase itself. Luck follows close behind, warily looking around in case any further ambushes. Next is Ferdinand and Joe and then the four priests, the sanctuary slowly fading behind them, leaving only the barrier itself. The other two paladins, and finally the paladin that was holding up the barrier. Lit only by the ominously glowing skulls and surrounding all of the sides by the dark earth, the group descends into the stone stairs in silence until the paladin at the rear groans. They breached my barrier. Nobody replies, but their speed increases and their faces tense slightly. Reaching a set of doors, they open them and enter an empty room with a passageway in each direction. Which way do we go now? Someone asks, looking down the nearly identical corridors. Right, says Ferdinand hesitantly. A few people look at him suspiciously, but Lily just shrugs. You were right the last time. That said, some of us should stay behind to hold the undead off here. Marco, Alex, Ferdinand, and Joe, you four should be able to fend them off using the doorway as a choke point. Ferdinand and the barrier paladin and a pale-looking priest nod, while Joe just shrugs. Turning, Lily looks solemnly into the dim tunnel and moves quickly into it, followed closely by Luck and the remaining paladins and priests. They soon vanish into the sight and hearing. Alex the priest nervously runs his tongue along his lips and moistens them. 
So, uh, I believe, uh, in times like this, um, introductions are in order. He glances up the staircase, face paling further as he sees the veritable sea of bones nearly at the bottom. I, uh, am Alex, the, uh, priest, obviously. He fingers the holy symbol hanging from the chain on his neck. Marco glances at him before striding to the door, readying his sword and shield. Marco, son of Marcus, I follow Ordal, guard of the shield. His voice smiles smoothly into the room, clear and strong. Ferdinand, already at the door, braces himself against it and facing overwhelming odds. Ferdinand, adventurer, he says, loud enough to be heard over the lundering din of cracking bones. Joe, says Joe, sticking his arm up cheerfully. Well, nice to meet you, Marco, Ferdinand and Joe, Alex gulps. I, um, hope this won't be our last meeting. It will not, states Marco, brashing the head of an approaching skeleton with his shield. We do not need to defeat them, only to hold them off until the others defeat the necromancer. This is a simple task. Long and tiresome, yes, but simple. Alex nods worriedly, raising his holy symbol. Holy sanctuary, he mutters, causing a dimly glowing hemisphere to appear in the doorway, encompassing Marco and Ferdinand, as well as a few of the skeletons nearby. It won't be as effective as the one earlier, but uh, I should be able to hold it there for a while, because it's smaller. Alex finishes lamely. Ferdinand and Marco make no response, now entirely concentrating on holding back the skeleton horde. Seeing that the two of them appear to be having a little difficulty at the early point, Alex glances idly around, spotting Joe comfortably reclining against the wall and watching the combat. He frowns. You aren't going to do anything, he asks. Joe turns his head to face him. Nah, I don't fight. Alex frowns, deepens. Then why are you here in the first place? To watch things like this. Joe points to the two defending the doorway, small piles of bones beginning to pile up around them, to feel the tension of the fight to taste the air. Ugh, this air is full of death energy. He spits onto the floor in disgust. Alex, already in a less than ideal state of mind, is completely unable to handle Joe's strangeness at this moment. I'll just concentrate on the fighting, he decides. Meanwhile, the other group is navigating the way through the tunnels. They pass several rooms, one filled with papers, some with various magical items, a room full of mirrors, giving them little more than a cursory glance. The paladins and priests hurry on by. No doubt the contents of the rooms are important, but right now finding and defeating the necromancer is top priority. The contents of the rooms won't be going anywhere, after all. There will be time to carefully search through everywhere here later. Are we sure this is the right way? Lily doesn't waste any time stopping. A second spent here is another second that the entrance has to be defended. Can you not feel the density of death energy increasing? This is the correct path, I'm sure of it. The paladin doesn't respond. Now that she mentions it, he can feel the death energy increasing. By no small degree either. He barely needs to use a detection skill to feel the malignant energy prickling against his skin, sapping at his stamina. All of them can feel that they are close. 
Turning another corner, they see the tunnel opening into a massive chamber, inside which their eyes widen in shock that quickly turns to anger as they take in the scene in front of them. Hundreds of dried-up bodies line piles in several circles around the room, channels leading from them into a massive stone basin in the floor. Both are empty, save the cloaked man standing at the center of the basin. What manner of foul ritual is this? mutters one of the priests involuntarily. The cloaked man turns, and one of the paladins shudder. The man's eyes are pitch black, and his face is a whitish color, as if completely devoid of blood. Free at last! It sighs, but its face shows no emotion. Free from what? Your humanity, accuses Luck. Eyeing Luck coldly, the lich states expressionlessly, It doesn't matter. Yet lack of tone makes it difficult to tell what it was referring to. I'm in a good mood right now, so your deaths will be swift and painless. The dark eyes glint malevolently. You will all make excellent undead. Before anyone can make a move, it raises a dark staff and quickly chants. By the dark contracts I call thee, mass summon undead. With a brief flash of light, the battalion of skeletons clad in rusty, corroded armor appear in front of the lich. Holy smite! With a word, the holy light flies and strikes one of the skeletons. It falls to the ground with a clatter, vanquished with a single blow. Completely ignoring the skeletons, Luck leaps over them and attacks the lich directly, wielding its staff in the startling display of both physical and martial prowess. The lich parries Luck's attacks while retreating, chanting rapidly as it does so. Damn, soldiers, never stop, never falter. Death march. Chips fly away from the lich's staff as he continues to parry Luck's blows, and it appears to be losing ground fast. But just as Luck is about to overwhelm the lich, three of the undead surround him, and he is forced to switch his focus to them. Cladding his blade in a holy aura, Luck deftly slips away from their attacks. Shifting his footing, he twists sword silently, cutting through the air and beheading all three of the undead. With barely a pause in his movements, he again lunges at the lich. Strong, you aren't from around here. This would be an excellent opportunity to familiarize myself with my new body's peculiarities. The lich steps frantically backwards and then looks up as it realizes something. Death March! I almost forgot that I can use these spells on myself, now that I am too undead. Its movements quicken considerably and it manages to break away from luck, duck around the pile of bodies and slip into the midst of its undead soldiers. Grimacing, luck prepares to cut his way through the lich when a voice rings out over the din and clashing weapons. Luck! They've managed to surround us. Some assistance would be appreciated. Before Lily finishes shouting, Luck is already slashing his way through the perimeter. How did they manage to get around you? He asks Lily, glancing around before resuming his assault on the skeletons. The priests appear unharmed, but the other paladins have traces of blood trickling down the unmarred skin, evidence of a wound that had recently been healed. They suddenly sped up Korov's of guard, Lily explains, felling another skeleton with another bolt of holy magic. Cover me for a bit. She jumps back and starts to chant, not waiting for a response. 
Shaking his head in resignation, Luck dashes off to the decimate the rest of the skeletons surrounding them, while the others hold off a few in the front. Like a lion at Domino's set of armor fall to the ground one by one, subtle cuts evident in the thinner portions of the armor or straight through the metal when his or their positions made it inconvenient to target their weak points. Having eliminated the encirclement, Luck looks up, expecting to see a severely smaller group of skeletons now, guarding the lich, but he could potentially charge straight through. Instead, he sees another group of skeletons appearing around the lich. There is only eleven of them, but they appear considerably more formidable than the skeletons that there had been before. If the first group of skeletons and the lich were soldiers, then these were generals. Clad in suits of armor that were, without exception, covered in nicks and scratches, but are nevertheless in good condition. They have quite confidence in their bearing that is present only in veterans of many battles. Despite being undead, they almost feel alive as they simultaneously focus glares on the wary paladins and priests through their eyeslits of their visors. Leaving the soldiers behind, the skeleton generals advance in unison, quickly splitting into three different groups. One which moves directly towards the paladins, and two that move off at an angle to attack their flanks. One of the paladins fires a holy bolt at the approaching skeletons. As it is about to hit, the skeleton tilts its body to contemptuous ease. The bolt flies into the group of grab created, hitting one of the skeletal soldiers behind it. Eyeing the paladin in question mockingly, the skeletal general continues to advance unimpeded. Incensed, the paladin begins casting bolts repeatedly. But the skeleton general ducks and weaves around them effortlessly and they end up smashing against the skeletons or a wall behind. Noticing that his efforts had only been a waste of mana, the paladin frowns in frustration and instead imbues holy magic into his sword. Behind him, the three priests hurriedly cast another holy sanctuary. The perimeter expanding encompassed them all and the four paladins, just as the skeletons are about to reach them. Grinding to a halt, the skeletal generals look warily at the slowly growing hemisphere, Instinct tells them that touching it will bring them harm, and yet within it there are enemies. One of them reaches out and dips a finger into it experimentally, whipping it out a moment later as it feels the holy magic purifying the death energy in its finger. Its eyes dim ever so slightly as the death energy within it redistributes itself to clad the finger once again. Another skeleton reaches out with its sword. Unlike the skeletons themselves, their armor and weaponry are not part of them, and thus the sword is unaffected by the holy magic. Then they see that their weapons can enter without anything happening. Their hesitation disappears, and they begin to attack again, although they are more careful not to let any part of their body enter within the radius of the spell. While all the paladins and priests are within the perimeter of the spell, the priests are unable to sustain too large a radius, and thus the skeletons are able to reach the paladins with their weapons. Of course, a smaller area also means they're easier to defend, but the paladins are increasingly hard-pressed to defend themselves, especially when Lily is still chanting. Wounds begin to appear on the paladins' limbs despite their shields, the skeletons piercing their weapons into any and every hole in the defenses. The only exception is Luck himself, 
spending all three and sometimes four at once without a single injury to show for thus far. Still, he appears to be fighting at the very limits of his abilities, eyes restlessly darting about, trying to see everything at once while his sword appears to have a life of its own, twisting and parrying relentlessly. If not for the sanctuary, and if not for the fact that Liddy and the priests were just outside of reach of the skeletons, the seven would be likely to be overwhelm them in moments under the undead onslaught. But the paladins and the priests are tiring, slowly running out of mana, and the skeleton generals are not. At this rate, it is only a matter of time before they run out of mana and fall. At this point, that, unbeknownst to each other because of the noisy combat, both Lily and the Lich finish chanting, Correct injustice sever evil from this world. Sword of judgment, shouts Lily, raising her gauntlet. She curls her fingers, leaving a single index point at the Lich standing sheltered within the skeletons. Wherever you step, death shall follow. Summon undead warlord. Intones the lich, lifting the splintered remains of his staff. The golden sword appears in the air in front of Lily's finger and begins to shoot towards the lich at high speed. Noticing the situation, one of the skeletal generals throws himself in the path of the sword, but the sword pierces straight through into its armor, breaks through the bones behind it, and through the back with little reduction in speed or altering its course. Now the only thing standing between it and the lich are the remaining skeletal soldiers, which promptly pile themselves into a wall of bone and metal, that too has a thin hole cut straight through it. And that's when the undead warlord appears. End of chapter Chapter 25 Fork to the Rescue Meanwhile, back at the entrance, Marco pants heavily, his arms never stop moving, as they continue to wield the sword and shield against the skeletons. He appears mostly unharmed, but exhaustion is clearly starting to take its toll. Streams of sweat run down Ferdinand's brow as he fights, stinging his eyes and causing him to blink repeatedly. But he has no more time to wipe it away as the never-ending tide of skeletons pressed down upon them. Alex is working to move the bones and fallen weapons around them away and into another room so that they don't trip over while fighting. Yawning, Joe digs around in his ear with his pinky, inspects the results and wipes the earwax off on his pants. After a while, the approaching tide starts to have more and more black skeletons amongst them, until they are the only ones approaching. With even more pressure on them now, Marco begins to falteringly chant. Although he hears it, Ferdinand doesn't even spare him a glance. He has no leeway to look away from the combat, and he can barely see with all of the sweat dripping into his eyes. Your will, my shield protect, until the last breath, final bulwark. A giant image of a shield appears, blocking the stairway completely. The skeletons beyond it immediately begin to batter against it. Decapitating the skeletons in front of him, Ferdinand wipes the sweat from his eyes as he breathes a sigh of relief. Panting, he asks Marco, How long can you hold? Marco stands unmoving with both hands raised as his shield. 
Saw discarded on the floor, his lips barely move as he tries to speak, but no sound comes out. Ferdinand frowns. Gerald was right. I should have trained telepathy up to advanced. Then I would be able to talk with him. He thinks regretfully. I, I think that I've read about this spell before, Alex said, still ferrying skulls, pelvises, and other manner of bones across the room. Final bulwark, yes. It's particular to the paladins of Aldral. Of course, requires a shield for use. Uses mana, stamina, and uh, health to power it. He falters, a couple femurs stumbling from his arms. Cannot be cancelled or interrupts at once cast, except by the user reaching one health. Results, almost without exception, in the caster's death. He gulps. Well, you'll just have to heal him as soon as he stops then. Ferdinand leans against the wall to catch his breath. I can try, but one health. He can die at any moment, even without anything attacking him. It'll be up to his luck and will to live whether he survives or not. And either way, you'll need to take over the whole defense. I'm afraid that I'm more capable with a book than I am a battle axe, so to speak. He shrugs, dropping the bones on the floor with a clatter. He looks down at them sadly. It's going to take weeks to give all of these a proper burial. If we don't end up joining them, that is. Ferdinand shakes his head, again wiping off his forehead. Marco was right, we can't think like that. We just have to keep fighting. The holy sanctuary fades and Alex shrugs. I'm running low on mana. I'll be needing some to heal Marco. But why are you fighting? Us priests and paladins? Well, it's pretty much our duty. But you don't seem to be particularly pious. So why are you here? Risking your life in some nameless place. I just want to help protect people. Alex raises an eyebrow. My detect lie skill tells me that you're telling the truth. My experience as a piece tells me that it isn't the whole truth. Do we really have to do this now? Ferdinand frowns. No, I suppose not. Alex sighs. He spends the next few minutes in silence ferrying more bones across the room until the doorway is completely clear of them, keeping an eye on the shield blocking the stairways at all times. Ferdinand takes a sip of water from a flask and sets it down next to his backpack along the wall. He dries his hands on his shirt, his breathing gradually slowing to just above normal levels. Crack! They look at the crack starting to web across the surface of the shield, their faces tightening. Both of them had secretly harbored the hope that the necromancer would be defeated by the time that the shield fell. The shield shatters a moment later and Marco falls backwards with blood spurting from his mouth, shield falling to the floor to lie next to his sword. Ferdinand scoots it up and stands in the middle of the doorway while Alex ships Marco away, hands infusing him with healing magic with all the while. POV Ferdinand I slip my arm into the handle of the shield and brace myself, the shield helps me block off the skeletons on one side while I focus on fighting the ones on the other side. One, two, four, seven, twelve, twenty. I stop counting. Already used to dismissing the windows as soon as they pop up, I almost miss my level up earlier because of how I'm used to it. But luckily, I just managed. I remember feeling very thankful that the menu could be used hands-free back then. 
It's unbelievable that I'm closing in on level 30 now. It was only a short while ago that I was only level 18, and now here I am. I shake away my loose thoughts and concentrate on the fight. Slash, dismiss, slash, dismiss, slash. I slowly feel my left arm growing heavy, the shield feels awkward, and the strap is digging into my arm painfully. I should have known that I can't just pick up a shield and be able to use it effectively. Slipping my arm from the handle, I drop it behind me, all the while fending off a myriad of black skeletons in front of me. I'm gonna have nightmares of this if I survive today. I shake my left hand to lessen the pain a little bit and place it on the hilt of the sword, wielding it in a two-handed grip. Slash, slash, slash. Bones clatter upon the steps, shattered spines and scattered limbs. Slash, slash, slash. Dim lights flicker ominously, sending an army of hollow shadows, multitudes larger than the actual one dancing across the walls. Slash, slash, slash. That annoying drip of sweat has come back, and I barely see anything in my left eye. But even the blurred figures I see are enough to combat the simple attacks. Slash, slash, slash. I blink my left eye furiously, but that only seems to make it worse. I give up and decide just to stop blinking altogether. After a short moment, tears seem to cover my eyes, relieving some of the pain. Slash, slash, slash. Skill gained. Battle focus basic. Allows you to enter a state of intense concentration when in combat. Slightly decreases likelihood of being startled by unexpected events. Losing track of an enemy and not seeing attacks. Strength plus 0.5. Dexterity plus 0.5. Endurance plus 0.5. Intelligence plus 0.5. Wisdom plus 0.5. Luck plus 0.5, charisma plus 0.5, when in this state. Dismiss, slash, slash, slash. They keep coming, no matter how many I cut down, both my eyes are stinging with sweat. I can only see indistinct forms, my arms are sore, and my hands are shaking, and I can barely breathe. Slash, slash, slash. My grip is slipping, and it feels like the sword will drop from my hands at any moment. I can hardly think. Why am I fighting again? Title evolved, Undead Bane becomes Undead Slaughterer. Killer of many horrors at night, you can instinctively sense nearby undead, especially those harmful to you. All stats increase by two when attacking undead. Dismiss. Slash, slash, slash. Right, I thought it would be like one of those knights shining armor from the stories. <laughs> she's the one with the shining armor, and she's stronger, smarter, beautiful. How could I ever hope to rescue her? Slash, slash, slash. She's taking a long time to beat him. She's having trouble. But then, if these skeletons get through, she... I can hold on for another few levels, surely. I tighten my grip. Take a deep breath and try to blink away the sweat and fight on through the pain on all the wounds that I have been taking. It might just be my imagination, but it feels like my sword just got a little bit lighter. Their weapons just a bit slower. Slash, slash, slash. That wasn't too hard, right? Another ten seconds. 
Slash, slash, slash. Are they getting weaker? I feel like they're getting weaker. I think I can hold them for at least another 20 seconds. Slash, slash, slash. Is this a joke? Why are they so easy now? Where did all the pain go? I, I can go for another minute at this rate. Minimum. Slash, slash, slash. Come at me, you bastards. Trait gained. Battle born. Whether your battles end in victory or defeat, you will never give up. Increased resistance to mental influences increases grip strength, pain reduction. Stat unlocked. Fighting spirit. Skill gained. Battle cry. Basic. Roar loudly. Your voice echoes over the battlefield with the possibility of starting and or causing fear in enemies. Reducing effect if used repeatedly on the same enemy. Requirements more than 30 fighting spirit. Cooldown 2 minutes. Stamina cost 30. Fighting spirit plus 30. I find myself grinning as I cut down the skeleton. After skeleton, I dismiss the notification without reading them. They don't matter. The only thing that matters is not a single skeleton gets past me. So when armored skeletons start pouring down the stairs, I just tighten my grip, square my shoulders, and glare at them. Going back some ten minutes, the distance between the Sword of Judgment and the Skeleton Warlord is less than half a meter, and the sword is moving slightly faster than an arrow in flight. Such a distance, at such speed, it'll take less than a hundredth of a second. And yet, in the minuscule moment, the skeletal warlord manages to interpose its weapon into the path of the Sword of Judgment. Death energy billows up its bare, skeletal arms and into its weapon, struggling to push it back. For a second, the holy magic and death energy are at an impasse, the holy magic constantly purifying the oncoming rush of death energy, and the death energy surging forth seemingly endlessly. Snap! A large shard falls to the floor, formerly the upper half of the skeletal warlord's massive claymore. Despite in the dim light its silvery blue color is clear, even a blade forged in mithril was unable to withstand the power of a sword of judgment. Staggering backwards, falling to one knee as the glowing blade within its chest clashes with death energy within its body, the dark flames within its eyes start to dim. Grasping at the hilt of the magical blade with both hands, despite the death energy around them coiling towards the sword's mere presence, the warlord pulls it out and throws it away, the blade dissipating into motes of light. Turning to the lich, the skeletal warlord speaks. The first time you summoned me in years, and it's to be your meat shield. Damn, wizards. The lich doesn't reply, so the warlord just rolls its shoulders and turns around. Now who's the frecker that nearly offed me? Again, it says glaring at the group of paladins and priests who are still within the glowing sphere. Looking between them, it quickly assesses them. Weak, 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 and you aren't too bad. So it's her. It says, referring to Lily, who is wobbling slightly where she stands. The spell almost strained her of every last drop of mana in her body at once and as a result she is experiencing a physical exhaustion. It walks forward, the generals moving out of its way as it approaches. It halts just in front of the sentry. You aren't hoping this can stop me, are you? The skeletal warlord rasps, pushing the skull into the glowing barrier. 
Because it won't. Ding! The skeletal warlord blocks Luck's blade with its own. Despite having lost its top, the blade is still of considerable length. That's more like it. Luck and the warlord begin to fight, and the general similarly resume their assault. Barely two seconds later, the lich begins to chant, but the warlord rotates its skull to interrupt him. Don't you dare buff me. I didn't come back from the dead after a millennia to easily overpower every enemy I face. I came back to fight real battles. The lich looks at the warlord Kali. You are mine and you shall do as I please. Oh, and what the hell are you going to do if I don't? Take away my own life. You don't have the guts, mocks the warlord. Without me here, you'll die in seconds. My fight, my rules. After a moment of silence, the lich speaks again. And what if he defeats you? Then I die again, the skeletal warlord states simply. True warriors accept the possibility of death. The only reason I died with regrets last time, because it wasn't an even fight. It was an assassination. Fine, the lich practically spit the words out. The skeletal warlord shifts its skull back to the normal position. Let's get this started again, shall we? The jagged edge of the sword hacks down at Luck. Ducking to the side, Luck parries to the blow while pushing away with his own. From there, he attempts to slash towards the skeleton. With the twist of the wrist, the warlord blocks the attempt of his own cut. Parry, thrust, dodge, cut, block, reposit, slash, hack. The two exchange a flurry of blows. Luck is fatigued and unable to fight at his highest capacity, but the situation is precisely the same for the warlord. Deprived of much of his death energy from the earlier sword of judgment, it has perhaps half the speed and power that it would ordinarily enjoy. Of course, it still had an endless stamina of the undead, an advantage that Luck was uncomfortably aware of. If his opponent this time were a human of the same caliber, he was confident that he would be able to defeat it. But as it was, it may only be a matter of time before he himself falls if he can't pull something off. Breaking its weapon is nothing but a pipe dream, despite its apparent fragility. Every one of Luck's blows has been infused with either power of slash or power stab skills, to no effect. Binding it somehow, impossible. Breaks its stance, possible, since skeletons are comparatively light. Even while planning his next move, Luck makes no change in expression, no small movement that could give it away. These eyes don't shift from the warlord's upper body as he drops to the ground and sweeps his leg towards the warlord's. The foot meets nothing but air, and the next moment Luck rolls away to avoid the warlord's weapon stabbing down towards him. Regaining his feet in an instant, Luck looks warily towards the warlord. First thing I did when I got this body was familiarize myself with its weaknesses and strengths. Utters the warlord, searching forwards once more. Luck prepares himself for another assault, but the warlord instead darts around him like a swallow, slicing into the armor with the casual finesse of a master before jumping back to evade the blade whistling towards it in retaliation. Subtly shifting muscles to ascertain the extent of the damage, Luck winces. The cut is narrow, but nearly to the bone. 
There are seven muscles and tendons, no doubt. Then the pain is intense, to say the least. Still, one knows their own body best, and luck is a paladin. A soft glow begins to emanate from the wound as it slowly starts to heal. In the meantime, however, luck is at a severe disadvantage. The wound on his back severely limits the range of movements and the strength that he can exert. He shifts into a defensive, using his shield more than his sword as he stalls for time, even while realizing that the delay will similarly benefit his enemy. A voice floats into his head. Use the fork, luck. Whether it's from delirium or memory, he isn't sure, but at that moment he's grasping at straws. Lily is out of manner. The beasts are probably running low by now, and there's a visible exhaustion on the faces of the other paladins, even if he ignores his own predicament. At worst, it might distract him for a moment, he thinks, pulling the fork out of the pouch and hurling it at the lich. Heavily doubting the potential lethality of even the high-velocity fork, but nevertheless concluding that it could be in fact a strangely shaped magical item. The warlord attempts to slice it out of the air with an extraordinary display of hand-eye coordination, but the fork appears to shift mid-air, evading the blade. Do my eyes deceive me? Wonder both Luck and the warlord, because Luck's eyes widen, and the dark flame behind the warlord's eye sockets flickers slightly in shock. Still hurtling through the air, the fork stops, it's flipping, and straightens out, morphing into an arrow-like form and greatly increasing its velocity. Unable to react in time, the lich stares in dumb disbelief as it shoots through the air towards it, over the heads of the skeletal soldiers, and then suddenly dips downwards, tearing through the lich's cloak and away again, in front of it now balding strangely. Speeding up above the skeletons just out of reach, it returns to hover before luck. Uncertainly, he reaches out, and under his dumbfounded gaze, the bulbous tip retracts, revealing a curious artifact as it rolls onto his palm. The spherical, in shape, it appears to be made of mithril. Although the metal has an odd reddish tint to it, it feels hollow, and luck senses something wholly unholy dwelling within it. The lich's phylactery, he breathes, and then ducks under the skeletal warlord's sweeping blade. Stop him! The lich shouts in rage, every skeleton in the room turning and running towards Luck. The lich himself starts to chant, but as he begins, his voice begins to scream in pain. In Luck's hand lies the phylactery, now wreathed in holy magic. Although the mithril casing is incredibly sturdy and would be nigh impossible for them to breach by ordinary means, Luck is a paladin. While others would have to break the container, he can attack with the soul within directly, saturated with death energy as it is. Of course, doing this is no easy feat, even more so when attempting to do it while also dodging and blocking the attacks of a highly skilled and powerful undead. But now that he doesn't have to defeat the warlord, he doesn't bother attacking whatsoever focusing solely on the entirety of the fence and running away from the crowd of undead, solely and entirely focused on killing him. So hell-bent are they on killing him that they completely ignore the other paladins and priests, who are now behind them attacking them from the rear. Mere seconds pass before the lich lets out his last scream. 
The other skeletons start moving, dark flames, then fade until they're too full. The skeletal warlord looks at Luck, who loosely holds out one hand, and speaks his final words. Freaking wizards. And then the room falls silent. Well, it could have been worse, sighs one of the priests. He looks towards Lily. Can we please, please have a rest before we start looking through this place? Preferably outside? Lily smiles tiredly. Of course, I think we've earned a little break. A little break, the priest smiles stiffly. Well, it could have been worse. Going back some ten minutes again. POV Gerald. When he finished the ritual, whatever it was, I knew something was up. It was the large amounts of death energy hanging around him, or the fact that the amount of mana that he had jumped hugely. It was the fact that a similar amount of death energy was condensed within the ball-like object. So when Nuck accuses the necromancer of giving up his humanity, gears start to turn. Necromancer! Weird ritual thing giving up humanity! Ha! <laughs> he just became a lich, didn't he? And if that was so, then that ball must be his phylactery. He, or it, I suppose, didn't have time to hide it away after the ritual, so he just slipped it into his pocket in his cloak. But right shame that, if it had hidden it, I wouldn't have been able to fetch it or direct them too easily as blinking, without any of this fighting. Speaking of fighting, there's a lot of it. Over here, over there, every freaking where. Let me just express my relief that we are inside and not outside. There are a lot of skeletons out there. A lot. Anywho, Luck gets into the fight with a big skeleton dude and he doesn't appear to be faring too well. They'll probably die if I don't do anything, huh? Use the fork, Luck! I speak into his mind using my best wise old man voice. He tosses me, and whoa there, engaging invasive maneuvers. <coughs> After dodging that skeleton dude's broken blade, I use ye old form manipulation to change myself into a more flight-worthy shape. Forks aren't exactly the most aerodynamic things. I give myself a bit of a boost with a small key blast and absorb the vacuum trick. Try hit me now, skeletons. Yes, yes, I'm flying way out of reach. There's a problem. As I approach the lich, I'm starting to take damage from absorbing the death energy. Absorbing the dude is a no-go then. Not that I want to. The factory it is. I swoop down and utilize a bit of tricky form manipulation to encapsulate the phylactery. Ow, ow, ow. I'm taking damage just from holding the thing. Let's just get it back to luck. Let him deal with it. Propping that down in his hand, I pop the thing out and repair myself. Job done. A bit of shame that I don't get any XP from this, but hey, Ferdinand's got me covered there. Nearly 1,000 EXP came in from his side, and that's only 5% of the total. Dude earned dang near 20k. Well, I'm glad that's over. End of chapter. Chapter 26. Yep, I've been there. Lily POV.
After the priests use what little manna they have remaining to heal any life-threatening wounds, and we patch up the rest of the bandages, we retrace our steps towards the entrance. We are all tired enough to drop where we stand, but it won't be good if any of us if the lich has set up the place to self-destruct after his death. So we limp towards the entrance. Fortunately, it appears that the lights in this place have their own parcels, as the flames still flicker within them. When we reach the entry room, I see bones strewn about the floor, and three people lying motionless. My heart jumps in my throat, but I shove it back down, forcing myself to remain calm and logical. Removing a gauntlet, I kneel and feel for a pulse of addicts, who is closest to me. I feel it a moment later, pulsing at a steady pace beneath his skin. His eyes crack open as I'm about to move on to the next person. Oh, we won, he croaks. Yes, are you all right? How are Marco and Ferdinand, I ask. They were in bad shape when I fell unconscious. Don't worry about me, just exhausted. His eyelids drifted down as he struggles to stay awake. Thank you. I look over to the others already being tended to by the priests. A dim light flickers around their hands as they carefully heal them likely using up his mana as soon as it regenerates. Two priests are healing Marco, while only one is healing Ferdinand, so I go over to help him. A series of wounds are evident across his arms, legs, and torso, some of them deep, and some of them barely parting his skin. The thin carapace of dried blood encrusts most of his chest, his shirt barely more than a few strips of tattered cloth. Similarly, to the priest, I begin running my hand over the wounds and channeling wisps of holy magic to heal them. Naturally, I target the deeper wounds and those that are still bleeding first. While we may have been able to do this in minutes in our normal states, we have very little to work with right now. It takes us almost ten minutes to seal up and worrying wounds on his front, and we are just rolling him over to see if there are any wounds on his back when he lets out a rather high-pitched yelp. Jolting suddenly under my hands, his voice turns into a hiss of pain a moment later as his exertion aggravates some of his wounds, causing new drops of blood to start trickling down his abs. Calm down, Ferdinand. You're safe. It's over. I reassure him. How are you feeling? I... All right, I think it's just... uh... He trails off slightly. My eyebrows furrow in concern. Is this something we didn't notice? No, my sides are just really, really sensitive. I think someone poked me there. He groans. Oops, then may have been me. He twists his head, trying to see behind him, and after a moment he gives up. Is Marco okay? He used this, I forget what Alex called it. I'm not dead, thanks to you, yes? The voice flows across the floor and Marco apparently conscious and craning his neck on the ground to try and give a good view. A smile breaks out from Ferdinand's face. You have Alex to thank for that. I just held the door. Marco begins to smile too. What did I say? A simple task. Ferdinand's smile widens. Yes, simple. All it took was uh, all three of us almost dying practically child's play. Marco begins to chuckle, and Ferdinand does too. Then they begin to laugh heartily. 
I frown. At this rate they... Then both of them start coughing blood. That will happen. I sigh, beginning to heal Ferdinand again. When his breathing steadies again, Ferdinand starts to speak, although considerably muted than before. I am glad you're alive. As am I, he trails off. As one of the priests around him checks his pulse, he fainted again, but he should be fine. So, uh, what now? Ferdinand asks, now looking at me. Your wounds should be stable, so it's about time we have a rest. We shall construct stretchers to carry you up. He pushes himself into a sitting position, wincing. You can't get up. Your body is still in bad condition. I try to get him to lie back down, but he waves me off. Thanks, but I'm fine. I can walk, he insists, getting to his feet and swaying slightly. He walks over to his bag and rifles through it, taking out a spare shirt and slipping it on. Slinging the bag over his shoulders, his shoulders sag visibly beneath the weight, but he does not fall. Looking around the floor, he finds and picks up his sword, shakily putting it into its sheath. All right, let's go, he says, moving through the doorway and starting to climb the stairs, kicking bones and weapons out of the way as he goes. I shake my head. With no choice, I start following him up. If he falls now and there isn't anybody to catch him, he'll probably die. He staggers with every step, but he stubbornly continues on. Luck catches up to me a moment later. Good job back there, I tell him, keeping a watchful eye on Ferdinand's back. He shakes his head. I didn't beat the lich. I raise an eyebrow. No need to be humble, Luck. No, I really didn't. It was this. He reaches into his pouch and pulls out a, uh, fork. I threw this thing at the lich, and the next thing I know I'm holding his phylactery. That is, um, yes, it sounds crazy, I know, he says, looking just as confused as I feel. It has to be some sort of magic item, but I haven't been able to get any reaction from it since then. And who would make a fork into a magic item? Perhaps it's a single-use item. Where did you find it? I asked, nudging a stray breastplate in the side of my foot as I continued to climb. That's the thing. Ferdinand gave it to me just before all of this started. There aren't any wizards in the Empire, and those there are aren't anywhere close to the level that would be needed to create something that can do what I saw it do. Ferdinand, I pause. While he is an adventurer, they do find some odd things every now and again. Luck looks at Ferdinand, his face freezes. Is that... I think he's awakened his fighting spirit. Are you sure? I ask in shock. I look at Ferdinand's back, but I'm unable to see whatever Luck saw. Fairly. His legs have been shaking the whole way up, but he hasn't fallen once. Luck looks back down the staircase... We're halfway up. Anyone with those kinds of injuries without fighting spirit would collapse by now. And you are sure that he did not have this before, I ask. With the amount of sparring we did, he smiles. Pretty sure. I might not have it myself, but I've fought against some people who do. Strange. I wonder what caused it. I amused, and then we continue onwards in silence. When we reach the top, I suck in a breath involuntarily. The ground is littered with bones, weapons, and armor. Sad remnants of the dead army. 
Kicking some bones aside, Ferdinand clears a small space and sits down. Clearing a space ourselves, we sit down in front of him. Ferdinand, did you awaken fighting spirit during the battle? Fighting spirit, Ferdinand says, aren't you? I don't know. Um, It all became a blur at some point. Let me check my status. His eyes focus on some point in the air. They get wider and wider and wider. Okay, okay, he says, foolish grin spreading across his face. Yes, yes I did, he says finally, along with three levels and a title and three skills. My eyebrows raise in surprise. Congratulations! You must have killed heaps of skeletons to get that much experience. Luck makes a face as if he was remembering something. He takes out the fork again and hands it to Ferdinand. Here you go. You're going to help me out in quite a bit in a pinch. What is it, by the way? Ferdinand's face quickly turns guarded. Then he pauses and it slackens slightly. Oh, he mutters in surprise. Oh, he groans and then he starts to get up again. Come on, he beckons to us. I'll tell you about it, but I'd rather the others not hear. Luck and I look at each other, shrug and get ourselves up. I quickly inform the priests that we'll be elsewhere for a short while, and we then follow Ferdinand as he traipses across the field of bones. He leads us a bit off into the distance, away from the hillock, now completely blocked from the view of the camp. Sorry for all the secrecy, he groans, sitting down on the grass again. He'd rather as few people knew about him as possible. He? I ask. Who is he talking about? Yeah, he. Fine, fine, he holds up the fork in his palm in his hand and offering it to us. I'm not quite sure what he wants us to do. Oh, the fork in his hand shifts in shape, morphing into a tiny metallic figure, which waves at us. It floats off Ferdinand's hand and just hovers in the air. Ferdinand retracts his hand and smiles. You know, I never thought that I would be on the other end of this conversation. Lily, luck, meet Gerald. He already knows you. The little metal man reaches and scratches his head abashedly. What is he? Some sort of uh, intelligent golem? I asked, astounded. No, his previous form is the real one. Ferdinand shakes his head. This is the first time I've seen him like this, actually. He tells me his race is called Living Fork, and that he's only one of his kind. Living Fork? Lux says in disbelief. I know, right? Ferdinand says, throwing his hands in the air. That was my exact reaction, but as crazy as it sounds, it's true. Can he talk? I asked. I can indeed, hello! A voice sounds in my mind, startling me. He can't... Ferdinand starts, but I interrupt him. There's a voice in my head. Yes, that'll be him. He's psychic amongst... The other things, Ferdinand reassures me. Hello? I think hesitantly. Hello, Lily. I'm Gerald. Ferdinand already said it, but I'm sorry about this bother. I have a bit of a paranoia left over from the time when I wasn't quite as capable as I am now. That's all right, I reply automatically. A living fork. Yes, well, um, it was quite a shock at first, but I've gotten used to it. It's not so bad, as long as I have someone to chat to every now and again. Not being able to sleep, I have a bit too much time on my hands. 
metaphorically speaking. He replies lightly, Something occurs to me, so I ask him about it. You don't have eyes or ears or uh, anything. How do you see or hear? Oh, I can't hear anything. I just lip-read to figure out what people are saying. As for sight, I have manner's sight. Useful little skill, that is. Let's me see a fair distance underground, too. That's how Ferdinand was able to direct you to the entrance and the lich, of course, Gerald remarks. I told him. That explains how he always found the cats so quickly. I think that's all the questions I have, I say. Excellent. My sigh is dipping below half. Do you think the two of you can keep my secret from the others? He asks. I think for a moment. It should not be a problem. Great. Well, goodbye, he says, and then his voice vanishes entirely. Pulling my attention back to the scene before me, I find Ferdinand and Luck chatting, with Luck still wearing an expression of confusion and disbelief. Shortly after, we return to the secret entrance where everyone is sitting or lying on the grass in a small area cleared of bones and weapons. One of the priests is just returning from where our horses were tethered. Taking off my armor, I lay down in the grass and take a deep breath, smelling the flowers. If we had fought out here, things would have been very different. Unfortunately, they rarely let us have that advantage, but none of us died, and what injuries we do have are not permanent. Perhaps this is the best outcome, even if it was more difficult than it could have been. We had just rest for a while, letting our reserves of stamina and mana slowly creep towards full again. After approximately twenty minutes, we have a drink and a bite to eat, before we head back down into the bowels of the lich's lair. Our job now will be to strip the place of anything useful, destroy anything, and lean leave. All right, everyone, it is not yet collapsed, so it is unlikely that it ever will. Spread out and map the underground and bring anything useful or valuable back to the surface. If you find anything that looks dangerous, call me or luck, I say to the others. Understood? Understood. They reply and descend the stairs, apart from Marco, who is still in too delicate a condition to be doing much. I spend the next few hours cataloging the various items that are brought up. Most of them are mundane and useful items. Low-grade mana crystals, for instance, which we find in abundance. But there are the occasional pieces of interest. Some of these, upon closer inspection, conceal nefarious enchantments beneath seemingly beneficial ones, a ring that replenishes mana at the expense of health, for example. But a scarce few are genuine articles. You'll want to see this one. I didn't read much, but it looks important. One of the priests hands me a few pages bound with string. Raising an eyebrow, I look at the first page and start to read. If you are reading this, then you have recently killed me. The first line reads, Strange, he predicted his death and wrote a note to his killers. In any other circumstance, your hands would now be rotting and you would slowly die as a curse that I would have infused into these pages took effect. I look at my hands, but nothing unusual happens. Fortunately for you, there just so happens to be somebody in the world that I hate more than you. Some ten months ago, I was visiting a one of the nearby cities to stock up on supplies. Most food stops do not fare well around death energy, as you no doubt know. 
I was somewhat less powerful then than I am now, so when the guards set upon me in a surprise attack, I, away from my ideal battlefield and bereft of time to summon my assistance, was summarily captured. Of course, their prisons were entirely devoid of facilities required to keep me imprisoned, so my only concern at the time was if they were going to immediately execute me. Instead, they brought me before him. He did something to me, some sort of psychic ability, I believe. Since then, I have conducted much research on psychic abilities, but without much success. Documents on them are annoyingly rare. Still, through observation and personal experience, I have been able to discern a few facts of this ability. Firstly, he must be able to see whoever he uses his power on. Secondly, whoever he uses his power upon cannot disobey his orders. However, thirdly, if he does not word his orders carefully, the controlled individual can exploit loopholes. I've been very careful to hide this last fact, as I do not believe he knows of it himself. For instance, he ordered me not to communicate any details regarding him to other unless ordered otherwise. These notes were never given to anyone, but I am now dead, and here it lies in your hands. Perhaps you think to yourself that this matter does not concern you, Paladin. But it does. Oh, it does. You see, I am not the only person he has commanded using his ability. There are others. Amongst them are a monster and a demon. Interested now? Oh, holy night of the gods. Still, you did kill me. I won't make this easy for you. I wrote a diary from the day that I was controlled up to about a month and a half ago, detailing his identity, the identity of any others he controls that I know of, and everything that I observed of their capabilities. That diary is currently buried beneath the center of the hedge out in front of the old mansion. The location is marked on the attached map, but it may not be that simple. Inside the mansion is one of the peoples he controls, and he is able to detect when anyone comes within a certain range of the mansion, whether by his own skills or by magic item, I am not sure. The hedge is most definitely within that area. He will most definitely try to kill you. Good luck. Sigh deeply, I flip over the map. My work never ends. The marked location is between Lionsport and Anstown, Back across the empire it is, then. I can only pray that the churches will let the paladins and priests follow me a while longer. Ferdinand appears from the staircase and he walks over to me. I finished exploring one branch. Here's the map that I drew of it. Although it didn't turn out all that well, I've never done anything like this before. He says, handing me a sheet of paper with lines and crosses over the surface. Don't worry about it, I reply distractedly. What's that? he asks. A note by the lich claiming that he was under control of someone and that a demon is also under control. Apparently, all the details about them are in a diary that he hid near an old mansion. But there is also someone guarding it. I sigh. At least he left a map. He frowns. That sounds awfully familiar. Um, Can I see the map? I hand it to him, and after a moment he nods. Yep, I've been there before. So this is false. There was nobody there, I ask. 
He shakes his head. No, there was someone there, all right. He tried to kill me. I barely managed to get away, even with a friend helping me. He must be referring to Gerald, as I haven't seen that Joe fellow do anything helpful. It should be true, then, I nod. Probably, he says, and then pauses. His eyes light up as if he made a great idea, but he doesn't say anything. What are you? I began to say, but I get interrupted by Gerald talking into my head again. Hello, Ian, he says. So, um, you're looking for a diary of some sort, hidden in that mansion somewhere. Yes. Why? I respond. He ignores my question and asks his own. Any clue to its exact location? A note says beneath the hedge, I start. Yep, it's there, all right. Book in a little box, only a few centimeters below the surface. You're welcome. See ya. Having said that, he breaks the connection. He can see that far, I ask in amazement. No, but he does have perfect memory, Ferdinand smiles. So, it was there when we were there. Apparently so, I nod in affirmation. I suppose you'll be wanting me to tell you what I know about the person guarding the mansion, he asks. Yeah, I take another look at his face to notice the way he's holding himself. Slack-faced, frequently blinking, and I remember the way he was walking looked as if he was carrying a boulder. He must be deeply exhausted. You can do that later. Go get some rest. He doesn't complain. Okay. He promptly takes out a blanket, lies down, and falls asleep. One of the priests walks up the stairs and notices him. Why does he get to sleep? I want to sleep, but you don't see me dragging my feet, he complains. He sleeps, for he fought an endless tide of skeletons by himself and is now tired to his bones, chastises Marco from where he was sitting. The beast pauses. Uh, makes sense, uh, he shrugs, moving off again. A bit later, I gather everyone around. All right, everyone, we did a good job down there today. We defeated the lich and made sure that nothing was going to hurt anyone else ever again. I began drawing out some proud smiles. But there is some bad news. The smiles waver. We've chanced upon the evidence of a demon activity in the Empire. Browns replace smiles, and I hear a few gasps of shock. And we need to go to a place near Lionsport where there may be somebody who will try to kill us. A few more of them grimace. Luckily, I continue brightly, we have someone who just so happens to have fought this person before. Ferdinand, please tell us everything that you know about this person. All right, he steps forward, and everyone focuses their gaze on him. End of chapter. Chapter 27. Contemplation. Gerald P.O.V. And so, Ferdinand explained everything he knew about the doppelganger, apart from the monster of how he was evolved in severing the doppelganger's arm. That would draw unwanted questions, and all the paladins were amazed in the depth of his information. Yada, 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 you get the drift. Still, there were some interesting things that we got out of the conversation. Turns out the red armor stuff he used is likely to be some form of killing intent something which apparently only mass murderers and the like can use. It generally has an intimidating effect on opponents, but it seems that this guy can do quite a bit more with it than that. Anyway, we're on the road again, and, as always, I have quite a bit of time to think. 
Usually, I'd be occupying it with meditation and whatever magic skills that I can get away with, but I figure just having a think might be a good thing to do right now. I've been forking through my memories for a bit, trying to see if I've already come across the mastermind guy without noticing it, or anyone connected to him. Unfortunately, I barely know a thing about him or her, so it's been a fruitless exercise. With that done, let's dabble with a bit of philosophy. Am I a human? In a way, I feel like I should be. I was a human for some 22 years of my first life. But now, I'm a fork. But have I changed? I suppose the answer to that question is whether I'm still human. I have determined what a human is. There is the obvious bipedal, opposable thumbs, considerable intellect and creativity in comparison to most other species on Earth. But if you are some biology professor or someone like that, they'll tell you that humans are only have a few percent difference in DNA to that of the similar animals. And the gap isn't as huge even with the similar animals. Then are humans defined by those few percent? Perhaps, but what if I'd look at it like a different perspective? Imagine if you have a human and a pig, and through some miracle of technology, you swap their consciousnesses, or souls, or whatever. Now the human body has the same DNA and the mind of a pig. Is it still human? No, not really. What about a pig, then? It has a human mind. Is it still human? Maybe. I'm certainly more human than the pig in the human body, but without the vocal cords of a human, it wouldn't be able to communicate effectively. Without opposable thumbs, it wouldn't be able to use tools or create, which are all defining features of human beings. So it isn't quite a human, then, but it is more human than a pig in a human body. Then the mind is a more significant factor than the body in determining whether something is human. What if you had something else, say, an elf, that has the same morals, emotions, thoughts, and beliefs that a human would have? Would they, in a way, be human? Perhaps. Perhaps it could be said that under the umbrella of humanity there are countless beings that aren't quite the same. They aren't quite different. Unique and similar somehow. But that just brings me around to my original question. Am I still human? Maybe not, but that doesn't mean that I should throw away my humanity either. I grew up learning certain ideals, getting is bad, stealing, forcing your will on others, discrimination are bad, and many more. I'd sort of thought that I could just change this and kill or be killed, no holds barred type of mindset, but flipping the switch upon further inspection, I don't want to. It's who I am, I can't just throw it away. But in this world, even if I don't want to, some compromises will have to be made. I didn't want to kill, but I have ready. Monsters, perhaps, but all the same. Still, it all depends on what I want to do. What do I want to do? Find a way to imitate human senses, for one. I figure my best bet for that is magic or psychic abilities. And magic is the more common of the two and therefore the easiest to learn. After I've learnt the magic, well, I'm not so sure. I suppose... I suppose I want control over myself, over my own life. 
I don't want whatever life I build in the future to be upset by the whims of some more powerful being. But then, how do I determine how much power is enough? Level 50, that's higher than the doppelganger. But then again, the spider matriarch was level 83. And we just came across it at random. What's considered powerful in this world? Is 100 the limit? Or is there even higher? 200? A thousand? I suppose I can't know unless I meet someone at that limit. Leveling up means killing. Monsters don't bother me. But what if I come across bandits or the like? Not all of them will be as friendly as that last lot, and I could just run away. But then, they would still be doing the same to others. I'm not about to let others fall into misfortune because of me. If I were to take them to the nearest city, turn them over to the guards, let me just check something. The penalty for banditry in the Empire is death. The only difference then would be the hand that holds the executioner's blade. What would be the point? Not having a blood on my hands. No, the one who calls their death should be me, even if another wields the blade. I am not the kind of guy who would take the relief from a single degree of separation. Then, if a situation like that arises, I will have to kill them. That could be avoided by not traveling. But again, I don't want to restrict others, and I don't want to be restricted by others. I don't think it's possible to become strong in this world without getting blood on your hands. It just depends whose blood it is. The blood of innocence, or the blood of the guilty. Then, who decides guilt? Who decides if a person deserves to live or die? I'm certainly not the type of person to judge. Hmm, I think I have a solution. It's crude, but I think it's effective. An eye for an eye. That is, I think that what I do to others in the future should not be greater than what that person has done to others, or what they are going to do. If they haven't killed someone innocent and aren't going to, I probably shouldn't kill them. Of course, there'll always be exceptions, serial rapists or thieves who steal from the poor in full knowledge that the money that they take is everything that they have. In those cases, would it be better to hand them over to the authorities? No... There's no guarantee that the legal system won't be corrupt, or that they'll manage to escape, or that the laws are shaped in such a way that the crimes don't warrant a death sentence or life sentence. What then? They could be back on the streets eventually. And then we're back to where we started. And are there really ways to keep high-level thieves, for instance, in prison? Or wizards? I doubt it. Laws are all well and good, but without a suitably strong and uncorrupted system supporting them, they're useless. It was all so easy back on Earth, where strict vetting, training, and good equipment gave law enforcers more power to most criminals could possibly have, and all sorts of methods and laws in place to make sure the crimes could be prevented efficiently. Ugh. That was way more thinking than I should be at before conclusion as it's simple as it was. Now my mind is stuck in this weird contemplation mode. Let's go and chat to Ferdinand. I start up a telepathic link with him. Hey Ferdinand, how it's going? I'm fine, Ferdinand replies tidily. You don't sound fine, I remarked. Sounds like another sleep would do you good. He yawns. I'll be fine, nothing I can't overcome. 
Okay, but make sure you get some good sleep tonight. Don't think that I didn't know how much you overexerted yourself back there. You might be able to push yourself through the pain and exhaustion, but that doesn't always mean that you should. Humans can feel pain for a reason, I warn him, slightly concerned. But all those stories tell of heroes pushing through the pain, overcoming the limits and growing stronger and stronger, argues Ferdinand. And right now, I need to be stronger. Oh boy, that's why the cold stories, they aren't real, I sigh. As far as I know, you can push through the pain to some degree, but you always have to be careful not to go too far. If you keep pushing and your body has nothing left to give, it'll break apart. Muscles would tear, tendons would break. Sometimes the damage is permanent, I explained, remembering all the times I've heard athletes tearing something and then being unable to continue competing. I see Ferdinand's brows furrow and his hands clench. But I need to get stronger, he says, frustrated. I know, I reassure him, but this isn't the way to do it. How, then, Ferdinand asks. I don't know, I say honestly. Key would probably help, but I have no idea how you'd go about getting that. You can't exactly use my method, after all. Apart from that, the best thing would probably be just to improve on what you have. Lux training is working, right? It is. I just wish it would work a bit faster, he sighs again. Rome wasn't built in a... Wait, never mind. These things take time. But rather than working yourself into an early grave, you should be asking around, trying to find out more about key and fighting spirit stuff that you recently got. That sounds like it could be useful. Maybe, he muses thoughtfully. After that, we chat some more about pleasant topics, the weather, passing scenery. Currently, we're en route back to the necromancer's lair in the nearest city. Everyone else is mostly traveling in silence, likely remunerating on what has happened and what we are going to do next. Hey, Gerald, Ferdinand starts tentatively. Do you know much about women? I don't know if any man can honestly claim to understand women, I half-jokingly say. Why? I think I'm in love and I don't know what to do, he says quietly. Huh. Lily, I ask, just to be sure. How did you... Wait, of course you noticed how often I look at her, he realizes. Yep, I say. Is it just me, or are you getting smarter? I must be rubbing off on you. Obviously, I am a good influence. For some reason, Ferdinand isn't so sure. I don't know if that's a good thing, but what do I do? Well, I must admit that I was a bit of a loner in my past life, and I have zero experience in this. But, I continue at this crestfallen expression, it was the right idea to ask me for help. At least now that I know I can help you stop from making potentially disastrous emotionally infueled snap decisions. What is your current plan? Well, he starts uncertainly. I had sort of wondered if I could somehow impress her with my strength, but she's much stronger than me, so... Nope, won't work even if you were, I state. As far as I know, every woman has slightly different things that they wanted a man, and if Lily was interested in strong men, she'd be paying more attention to luck, right? Besides, I think that it's likely less for strong women to be interested in strong men. After all, they don't need anyone to protect them if something happens. 
That makes sense. So then what do I do? He asks again. I'm not really sure. Still, I can think of a few things that you can do that can't hurt. Talk to her, get to know her, and tell her about yourself. Uh, but try and be um, natural about it. Hey, I know a good start. Ask her to tell you more about the her god. She's the paladin. I bet you she'll be thrilled to talk to you about that, I say in a rare stroke of genius. He sounds quite excited when he replies, That sounds great. I'll go do that. Not now, later, when you're not on a horseback and surrounded by a bunch of other guys with nothing better to do than listen in on your conversation. I interrupt him. Oh, right. That makes sense. He trails off in disappointment. Sheesh. How does this complicate things? Not only do we have a doppelganger to fight, there's apparently some mastermind controlling him who is somehow involved in the demons as well. And now Ferdinand has a crush on someone. This is starting to sound like a pot from some second-rate novel. Well, forget that. It's not like I have some special ability after reincarnating into a foreign world. Wait a minute. Your money or your life a bandit screams as he sprints down the side of the hill towards us, closely followed by a bunch of his bandit buddies. Oh, I just assumed those guys were going to be smart and not attack us, like all the other bandits we've passed by so far. Apparently not. A very short period of time later, and a hapless bandits are tied in a line behind us, obediently jogging to keep up with us. Plan is to turn them over to the guards in the next city. I didn't really think that what I'd do with the weak ones, did I? And supposedly they'll be fine just to turn over to the local law as long as their prisons are strong enough to hold them, and their laws will give them a death or life sentence. Well, I'll still have to do a cursory check over the place to make sure that they don't have connections in high places, or whatever. What was I talking about before? Right, demons. So, I've gotten through my memories to see if I can find anything on demons. Surprisingly, there isn't much of substance. They almost seem like a boogeyman, like a story mothers tell to the kids to get them to behave. Brush your teeth, little Timmy, they'll say. Old demons will come out and eat your soul. Whoa, that's hardcore. Not quite like that. But anywho, demons certainly aren't common problem. I've only been able to find a few things. Demons are evil, but who knows? That could just be racism talking. They're from hell, which I hear is nice this time of year, and they have two hearts. Information, courtesy of the late Richard. So, pretty much nothing of substance. I just love going in blind. By the time we get to the city, night has fallen. After turning in at row, exhausted bandits, reporting the events to the local church, arranging accommodation and having a quick meal... All the paladins and priests quickly go into their own rooms, leaving a crestfallen Ferdinand without an opportunity to talk to Lily. Without any other choice, he too heads to bed, leaving me the only one awake as per usual. Safe from prying eyes in the confines of Ferdinand's room, I start my usual training, for manipulation self and telekinesis. Unlike usual, after exhausting my reserves of sigh and manner, I start paying attentions to the happenings of the city. 
Even at night, the city is active with patrolling guards, people drinking at the bars, the occasional figure hurriedly moving along the streets, and even the odd thief moving stealthily through the rooftops and into homes. I figure the bar is the most likely place to hear any rumors, especially since there aren't any people talking in the other parts of the city. For the next few hours, I sit there and lip-read their conversations, only going back to my training when the last few drunkards amble home happily. Unfortunately, I don't catch anything relevant to our current situation, but the information is interesting nonetheless. Everyone is still concerned about the lich. News of his death hasn't spread yet. Actually, rather than saying that people are concerned about the lich, they're more concerned about the effect his actions might have on the price of food. There seems to be a common assumption that he only targeted villages because he wasn't strong enough to defeat the defenses of a city. Eh, with what we saw, he probably could have taken down a city or two if he didn't get attacked by a group of elites like us. Anyway, people are concerned that food will grow more expensive. Uh, of course it will. I don't know exactly how many villages were destroyed, but I think it was most of them, rather than being concerned with the cost of food. You should be more concerned if there'll be any food at all. With that many of the higher-ups being corrupt and supply of food dropping considerably within a short period of time, I'm betting the empire is going to collapse soon. Now, I may not be an expert in history and city management, but I'm pretty sure the solution to the equation... Greedy officials plus severe lack of food is riots, rebellion, famine, disease, and other bad things. Other than that, there was a bit of talk about the new prince. Not much is known about him, apparently, since he doesn't seem to make public appearances. Some people think he's sick, others think he's not fit to rule. One weird guy who sat in the corner of the tavern seemed to be convinced that the prince doesn't exist, and that it's some sort of political plot. Seems you get conspiracy theorists whichever world you're in. Well, that was pretty much a waste of time. Back to training. Once I notice people getting up, I rouse Ferdinand. He gets his gear together and heads down to the first floor of the inn. The innkeeper and a couple of his helpers are already up, and Ferdinand orders some food. Within a few minutes, Liddy has come down as well, and luck shortly after. With all of them soon finishing their food and armed with the knowledge that most of the other priests and paladins don't wake up early, I prod Ferdinand along. Hey, this is a good time. Go talk to her. Okay, wait. As in now, now, he asks hesitantly. Yes, now, I say in exasperation. Come on, it's not like I'm asking you to kiss the girl. Just go and chat with her for a bit. Try asking about her god. It's just a chat. And if she doesn't want to talk about him? He questions nervously. Sighing, I say, she will. But if you can't think of anything else, you can be practical and find out some more information about fighting spirit or ghee or demons. But that's probably not a pleasant topic. Now get out of here before I force you to with telekinesis, I shout. One of the many advantages of telepathy is that nobody else can hear you shouting, so I can do it in a public place without so much as a pointed glance be directed our way. Ferdinand gets up somewhat abruptly and walks over to Lily. 
sitting down opposite her and delivering a first line. He's a bit nervous initially, but after that he hits the ground running and manages not to embarrass himself horribly. I carefully keep track of the conversation, just in case he stalls and needs me to supply a line. The heck is this backseat dating? But he performs admirably in carrying a normal conversation. Whew, still gotta learn to walk before you can run. Well, nothing so far has indicated the people of her religion have to stay chaste or anything like that, so that's a good sign. Ugh, why the heck am I thinking about this anyway? I think I'll just stick to giving advice. Once everyone is up, fed and able, they all go to the local church and explain their own perspective of the events, as well as depositing all the loot. With a few notable exceptions, what used to be a lich's phylactery is now a powerless lump of metal, but it apparently still holds potential to be used to gain for some purpose. Because of that, it has been decided that it will be melted down and the metal will be used for something else. But there aren't any blacksmiths capable of working with mithril in the city, so for now it remains in Gluck's capable hands. The lich's death note is being held onto for obvious reasons, leaving the final object, the lich's necronomicon. In and of itself, the necronomicon isn't dangerous. What could be dangerous is if it gets into the wrong hands, and the knowledge within it is used by another necromancer. Or anyone, really. But at the same time, by studying the necronomicon and understanding the methods and magic involved, the church will be able to find and exploit potential weaknesses. Still, the danger is present, and the local church has said that it doesn't have the strength to fend off the trouble that it could potentially attract. For now, it lies within Lily's hands. End of chapter Chapter 28 A Lone Harpoon in an Empty Battlefield Gerald P.O.B. As we travel through the old mansion, I prompt Ferdinand to go and chat with Lily on a few occasions. Eventually, he becomes fairly comfortable initiating and keeping a casual conversation, which is nice. In regards to Lily herself, she seems to be friendly enough with him, but nothing on the level that one might consider romantic interaction. Well, these things take time, probably. Putting aside Ferdinand's love life, Every time we go into a new city, it's another wave of cheers and celebrations. Ugh, another one of these times I'm glad to be a fork. Celebrations and parties, count me out. Thank you very much, way too much noise, too many people, and there's always someone who does something so stupid that you're embarrassed to be in the same species. Although, I'm not anymore. Ferdinand isn't getting much of the attention behind all the paladins in their fancy armor and the beasts of their robes, but he is somewhat overwhelmed each time with just that, shrinking down into the saddle and staring straight forwards. He said to me a few days ago, You were right, this level of praise is just, um, scary. Staying unknown sounds good to me now. Have you learned how to make other people invisible yet? Ah, that guy... I'm not a genius, you know. I just have a bit of creativity and diligence. Nothing too special. On the topic of praise, mostly the holy folk seem to be humble. I must say, though, that Luck has a bit of a weird streak in this area. Apparently, he loves to boast about other people. 
I've seen him at a pub once or twice, and all he'll do is talk about what happened. Except he downplays everything he did, and exaggerates what everyone else did. So yeah, that's a thing. After about a week of traveling, I see the grass give way to the bare earth and a familiarly dilapidated mansion. Sliding in division, the doppelganger sits inside, eating dinner. He's in there, I contact Lily directly. She nods slightly. Hello again, this time I brought friends. I sit at my desk, eyes panning across the room without looking for anything in particular. They eventually settle on a painting, and I stare at it for a while without actually seeing anything. Am I better or worse off as I am now compared to before? I cannot tell. I am probably going to die. Even I can tell that much. I am not that stupid. But at least... And at least I go to experience life at the top for a little while. I look around again, taking in the lavish furniture, decadent ornaments, and outrageously expensive artwork. Back home, it was a living nightmare. They all scorned me, ridiculed me, hurled insults and abuse. Life was torturous and getting through every day. Just when I thought of taking that final step, I found myself here. This place, this world, I cannot understand it. Demons and gods, monsters and magic levels and stats. Why is it so different? Well, at least it told me about the psychic powers. They were wrong. They were all wrong. And right as well, I suppose. Which is better, here or there? Slow torture or a brief paradise? This feels better, but then, knowing that I'll be gone soon enough is a kind of torture in and of itself. I hear a knocking at the door, and I turn to look. Who is it? I call out. It's me, your highness, the voice replies. I sigh, and I move to unlock the door. It's him. Demon, they call him. I turn the handle and pull it open. There he is, smiling ingratiatingly. When I first met him, some eight months ago, I liked that smile. Your highness, he bows deeply. Everything is going as you planned. Within weeks, the empire will be under your sole control. For the first few months, I actually believed this facade. This cunning act was authentic. Others were quick to tell me of the treacherous, evil ways of demons, but I was loath to condemn anyone merely by their race. Yes, only a matter of time, I say calmly. Did you come here only to sing my praises, or is this something that requires my attention? He fed me lies and fueled my ambitions, whispering plans into my ears. It was only when he applauded my intelligence that I caught on. I had heard similar words uttered enough times that I recognized the sarcasm in his words, regardless of how deeply he hid it. His expression doesn't shift in the slightest as he slightly bows his head and says, I hear Count Brooke was very vocal about his displeasure in your appointment at the ball yesterday. I sound sincerely angry at this, but like everything else he does, I can tell that it's fake. I school my expression into a mask of anger. Oh, then he could be disposed of like the rest. I have been acting my whole life out of necessity rather than choice. If he wants to deceive me, then in turn I shall deceive him without mercy. He may have already manipulated me to digging my own grave, but I'll not let him do as he pleases. Unfortunately, I can't tell him to kill himself. My power does not allow it. 
nor can I tell him to do something that he aware would result in his death, such as sending him into a church. I recently discovered that most of all the native religions hate demons. Without knowing exactly what he's planning, all I can do is work in secret against him and limit his movements as much as I can. We smile at each other, two liars, each secretly out to kill the other. Ferdinand POV You again! The doppelganger says darkly, carefully eyeing the group. His gaze settles on Lily, and like, and his eyes narrow. Paladins are vitus, huh? My favorite type of people to kill. Oh, and why is that? Lily asks, a hint of frost in her voice. The doppelganger frowns. Because you bastards don't seem to get it. We monsters don't want to be your friends. He finishes through gritted teeth. Lux's eyes narrow as he starts moving forward to attack the doppelganger. But Lily stops him. Not yet. What better way to learn about monsters than from their own mouth? She says to him before turning back to the doppelganger. Why wouldn't you want to be friends? Everyone needs friends. Ha! <laughs> The doppelganger barks. Don't compare us with yourselves. Monsters don't have friends. We don't want friends. There is only the weak and the strong. Don't delude yourself into thinking that you are friends with a monster. They do not love you. They fear you, he spits. Hmm. Nuddy shakes her head. It's a shame you think so. Call of the wild. The last words she intones, a burst of holy magic radiates outwards. To my surprise, the doppelganger just watches and smiles as it travels towards him. When it reaches him, his smile only spreads as it bounces harmlessly off. I see you don't recognize the spell, Lily says, raising her sword and a shield. Oh no, the doppelganger denies, grinning as he twirls his spear once in his hand. I do. For a moment, neither of them move. The rest of us look at each other, unsure if we should be waiting or attacking, and I feel a low rumbling in the ground below me. I look around in confusion. The doppelganger's smile is only growing, and Lindy is only smiling slightly. Although she is now also wary of whatever the doppelganger seems to have up his sleeve. Soon I can hear as well as feel the rumbling, and I finally catch sight of the dust cloud off to the east, seemingly growing in size or coming towards us. Uh, stampede? Gerald says in panic. Is this supposed to happen? I told you. They fear you. They fear me more, the doppelganger says, exploding red mist getting intent. The cloud of dust splits down the middle, and each half veering off to either side to avoid the doppelganger, but still towards us. At this point, they're finally close enough for me to see what they are. A herd of bronze-horned bulls, the characteristic horns glinting in the light as they charge. They break out in a sweat. Um, that's not supposed to happen, I ask fearfully. Lily looks ahead with a frown. No. The red mist suddenly caves inwards, revealing a familiar red-armored figure wielding a blood spear. He's put on the armor, I warned Gerald, since he can't see it. Time for killing says the doppelganger, and darts forward, engaging him in a melee as Lily again glows with holy magic, again sending out a burst of energy which causes the stampede to veer off even further and away from the battle. 
The doppelganger unleashes a burst of what I recognize as key, knocking Luck's shield arm to one side. At the same time, he sweeps his spear towards Luck. Luck is able to jump backwards just in time, but he isn't able to completely escape the damage. As Meedy resumes, I spot a small rent in his armor and a touch of red through it. Not a moment later, a beer of light shines upon Luck, and his movements get slightly faster. The doppelganger's head whips towards the priests, and he sends a burst of key towards Luck. It doesn't damage him, but it knocks him back far enough that the doppelganger is able to disengage and sprint towards the priest. I cry out in shock and start to step towards them, but before I can even make it halfway there, the doppelganger is thrusting his spear towards them, and a glowing barrier stops it. Your spear will not reach them while I'm still alive, states Marco, a steely glint in his eyes. Yes, this way is closed to you. The doppelganger curses and swipes again at the shield without success before turning around to block Luck's strike. Carefully approaching with the shields raised, the other paladins, Aiden and Ressa, I think are their names, move to box in the doppelganger. Surely I should be doing something, but there's not really any space around him. I think that I'm just going to get in the way. Wait, I have a battle cry skill. I try to activate it, but I can't somehow feel it won't work. Why? Then it hits me. I have to have a fighting spirit of over thirty. What am I at now? Three? Come on! Didn't you want to avenge Richard's death? Fight! Fighting spirit plus five. That's not enough. Come on! Fight! Fight! Fighting spirit plus fifteen. More! This isn't all that I can do. Fighting spirit plus ten. Battle cry! I shout, and the doppelganger doesn't even flinch. Right. Of course it won't work. He's too strong for me to affect him. Crestfallen, I watched as the paladin slowly box in the doppelganger, with luck, Aiden and Risa attacking. He isn't able to defend himself. Unfortunately, Aiden and Risa attacks aren't powerful enough to pierce his armor, so the doppelganger is able to focus solely on defending against Luck's attacks. However, the attacks are still making it more difficult for him to move, and Luck thrusts a piercing hole after a hole into the doppelganger's armor. But then there doesn't have any holes, I rub my eyes. Oh, the armor's repairing itself as it gets damaged. I hope that this wounds are below the armor aren't getting healed. I can't see how that would be. Yelling out in anger, the doppelganger releases a burst of key, sending a fair amount of dirt flying as well as pushing back all three paladins, sending ripples across the surface of the barrier. Taking that opportunity, the doppelganger escapes the encirclement and charges straight at me. I take two steps back and ready my sword, but before the doppelganger can reach close to me, he intercepted by Lily. I hear an odd screeching sound as his spear slashes across her shield, but she stops his advance. The doppelganger sends a series of quick thrusts at Lily with such speed that it looks to me like there are multiple spears. Lily defends against them, but is forced to take a successive steps back as she does so. Then Luck rejoins the fight and Aiden and Risa not far behind. The doppelganger looks even more pressured than before. Every wound he makes to inflict is healed within moments by the priests, while his own just keep accumulating underneath the armor. Soon I see actual blood seeping out of the armor, splattering onto the ground with every movement that he makes. 
He tries to keep lost again, but even less success than last time. As the battle goes on, the doppelganger's movement gets slower and less varied, while the paladins keep attacking with the same ardor as they had at the beginning. Finally, the doppelganger collapses to the ground, his armor melting off of his body. Not willing to take any chances, Luck plunges his sword into the doppelganger's body. The death, the doppelganger's face and body returns to its original appearance. Its skin changes to a waxy white, the nose flattens to a little more than a thin pair of holes, and its whole body shrinks in height. Doppelgangers look unnatural. Lily, point of view. A bit to your left, a tad forwards, there, Gerald says in my mind, guiding me to the location with a buried diary. Scooping out the dirt with my hands, it only takes a few handfuls of earth before I feel my fingers scrape against something harder. I dig around it, and within half a minute I have the box out and open. I take off my gauntlets, wiping the dirt from them with the cloth, then temporarily tucking them under my arm as I look at the book, activating my magic detection skill as far as I can tell. There isn't any magic in or around it, so I deactivate my detection skill and take out the book, flipping it open to the first page. I briefly skim through the first page. It looks like it contains information we need so I tell the others to search the mansion while I sit down and read through it. As I leaf through the page after page, the situation becomes clearer, and my eyebrows become more furrowed. It answers several lingering questions that I had had. The peculiar behavior of the skeletons in the fields, for example, was because the then necromancer had been ordered to take skeletons to work in the fields. Obviously, the necromancer knew full well that it was impossible for the dead to cultivate anything living, so he did the absolute minimum he could while still obeying orders. One skeleton, per field, repeatedly striking the ground with hose. Apparently, the one controlling them knows nothing about the undead aside from their ceaseless stamina, and had hoped to replace farmers with undead, a venture doomed to fail with his conception. As for their controller himself, his current identity is the crown prince of the empire. The diary states that he did this through his use of psychic powers, controlling some of the highest powers in the Empire, including the Emperor himself. In other words, the Empire is effectively under the control of this man, who is undoubtedly being influenced by the demon under his control. It's in their nature. Unfortunately, the diary does not elucidate the origin of said prince, nor the demon's. According to the diary, although they are all effectively the prince's slaves, they operate separately and have minimal contact with each other. Or perhaps had is the better word. I steadily read through the whole thing. There is a little information that seems useful to us currently, apart from his appearance and the current location. Snapping the book shut, I stow it away and announce our destination, the Empire's capital city. Where was that again? Ferdinand POV. Earlier, I glance through yet another empty room, half wondering if the doppelganger stayed in all the rooms are like this. Hey, the others have found everything of worth, Gerald said, oddly taciturn. Okay, I start to head to the front again. There's something you'll probably want to see, says Gerald, proceeding to direct me away from the group to the east. Where are we going? I ask as he ignores me. I soon notice that something is sticking out of the ground in the direction that I'm walking. What's that? 
You know as well as I do, Gerald says gravely. And I do. I walk up to it and I reach out, and suddenly everything seems so real. This is where it started, and now it's ended. I sit down in front of the lone harpoon in the empty battlefield. It's stained with blood and soot, but it still stands. It's over, Richard, I say. The one who killed you is dead. I let out a deep breath and I smile wryly. I just wish I could have done it myself. Does it really matter? Gerald asked quietly. Dead? Is dead. If all this didn't happen, who knows when we might have been strong enough to beat him? And by then, who knows where he might have been? Maybe you're right. I feel a tear slide down my nose and drip down to the ground as I reminisce. You shouldn't mourn, kid. I turned my head. Joe, I say in surprise. What? He says, smiling sympathetically. I said I'd offer a few wise words every now and again. I think this is a good time. I look back at the harpoon. Can you do that later? Yep, he says, sitting down next to me. But I'm not gonna. I sigh in resignation. As I was saying, you shouldn't mourn. If there's one thing that all life has in common, it's death. From the day someone is born, you can say with absolute certainty that it's going to die some day. he shrugs. Nobody needs a crystal ball to predict that. What does that have to do with anything? I say bitterly. Of course everyone's going to die some day. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't mourn. If everything's going to die, it is only really a question of when. Death isn't fair, as one of my friends likes to remind me. You never quite know when it's the end. He scratches his neck. In effect, the only difference between people is what they do while they're alive. He turns his head to look at me. Don't mourn his death. Celebrate his life. Joe spreads his arms wide. Remember who he was, not who he could have been. He was a man amongst men, a sailor and a warrior worthy of song. A beloved husband and father, the friendly neighborhood fisherman. And he went out fighting the man who killed his son. He smiles warmly. That's a life worth celebrating, don't you think? I slowly nod, my lips stretching into a smile, albeit a sad one. Wait, the doppelganger killed his son? I asked, finally noticing what he said. Hmm? Yeah, of course, Joe says. Doppelgangers need to kill the person whose appearance they copy to retain it permanently. I nod in understanding, looking into the distance. I wonder if he knew. He had his suspicions, no doubt, but enough of that, Joe says, pulling out a ceramic bottle from nowhere and popping the cork. He swiftly pulls out a pair of cups and starts pouring a sweet-smelling liquid into them. It's just fruit juice, he confesses, left with all my wine back home, but we can pretend. He hands me a cup and raises his own. To Richard! To Richard, I raise my own glass, clinking it against his. I take a deep drink. It's good. I think I'm getting a bit drunk already. Drunk on sadness. Hey... It's all right. We all get a bit sad when we realize that we'll never see a friend again. You get to my age, you start counting how many friends you have left, rather than how many have passed away. I see a thin film of moisture in his eyes as he looks over to the horizon. For a while, we just sit there and drink in silence. Finally, I stand up. I'd like to make a gravestone for him. 
A large, smooth rock breaks through the dirt a few meters away and floats over, thumping into the ground in front of me. Here, Gerald says. Let me do a little something too, says Joe, grabbing a harpoon and pressing it into the stone, causing it to sink slowly into the rock. When he lets go, I find to my confusion that the stone has somehow fused with the haft of the harpoon. It doesn't budge even in the slightest when I touch it. It dawns on me that I don't have any tools to carve words into the stone. I turn awkwardly to Joe. I don't suppose you have a chisel or something? Use me, says Gerald. Oh, right. I fetch him out, and he changes into a thin rod with one end tapering to a point. With him absorbing a little bits of stone at a time, I etch some words into the stone. Then we leave, leaving behind only a harpoon pointing into the sky. Richard, husband, father, sailor, fighter, fisherman, and friend, may his soul find peace as it drifts away. End of chapter. Chapter 29. Destined to Die. Gerald Point of View I'm going out for a bit, back in a minute, I tell Ferdinand telepathically as the group moves out again. Okay, he replies, and I slip out of his top of his pack and onto the ground. Mounted as they are, I am quickly left behind. When I'm sure that they're too far to see me, I pick myself up off the ground with telekinesis and hover back towards the mansion. Apologies, Mr. Doppelganger, but your body is just a juicy to me to pass up. He, it, whatever is buried in an unmarked shallow grave around the back of the mansion. It's not like there's any love lost with the late doppelganger and our group, but apparently paladins have enough decency that they won't let even their enemies be devoured by wild animals. So, they buried him. And now here I am. Devouring corpses is morally questionable in the first place, but when it comes to people's corpses, the line is very obviously and completely crossed. Unfortunately for me, I'm too paranoid being in a world like this to not cross a few lines, when I can't even tell what tomorrow will bring. Still, I have standards. I have had to have standards, else I risk becoming something truly inhuman. Only enemies, and hopefully someday I'll become strong enough that I can say no to sentient beings either. Perhaps I have already reached the point of no return, but my choices are to cross a few lines or run, run and hide from the world until I'm strong and confident enough to face it. I don't want to abandon Ferdinand. I don't know if he's strong enough to survive. What if the Empire is being in such a turbulent situation? With the paladins there, he should be safe enough. But there's too many things I don't know. I don't understand. Demons! Where do they come from? Are there more of them? Sentient monsters, heck. Monsters in general. Politics. Damn it. Even when I'm in another world, I'm getting angry at the people in power. I burrow through the shallow layer of earth above the body, and I've stopped getting notifications when I absorb earth. I wonder why. I absorb the doppelganger's body bit by bit. Level 48 doppelganger absorbed. Experience gained 12,650. Durability recovered 0. Skill proficiency increased absorb 0.01%. Skill gains, BD weapon, spear advanced. Doppelganger static. Straits gained bloodthirsty. Error. 
trait contrary to Bruce's personality profile, erasing. Level up. You are now level 32. 11 stat points gained. Two levels at once? Not half bad. Now, let's see. I want my int and my wisdom to be equal again, but the points won't let me without being annoyingly exact. Well, I've needed to put a few points in dexterity for a while now. Get me a bit better motion perception. Fortunately, I have the trait which doubles my effective dex stat, so I don't have to put many in. How about 3.5? Makes that one bit uneven, but I care less about that than int and wisdom. Then 4 into intelligence and 3.5 into wisdom, putting them both at 52. This puts my radius of vision up to just above 1.5 kilometers. Now, to the other things I gained. I'm kinda glad that I didn't get the trait called bloodthirsty, but now I'm left wondering what it did. Also, that can happen. It doesn't fit my personality, so I can't get it. Huh. Anyway, who cares about the spear skill? I can't use spears. Wait, would that effect apply when I turned into a spear somehow or the other? Questions for later. Now the skill I'm actually interested in. Doppelganger. Static, high, unique, active. Upon designating a target of the skill, physical contact is required. Target must be a living being. You shall take on the physical appearance of that target. After doing so, you have 24 hours local time to kill your target. If successful, you will be given a choice of permanently retaining its appearance of the target, gaining the target's memories and skills. Although the skills obtained shall be one proficiency level lower than the proficiency level of the target formerly had at that skill, or gaining the ability to switch between your original and the target's appearance at a cost relative to the difference between the two forms. If unsuccessful, you will regain your original appearance, furthermore the skill will be permanently erased with no possibilities of obtaining it again, regardless of the method is used. Well, uh, this is a skill and a half and it poses a difficult dilemma. Becoming a human again, or another humanoid race, the options there, permanently, giving up my not inconsiderable advantages of stealth, perfect memory, doubled mana pool, and regen. I doubt a material trait will affect a human not being influenced by hormones and emotions, as well as lacking the need to sleep, eat, and drink. I will, however, gain some additional skills and memories or take the risk and gain the ability to switch between the two forms, being able to utilize the advantage of both, despite not gaining any additional skills and memories. Also, the cost mention is rather vague. It'll probably be mana, these things usually are, but it's hard to tell. Well, let's see, I don't actually fancy getting somebody else's memories, mine are fine as they are, thanks. The skills would be nice, depending on the target, Although, it would be quite difficult finding a person that is both evil enough to warrant me kidding them and has skills that complement my own. That's quite a few points against going permanent human. How about choosing the switch ability? I lost out on the opportunity to gain some new skills reliably, and that will cost probably be quite large. Those aren't really the similarities between the human and a fork, but then again, there aren't really any downsides to choosing this option. Even if the cost is too high for me to use, whereas permanently becoming human, there are just too many downsides. Of course, choosing to switch may be passing up the chance to regain a normal movement, sight, hearing, speech and taste, and everything else. Things which I have dearly missed. 
but I am confident that even without the skill, I'll find a way to get them back one day. The switch choice it is then. Of course, I still have to find a suitable person first. With my business here done, I head back towards the others. Sadly, it would be too much harder to slip back into Ferdinand's pack while they're on the move than it was to slip out. So I travel parallel to them for a while, letting Ferdinand know of my situation through telepathy. One might think that I'd run out of sigh eventually, but in actual fact, I regenerate more sigh than I used to keep myself aloft, which is around four sigh per minute, and keep myself moving at the same pace as the horses. I do this until everyone stops for a break. After that, it's simple as calling Ferdinand over to pick me up off the ground. After that, I'm able to relax and watch the scenery pass by as we head towards the capital. I am Lily Paladin of Vitus. Those behind me are also paladins and priests of the various gods and goddesses. We seek an audience with the prince. I watch Lily as she negotiates with the gatekeeper to keep us inside. From where we are, the entire palace is already in my sight. Now, I just had some sort of magic projectile, like a guide. I hardly would even need to go inside. Well, I doubt the palace would be without any means of magical protection. So, it's all the same, really. The guards hesitate. The prince isn't accepting visitors, but uh, with your unique identities, I think I should at least send the man to inquire for you. Thank you. Lily nods in appreciation as the guards rungs a small bell, causing a messenger to come running. Unfortunately, he jots the message down on one piece of paper that hands it to the messenger, rather than telling him, so I don't know what the message is actually sending, but from what I can read of his body language, it doesn't seem hostile. A tad wary, maybe, but he's a guard of the royal palace. It's his job to be wary. While we wait for the messenger to return, well, I'm tracking his progress so that I can easily identify the prince as well. But apart from that, I take a closer look at the palace. It's excessively lavish, as one might expect of a palace of a country called the Empire. I can see a man wearing a gaudy clothing pacing in a large bedroom, with a crown resting lightly on a padded box on a desk. The emperor, I assume. And in a room beneath the palace, a man with horns and a pointed tail. Well... There's our demon. The sheer volume of hidden passengers is rather off-putting. Even the Emperor's room has two, one leading to another bedroom nearby, and the other spiraling down through the walls, underground into a passageway that extends so far that it goes clean out of my vision. The uses of both are blatantly obvious once seen, but without my particular set of skills, both of them would be extremely well hidden. Hmm... Well, it looks like something is happening. The messenger has finished talking to a young man that I'm tentatively going to assume to be the prince. And now both are moving off in separate directions. The messenger is heading back to us and the prince is heading to... Let's see. Either the kitchens or the large room furnished with plush chairs. I'm going to assume the latter. Then again, he could just be peckish. He isn't. The messenger shortly returns, informing us that the prince is willing to see us. Very well then, I will have to ask you to leave your bags and weapons here for the duration of your visit, the god says, and then glances behind us at the horses. I'll have a few stable boys come over and take care of your horses as well. 
Seeing him say that, I stealthily creep out of Ferdinand's pack and slip into his coin pouch with some help from the form manipulation. He looks over at the paladin's armor carefully. The armor will be fine, but the helmets will have to come off, and make sure to be careful in the hallways. If you damage something, you'll have to pay for it. The messenger here will take you where you need to go, and I don't think I need to say it, but please don't wander around. The guards are everywhere. Thank you. We will be sure to take care, says Lily. The guard just nods stoically in reply, and we falter through the gate, across the lawn and into the palace itself, following the measured footsteps of the messenger. A few short corridors later, the messenger knocks on a door. On the other side of the door, the prince says, Come in. Ferdinand POV As the door closes behind us, my first impression is that he's younger than I imagined. Younger than me, even. Then the pale, less eerily similar to the stories of vampires I was told of a child. But I can see the characteristic fangs when he smiles, so I put my suspicions to rest. Welcome, he says, smiling. Take a seat, and we can discuss the reason for your visit here. He gestures to the lavish furniture from where he sits. Is that for sitting? It looks more like a decoration. Nobody takes him up on the offer, however. His smile falters slightly. We have found evidence that suggests that you are conspiring with a demon and were at least partly responsible for the actions of a necromancer, which caused a widespread death and destruction. Lily states succinctly. The prince's smile turns into a frown. That is a rather serious accusation. I am not conspiring, and nor have I ever conspired with demons or necromancers. However, I am interested in hearing what evidence led you to this conclusion. The personal diary of the same necromancer, Lily says, before adding, and one of my companions tells me that there is a demon in the basement of this building at this very moment. It must have been Gerald. I didn't notice anyone else talking to Lily, and that's something Gerald could easily notice. The prince's face trembles and his lips twist into a sad smile. You're right, he admits, and everyone suddenly tenses, myself included. I never meant for things to happen this way, he continues. But since you know, I have to ask you to act as if it never happened. That's not what I expected. Beyond so easily swayed, you will face judgment, Luck exclaims, moving forward to grab him. With a smile that seems more like he's crying, the prince says, Luck, stop. As if yanked back with a rope, Luck stops moving with an arm outstretched. I see the muscles in his neck rippling, but he doesn't move a single step further. Everyone suddenly bursts into motion trying to grab the prince. The glow of magic emanates from Lily's hand and she stretches it towards the prince, priming magic to take him down. Marco deploys a magical shield and everyone else just reaches towards him. But with a single sweep of his eyes, another word uttered, Stop! and everyone stops moving. Everyone, except me. I don't stop to think why. I just move. Slipping in between the various paladins, priests, and pieces of furniture, I reach to grab the prince. Stop! Stop! Why isn't it? The prince scrambles over the back of the chair towards the door as his skill continues to not work on me, but I am considerably faster than him, and he is completely unable to resist as I grab his arm, hauling him back towards me. What do I do now? Release them, I say sternly. 
No, 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 get him away from me, he suddenly addresses the others, and they start moving again. But for some reason, I'm not optimistic about my situation. Should I? I feel a slight tug from my belt, and there's a naked man in front of me, thankfully facing away from me. As suddenly as he appears, he disappears. Noticing something, I look down at the prince's chest. The prince looks down at his own chest, and everyone stops their motions to attack me and look at him. There's a massive hole there. POV Prince I look down at my chest to see a gaping hole from a seemingly endless moment. I fail to realize the meaning of the hole as blood starts to drip in torrents over my luxurious clothing. Then it hits me. I'm dead. Suddenly feeling rather faint, my legs collapse and I begin to topple. Slowly. Ever so slowly. Somehow it doesn't feel all that bad. Perhaps this is not such a bad turn of events after all. I made a mess of just about everything, didn't I? Now somebody who actually knows what they're doing can step in and fix things up. Still, a few months in this life of a prince, it wasn't terrible. With all the snide remarks people made about my future prospects, I can say without a shadow of a doubt that not one person expected me to get this far. Not that it was by my own virtues, of course. It was an absurd combination of panic, luck, and magic. Funny thing, magic bakamtsukas, people would laugh at you if you believed in it. And yet things people did every day back home would be called magic over here, more often than it would be called recognized as true nature. Psychic abilities. Everyone had them. Everyone. Could be something as small as being able to lift a pencil without touching it, or causing a slight breeze at will. But everyone had at least one psychic ability. Everyone... But me, that is. None of the psychiatrists could understand why I didn't. By all rights, by everything that we could see. You should have one, they say. Well, as it turns out, I did. Two, in fact. But neither of them could show their effects. The first, a form of hypnosis, is utterly powerless against other psychics. No matter how weak their powers. The second allows me to understand any form of spoken language. I did not know that there were other languages. Of course, I was relentlessly tormented by everyone else because of this. Classmates, teachers, and even passers-by. Everyone knew me. Even my parents gave up on me. I was on the edge of despair, trying to decide whether to continue under the pain or taking the plunge was better decision. When I was summoned here, another world, odd we are. I had looked at the people around me, thinking back, I felt something pass between me and them, undoubtedly an unconscious use of my psychic ability. And when I, in my confusion and panic, thinking that they had kidnapped me, said wait, I was astonished to find that they did so. They were equally astonished and not a small bit angry. I panicked more, and everything snowballed. At first I thought I could use my ability to get myself a life of luxury. But there were so many things that I couldn't understand. Demons. I thought they were just people who were being strangely affected by their psychic powers. It was not unheard of back in Psukis. When I heard skeletons described as undying and tiring soldiers, I thought that they would be the perfect workforce. Magic, gods and goddesses, politics. I could not understand anything. So instead of making things better, I made everything worse. The demon was doing who knows what behind my back, always managing to find some way to weasel around my orders. 
and with my own weakness, I had to stay locked up inside the palace at all times. Although I could likely deal with an attacker at close range, a single arrow would be sufficient to take away my life. I wonder what would I have chosen back then had I not been summoned. No, I don't need to wonder. I would have chosen to die. Perhaps that would have even been better if none of this happened. But either way, no matter what I did, no matter what I chose, I was destined to die. I opened my eyes one last time to take in the glamorous room from my position on the floor and let the darkness envelop me. Gerald POV Flesh of level 1 human absorbed Experience gained zero, durability recovered zero, skill proficiency increased none, skills gained psychic translation static, traits gained none, target killed, your choice, permanently retain the appearance of a human male, gain the target's memories and skills, skills obtained shall be one proficiency level lower than the proficiency level of the target formerly had the skill or gain the ability to switch between your original and the human male appearance at the cost relative to the difference between the two forms. Option 2. Error. Calculated cost exceeds predicted maximum mana regeneration for this user. Requesting administrator assistance. Please wait. Well, this is new. I look at the window for a few seconds, but nothing happens. So I look around me. Everyone is trying to figure out what happened but in the confusion I slip back into Ferdinand's pouch. Guards quickly enter the room and everyone gets ready to fight, but the guards don't actually attack. They just send out a messenger to stand the guard at the door. Hey, you're all right, I ask Ferdinand. That was you, wasn't it? You killed him, he asks quietly. Yes, I did, I admit. I wish I didn't have to, but it looked like it was you or him and that was going to die here. And I wasn't about to watch you die. Are you all right? His question makes me by surprise. I... maybe. I think so, I say. One of the good things about being me is that I don't get overwhelmed by emotions. There's some panic, some horror, but it doesn't affect me much. Mm, so you can turn into a human now, he asks suddenly. I groaned, pending confirmation, but it's not hopeful. Something underground catches my attention. A certain demon walking through the swirling mass of manor a portal. Hey, you should be strong enough to survive, especially if you keep following these guys, won't you? I ask him, slipping out of the pouch and onto the floor. I'm probably, yeah. Wait, why? He replies suspiciously. Demon just went through a portal, chasing him now. No time to get you through all the guards and explain to everyone, I don't think. We may be separated for a while, I explained, already absorbing our way through the floor. Then the next roll, then the next roll, leaving a curiously shaped hole behind me until I reach the bracement. Bracing myself mentally, I fly into the portal. As I do, a couple messages greet me. Party leaders in a separate world to party member Ferdinand. Ferdinand is automatically kicked from the party. The fork is mightier than the sword, and will be unable to rejoin until he's in the same world as the party leader. Crap! Girl, doppelganger, static, use, as cost is set to 1,000 mana per minute. The difference in form is too big. This is all I can do. You'll get there one day. Good luck. Double crap. End of chapter. Chapter 30. 
Forking hell. Foreign manner. Manner regeneration reduced by 100 minus wisdom. Unaffected. If wisdom is equal or greater than 100. Malevolent manner. Effects of light, holy or good related magic reduced by 50%. Cost increased by 50%. Effect of darkness, corrupt or evil related magic increased by 50%. Cost reduced by 50%. Things seem to be getting worse. I'm getting a sneaking suspicion that this maybe isn't a very pleasant place. While I don't think the second will affect me, not having any proper magic, the first reduces my mana regeneration by almost half to 5.4 per minute. After dismissing the notification, I take a look around, dropping quickly to a corner of the room. It doesn't appear that anyone has noticed my passage through the portal, so I take stock of where I am now. From the message, I can tell that it's not just another place. I am in another world. Again. At least I didn't die again, although, given the circumstances, that possibility still exists. I was in a lavish palace a moment ago, where this is clearly a fortress. The walls have a different manner density to the walls that I've seen in the past. They probably aren't made of normal stone, although that doesn't mean much to me. Almost a dozen portals stand in the middle of the room I'm in. That's um, not a good sign. The people within are demons, although they're all small, ugly beings with wings that are acting similarly to slaves to demons, groveling and doing the work with other demons. I see one of the demons call them imps. As for this particular demon who had preceded me through the portal, he's hurrying through the hallways, demons bowing their heads as he passes. But their subservient appearance vanishes like smoke after he passes, a few even scowling at him behind his back. Upon taking another look around, I can see that the behavior isn't specific to him. None of the demons appear to like or respect their superiors. Or anyone else, in fact, Anyone in a thin veneer of courtesy, all the demons seem to abhor each other. Strange, I don't think a group of people could hate each other this much could coexist. Unless they were forced to. Food for thought. My lord, something unexpected has occurred. The pawn has been killed by paladins. The demon bows and scrapes. Paladins? The second demon spits in disgust. His clothes look like they've been nicked from the late prince's wardrobe. Probably were too. Almost all the demons here were wearing clothing identical to what I've seen in the cities around the Empire. Disconnect the portal to the palace and begin the invasion immediately through the others. The first demon looks startled. But we aren't. Glaring, the demon in fancy clothes punches the other demon in the face, sending him sprawling to the ground. I only kept you here because your magic allowed the possibility of crossing to Ardwaya. The portals are constructed now. Give me one reason I shouldn't kill you, he sneers. Because, he gasps, the demon mage on the floor, when I created the portals, I'd bound them to my life force. Kill me, and they all immediately lose all function. The richly dressed demon snorts. A compelling reason, he turns, waving his arms to dismiss the demon's mage. Disobey me again, and I will kill you regardless. The demon mage gets up. I'll need some sacrifices. The prison is as full as ever. 
I think this is my cue to do something, but since I'm a fair distance between here and there, I think I'll quickly pop back over. As I start using telekinesis to levitate, I find that it feels more strenuous than normal. Is the gravity larger here? Discarding the thought for now, I move through the portal and the scenery shifts back to what the palace basement. Everyone still alive? Good. I start a telepathic link with Ferdinand. Hey, I'm still alive. Unfortunately, there's going to be a demon invasion unless I shut down the portals from the other side. So, this is goodbye as far as I could tell. He responds as soon as I stop talking. Isn't there any other? Nope. I interrupt him speaking with a forced bravado. I'm pretty sure the portal leads to another world, so I doubt I'll be able to get back. But who knows? It's me we're talking about after all. Maybe, someday. Anyways, I'm a bit tight on time here. They're about to cut this portal off to stop the paladins from interfering. On the plus side, I shouldn't have much trouble getting out of there. So, goodbye, Ferdinand. It's been fun. Goodbye, Gerald. Thank... He begins, but I cut him off. Hey, no sappiness. See you. I cut off the link and pop back through the portal. He is almost to the portal room, so I don't have much time to act. Thankfully, combined absorbing the telekinesis means that destroying inanimate objects is child play for me. Slicing through the bases of the portal archways one by one as quickly as blinking. They all fall to the floor and break several pieces, the vortexes of mana within them dispersing the slowly returning to normal. With that, the demons are cut off from invading, and I'm cut off from going back. Just as I escape through the walls and into the adjacent room, the demon mage sprints into the portal room, no doubt disturbed by the sounds the portals made as I destroyed them. He immediately calls for the guards and orders everyone to be on high alert for an intruder. Fat lot of good that'll do them. Nobody expects the fork. Nobody. Ever. And if they do, they should see a psychiatrist. Quickly returning to the richly dressed demon's room, the demon mage grovels pitifully. My lord, the portals have been destroyed. There is an intruder in the fortress. A goblet in the richly dressed demon's hand deforms as it crumples as he clenches his fist. Seeing it, the demon mage gulps. We will find them immediately, my lord, and I can rebuild the portals. I just need... time. How long? Perhaps two weeks, perhaps less. Drops of sweat roll down the demon mage's forehead. You have three days. But, yes, my lord. The demon halts his protest as quickly as it starts, no doubt remembering his earlier conversation. So he can rebuild it. We can't have that now, can we? After collecting things from several places around the fortress, the demon mage returns to the portal room and starts tinkering away. The guards continue to move around the fortress, checking every nook and cranny, including the room I'm in. Nobody even glances at me although they do find a hole that I made in the wall to get ya. After the guards leave the room, I tunnel back into the wall through the same hole and move up the wall until I reach the roof. Then I tunnel along the roof until I'm above the demon mage. For some reason, he's smiling to himself as he works. I don't think that'll last long. Dropping down directly onto him, I absorb my way through his neck. Flesh of a level 37 demon absorbed... Experience gained 213, durability recovered 0, skill proficiency increased absorb 0.01%, skills gained none, traits gained cursed resistance minor.
Level 37 Demon Killed. Experience gained 6310. Level up. You are now level 33. 5.5 stat points gained. Hey, another lip. A dark manner rises up from the corpse and rushes towards me. I try absorbing it, but as I do, I feel my durability decreasing. So I stop and try to escape through the walls. But wherever I go, it follows without stopping or slowing, no matter how many twists and turns I make. So I leave the castle and head in a random direction. Maybe if I go far enough from the original of its magic, the demon's corpse, it'll fade away. My slim, sleek body line allows me to pass through the air with little resistance, letting me maintain a greater speed than the evil manner behind me, while keeping my size expenditure below my regeneration rate. Although, only just... Actually, I haven't used the stat points from that level up. 5.5, huh? I don't like the 30s. They don't let you distribute the points evenly with the two stats without going into decimal places. And I ain't going there. 1 DP is enough for me. 2.5 into intelligence, 2.5 into wisdom, and 0.5 into dexterity. It may be tracking me, but it isn't very fast. I can literally do this all day, all week if I have to. It should run out of manner eventually, or perhaps it has a limited range. One eye on the following spell, I have a look at the landscape, getting an idea of what sort of world this is. The ground is cracked and barren. Not a blade of grass or any other plant softening the surface as far as the eye can see. The only liquid around seems to be something slow flowing like a thick and I don't recognize. Maybe if I were to venture a guess based on what I've seen so far, I'd say that it's lava. Thank God that I can't feel heat. Or should I say thank the gods? Meh. Don't know enough about them to care. Up ahead I see trees jutting out of the ground like skeletal hands without even a single leaf on their branches. What's this place called? The Forest of Death? Nope, not going there. I take a right turn at the forest and as soon as enough run back to a broken tower, shambling forms roaming mindlessly up and down its broken staircases. I give it a wide berth. Hey, this place looks nice. A clean building lies ahead, bearing a symbol that makes me think that it's some kind of church. Inside are a group of people. They look human too, though the fighting doppelganger that doesn't mean much to me. Pray to some god or the other. Now let us drink of the blood of the heretics, one says solemnly. Goodbye. Behind me the spell putters out and dissipates. Took it long enough. Phew. What do we do now? Oh right, he's on another planet. That makes communication somewhat difficult. Well, first of all, I should probably double-check that they aren't able to reconstruct those portals. Turning around, I head back the way I came, although in much less of a hurry this time. The demon mage said weeks, and an angry demon said days. I think I can spare a few minutes. As I levitate across the desolate landscape, I come across a large dog. I look at the dog. The dog looks at me. The dog opens its mouth, and I take 0.2 damage to my durability. I absorb the dog's face. It dies, and I absorb the rest of it. Level 18 Hellhound absorbed. Experience gained 1,035. Durability recovered 13.8. Exceeds maximum durability, reducing to 1.1. Skill proficiency increased. Absorb 0.01. Skills gained. None. Traits gained. Heat resistance. Minor. 
Level 18 Hellhound killed. Experience gained 1,035. Holy moly, I've almost leveled up again. Without 95% of my experience going to Ferdinand and Absorb effectively letting me double my experience gains, I'm shooting upwards. Sadly, I don't come across any other monsters that I can kill for the last itty-bitty bit of experience I need to level up. Well, almost 3,000, but, you know. It feels strange. Not too long ago, I was stuck on the floor of a cave, hoping desperately that something with a useful skill or trait would walk my way. Leveling up wasn't my primary concern. But even then, hundreds of EXP I needed felt like they would get take ages to accumulate. But look at me now. I can move on my own, see just over a little mile in every direction, and hold my own in combat, albeit in an unconventional way, amongst other things. I've really come a long way, haven't I? Metaphorically and literally speaking. A year ago, just an ordinary university student living on my lonesome on Earth. A few months ago, a helpless fork living on my lonesome in a cave on Odwea. Now, I'm an awesome fork. Living on my lonesome in literally hell. If I say it like that, I haven't really come very far at all, have I? And I still have so far to go. Let me just check my list of priorities. 1. Find a way to regain human form and or human senses while in fork form. High priority. Well, I've technically made process, have the skill that I can do all of that, shame that I can't use it, and probably won't be able to for a very long time. 2. Find out how I died. Low priority. I still haven't found anything about that. A bit hard when I'm not even the same planet. 3. Find and obtain skills or traits that could allow me to write. Write Ferdinand a book about flesh flags and the like. Possibly name it, at least... 101 things you should definitely never ever say when you should be especially not say them. Maximum priority. Hey, I remember this one. Well, I think I'll downgrade it to a medium priority. Even if I manage to get a skill that would allow me to write, it's not like I can lug a book around until I next see him. 4. Jelly Beans. High priority. What? When did this get on here? Let's see, let's see, when I was 6? Seriously? I remember now, I was at a kid's party, and I went over to get some sweets, but all the jelly beans were already gone. I remember bugging my mom to get me some weeks afterwards, but she never relented. Probably for the best, they're filled with sugar. Anyway, let's wipe this off. Although, I would really like some jelly beans. Let's change it to the lowest priority. 5. Obtain skills and traits that will allow me to better defend myself. Maximum priority. It's going fairly well on this front. I wouldn't say that it's such an urgent thing anymore, but I would still like some more diversity and flexibility in my abilities. Let's see. I think I need the healing spell or skill, something that lets me cure poison for others. Others may be able to carry some sort of antidote or cure poison, but that's not really an option for me. A couple of buffs might be nice, and a way to carry other people when flying, some sort of skill or spell that I can control in flight and use to attack from a super long distance. Paired with mana sight, that would be deadly. I have stealth mostly covered, as well as scouting and traps aren't really a problem. Maybe some crowd control abilities. Even a simple slow would be incredibly useful in all sorts of situations. Number 6. 
Obtain traits that multiply my intelligence and wisdom. High priority. Man, these would be useful. If I had times to multiply on even one of them, that would send my mana sight range from 1.69 kilometers to over 3 kilometers. If I managed to get the 10 times, that would be 16.97 kilometers. If I got both times 10, that would be 160 freaking 9 kilometers. Radius. That would let me see, like, almost half of Tasmania if I stood in the middle of it. I just calculated the volume of the sphere that large, over 20 million kilometers cubed. Imagine having a visual acuity necessary to snipe someone from a few cities over. Of course, the changing wind patterns along the way, various obstacles and bullet drop would make it literally impossible, but that is besides the point. Number 7. Learn Magic Medium Priority Hmm, I'd love to. Problem is, I have no clue how. I'm sure some of these demons know magic, but even if one was willing to teach me, I don't think I'd be willing to learn the type of magic that they'd be teaching. And that's the end of the list. Oh, I should probably add... Number 8. Find a way to get back to Odwea. Similar method could be probably used to return to Earth. But do I really want to return to Earth? Odwea at least is a must... It's a way to better than this place. But Earth? I didn't really have many friends. The small network I had at school kind of drifted to near non-existence after I finished, with both me and them not terribly interested in putting in the effort to keep it going. And my family? Well, they must think I'm dead. If I go back only to leave Odwea again, they would only bring me more pain to worry about them than I already have. It would be like stabbing someone with a knife, leaving for a while, and then taking out and applying the bandage, only then to slam it back in again a bit later. I suppose I could stay here, without any, uh, bodily functions. I wouldn't need money, and it's not like the law takes into account living forks. I'm pretty sure that even if people knew about me, according to the system, I wouldn't exist. So, no need to worry about things like voting, either. I could live out my life in peace and quiet, like I've always wanted. Except, except that I couldn't. I couldn't just sit there doing nothing for years on end. I'd go mad, again. I could take up a hobby. My form restricts me severely. And even then, well, come on, Gerald, admitted already. You've known this for far too long to be avoiding it still. Especially now, when there's very little to do. I'm immortal, aren't I? I'm made of metal, mithril even. I doubt mithril rusts or corrodes. But even if it does, I could just absorb the damaged bits myself and repair them back. I don't have any organs or anything that can degrade over time. So, I'm mortal. I remember when I was much younger, I heard about an ancient Chinese emperor or someone similar that ate a mercury pills hoping that it would grant him immortality. Instead, they killed him. We laughed at that, and I don't know about the others, but I wasn't laughing at the irony of ingesting a poison and thinking that it'll grant you a longer life. I was laughing, because I couldn't imagine why anyone would want immortality. I never saw the allure of it. Oh, I've heard all the stories of people searching for the recipe for the mythical philosopher's stone or turning to darker means in an attempt to identify or prolong their lives. But it just never made sense to me. What do you do with infinity? If you had all the time in the world, 
what would you do? I've heard the question before. My answer would always be the same. I'd see my dreams realized. I'd learn more about what few things interest me. Perhaps teach a few others the same. But that would only last me two centuries. Max. I can't imagine what I'd do with a millennia, let alone a million years. Why would anyone want the misery of being unable to make a substantial emotional connection to others? Because you know that if you do, you'll have to watch them die. You'd have to watch everyone you know and love die. Again. And again. And again. If I were able to gain any superpower or supernatural ability... Immortality would be one of my absolute last picks, right down there with the ability to destroy the planet I'm standing on by blinking and the ability to kill anything I look at. Heck, I'd probably choose them over immortality. I'd just cut out my eyelids. I can't blink if I have no eyelids. Or blind myself. Can't look at anything if you're blind. Then I'd just have a short, miserable life. Rather than a long, miserable life. And yet... Here I am, the powers that be chose me. I'll have to watch Ferdinand die, and Marco, I liked Marco. Unless I can find a way to make Ferdinand immortal too, but no. That would just be consigning him to the same hell as me. It would be horribly selfish of me to make him suffer through the pain and lessen my own. I could kill myself. No, I couldn't do that either. Then I'd be making him watch me die. And worse, a suicide. That would be just as selfish. I could vanish and kill myself. And what? Make him think I abandoned him? He'd get over it. What if he didn't? At least I wouldn't have to suffer. It was worth causing pain to another to reduce your own, even if the pain caused is less than that reduction. I don't know. I... I don't feel like it should be. Then again... I can't be as bad as it sounds. If I'm immortal, there must be others. If I can make a few immortal friends, it might not be so bad. But how do you find an immortal? They won't be in plain view, live in the same place for a thousand years, and people are going to notice that there's something different about you. That means that immortals are probably more likely to either roam around or live in seclusion. People are roam. Adventurers, wandering mercenaries, warriors, explorer travelers, people who live in seclusion, monks, people who want to be left alone. Adventurers, why does it always have to come back to adventurers? I don't even want to become an adventurer, all that fame, all that attention. What's the point? It'll just be painful. I shake myself out of my downward spiral of contemplation as the fortress appears at the edge of my vision. The demons within it are still frantically searching for their intruder. I already left, you know. Oh, that's gonna hurt. The head honcho demon is killing everyone that sets eyes on the rage, pounding skulls and chests into pulp with his bare fists and feet, uncaring whether they are imps or demons. I take it there are no replacements for the demon mage. He punches through a wall and screams in anger and pain as his fist bleeds. I think my work here is done. End of chapter. Chapter 31. Behold the Magical Squirrel. The fortress devolves into chaos with demons and imps fleeing in fear from their former leader. 
Most of them are leaving the fortress in its entirety, leaving only a few either locked in cages, hiding, or not realizing what was going on. Makes me wonder whether I should absorb a few in the confusion. I've already seen plenty of evidence that these are terrible people. Violence at the drop of a hat, constant deception, and no respect for their followers. They were about to invade an empire and potentially kill my friends. So I pick one nearby that's on his own, and lie in wait on the ground in a direction that he's running. When he moves over me, I'll absorb his legs. He'll fall down, and I'll absorb the rest of him. He runs without changing direction, running directly over me. I start absorbing every direction that is not towards myself or downwards, expecting him to fall towards me. His legs do get absorbed, but before he can fall, I get pulled upwards, at quite a speed too. In less than a second, I've absorbed the demon clean in half, and I'm hurtling in the air, whizzing in random directions. Level 13 Demon Absorbed Experience gained 485 Durability recovered 0 Skill proficiency increased Absorb 0.01% Skills gained Flattery Advanced Deception Advanced Titles gained None Level 13 Demon killed Experience gained 485 I turn off my absorb My upward momentum slows And after a few seconds reverses direction why didn't I realize this before? Of course, absorbing the air above me results in a vacuum, which sucks everything in the surroundings to fill the gap, including me. Normally, with me using absorb in all directions, I net velocity is still towards the ground due to gravity. But with me only using it upwards, it results in me getting sucked upwards. If I pair this with telekinesis, I'll probably be able to get absurd speeds without much effort at all. I gotta try this out. In a moment, I absorb the rest of the demon and check what I got from it. Flattery and deception. I am not gonna absorb any more demons. Their skills are terrible. I feel embarrassed just by those skills existing on my status. So, this new way of movement. I start absorbing the air above me again, sending me flying into the air. The last time, I'm getting flipped constantly and moving in random directions. The influence of my irregular shape, no doubt. Maybe if I was more regular shape. Wait, with my mana regen decreased, can I sustain the cost of form manipulation anymore? After a few calculations, I determined that while I can no longer stay in any form indefinitely, I can stay in another form for almost eight hours. So it barely matters anyway. Forming myself into a small disc with a little bit of thickness, my shape and assume is the best for omnidirectional movement. In an environment with gravity, I try again. This time, there is only a little bit of wobble, something that I believe that I can learn to deal with until I raise the proficiency of form manipulation to the point that I can make a perfect shape. I shoot almost directly upwards at a great speed. I slowly tone down the speed of my absorption until I hang in the air, neither falling nor rising. As I sit there, the ground just visibly below me, I briefly consider going into space. Without the need to breathe, I have a body made out of quite a tough metal. I should be able to survive out there. Right. But then again, why should I? It's space. There's nothing there for me to see or do. 
Just emptiness. I suppose if I managed to regain proper sight someday, I might be an interesting thing to do. But for today, I think I'll stick to the intraplanetary flight. For a while, I spend my time getting used to this method of movement. Compared to telekinesis, movement via absorb-induced vacuums requires much more finesse. Moving with telekinesis is like holding yourself up with an invisible hand, completely straightforward. On the other hand, this is controlling myself by creating pulls in various directions, and I have to be careful to manage it so that the pull is neither many times greater than I need it to be, nor too small. Still, after a few hours of practice, I managed to get a hang of the simple movement. You won't be seeing me doing a loop-de-loops, but I can at least change direction at will and somewhat reliably control my speed. After I've determined that I have an adequate control, I change back to my original form and resume to using telekinesis to move. Using telekinesis allows me for low to medium speed indefinitely, while this new technique allows me to move at low to very high speeds for approximately 8 hours. I don't have anywhere to go, so I'm in no rush. Therefore, telekinesis. Deciding to check on the fortress one last time, I descend to the ground and travel back towards it. I find it nearly abandoned with only the leader and a few frightened survivors still inhabiting it. The demon leader appears to have calmed down as a rather than killing his followers and destroying his fortress. He is sitting back in his room, head in hands. The fortress itself paints a sorry picture. Due to all the walls he destroyed, small sections of it have collapsed. He avoided only a few areas, judging by the trail of destruction, the fortress walls, his room, and the treasury. It looks like there was an interesting things in there, but unfortunately they have no means of carrying or using them. So, seeing that all well and there's nothing left to do, I leave the place for the last time. Where did I come from? Where did I go? Hmm... I pick a random direction, not the one when I ran from the magic, and start flying. Honestly, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm in the middle of nowhere, without a clue if there's even anything in the direction I'm going. Hoping that, against all odds, there's a clue of how to get back to Odwea somewhere. Ha! Huh. Almost feels like I'm 18 again, scrabbling to get a job with no clue what the fork I was going to do with my life. I often wondered if the people who designed Australian education system are stupid because it puts so much emphasis on skills that you never use again. But never teaches you how to do things that you actually need to do to continue living on the continent. You know, things that you're legally obliged to do. Writing a resume, finding a job, taxes, voting, nope. Knowing how to write essays about terribly boring books is obviously more important than all of that. It feels like you turn 18 and then everyone just assumes you know all of these things. How to manage a bank account, how to iron clothes, how to shave. Little but important things that people somehow think you already know, presumably by some form of psychoosmosis. Why am I getting so emotional? I don't even need to worry about any of that anymore. I suppose this bleak landscape just brings out the worst in me. It's not all empty, you know. There are the occasional buildings, although most of them are ruins. Plants too. 
although they are sparse and often hidden in cracks and the like. I have even seen a plant growing at the bottom of a pool of liquid that I am now certain is lava. I saw a tiny, creepy insect fly over it, and its wings instantly disintegrate. How a plant can grow in a doubly impossible conditions of extreme heat and extremely heavy liquid rock, suffocating is beyond me. But it's there, so it must be possible. Somehow. The first thing I see are the fields. Growing in them are strange plants. I've seen their likes a few times as I've traveled, but never paid much attention to them. Most of the fields are dedicated to growing a single type of plant. It has a long, thick stalk that widens at about waist height and forms a sort of inverted bell shape. The bell is hollow and filled with some sort of liquid. Not lava this time, I don't think. Demons roam these fields with ladles and buckets, collecting the liquid from these plants. In true hull fashion, however, even these plants seem to be out to kill. Hidden under the upper lip of the bell is a weakly sharp teeth, and boy, are they effective. I see one demon get just a little lax with his dipsy's ladle in, and the next thing he knows, he's holding onto a worthless ladle as the plant swallows its head. The ladles are made of metal, I can only tell by the smoothness. Having lost his ladle, the demon curses and kicks the plant, which just lightly sways, spitting into it, he trudges off towards the storehouse to fetch another ladle. The demons refer to these as jaw bulbs, the share of sort of love-hate relationship with them. They collect the liquid from the bulbs and drink it, but clearly nobody wants to be on collection duty. It also apparently tastes terrible. As I get close enough to see the city itself, I breathe a mental sigh of disappointment. I had hoped that this place might have some hint of civility, but no, no, it does not. It's exactly the same as the fortress, just the larger scale. Oh, there are guards, shops, houses, but instead of being disciplined upholders of the law, the guards taunt the workers as they pass by and demand payment every time they go through the gates, seemingly based on the amount solely on how much they dislike the worker in question. Rather than bargaining at the shops, Demons threaten, cajole, bribe, or blackmail the way into cheaper deals. Guards often pop by to collect taxes, i.e. bribes, and mess up the shop if their reply isn't to their liking. I watch as a demon breaks into someone's home, murders the occupant, steals everything, and then casually slips a pouch of gold into the passing guard as he walks out. The guard accepts the money and continues on his way. The reigning group is no better, Talk amongst the town tells me that daggers in the night and poisoned food are so common that someone gets replaced every other day. It's hard to figure out the exacts, though. The people seem to switch freely between English and another language that I'm not so familiar with. Nevertheless, without any better alternative, I set myself down outside the walls of the city and watch and listen. The world is actually called hell, by the way. I've seen it referred to as such by several demons. Talk about Adwa is scarce. The demons talk about it in a similar way to how people back on Earth talk about Antarctica. On one hand, we know it exists. But on another hand, we know we're probably never going to go there. Still, from the words, they seem to view Adwa as a paradise that they wish that they could take for themselves. Well, seeing this hell, who could blame them for thinking so highly of Adwea? 
Perhaps the strangest thing, though, is this one guy standing near the entrance of the city. Hello, would you like to become one with our Lord and Savior? He asks to every passing demon, imp, and creature. The line, and even the way he says it, is eerily similar to the man near the entrance of Port Acton. Unlike everyone else in the city, that particular demon is never bothered by anyone. In fact, the others give him a wide berth. Several days passed by my reckoning without so much as a peep from the portals or any other instant transportation between worlds. And to say that I'm sick of watching these demons is an understatement. A severe understatement. It's like they simply don't understand how to be kind, or even have common courtesy. Maybe they don't. Apart from the watching, I've spent the days laying inconspicuously on the ground, practicing either form manipulation or telekinesis in endless cycles of train, meditate, repeat. That, of course, has also been training meditation at the same time. Due to the location, I didn't want to do anything too showy with telekinesis, so I either tested my limits of my control by lifting motes of dust from the ground, or the limits of my psychic brawn by pushing against the city walls. Unsurprisingly, the hasn't made me so much as a mark on the walls. None of them has advanced the proficiency level, but they're increasing, slowly. I wonder if I should wander around some more, try and find a different city. Maybe I'll have better luck somewhere else. And after a day of looking at the city, I quickly decide that I've had enough. I need a break from witnessing rampant murder, theft, slavery, and any other crime that you could care to name. So I left off on the ground and leave without anyone knowing that I was there in the first place. As I'm leisurely flying on the surface of hell, I come across a rather massive pool of lava. It's so large, in fact, that when I'm floating above the middle of it, I can't see the land in any direction. Just to be safe, I'm flying at a considerable height over the thing, I'm not going to risk it when I know neither the melting point of mithril nor the current temperature of the lava to compare. I highly doubt that I wouldn't melt if I fell into that stuff. The surface of the lava lake suddenly distorts and it bulges upwards. Seeing this, I increase my altitude. It continues to bulge upwards in what would probably look like a massive bubble of lava from the outside, except, unlike a bubble, it's completely filled with lava. I increase my altitude, it continues to expand until it is upwards of a hundred meters tall and about twenty meters wide. I increase my altitude quite a bit. Arms split off from the main trunk and reach down towards the lava, grabbing molten gob of it. That's it. Vacuum movement. Engage. A gob of mana flies through the air behind me as I speed up quickly leaving the lake of lava and its inhabitant far behind. This place is not tourist-friendly. Later, after I've calmed down from the faint giant lava monster encounter, I am again flying slowly through the air. This would be pleasant if the landscape below me wasn't cracked, desolate, and filled with innumerable ways to die. From the thin air, manner appears and encapsulates me. Before I can react, it already dissipated. And I'm in another place in someone's hands. How, who, where, why? No, this one looks fine, clean. It raises me to its nose and sniffs. No stench of blood either. 
Finally, I get something that isn't a weapon. I should have known using fork as a condition was a bad idea, especially in hell. I say it not because it is an object or a non-gendered being, but because it's so, um, poofy. It's a little difficult to see, but that's, yeah, okay, should be a male. His bushy tail twitches, and then he suddenly stands tall. Food! I'm not going to be able to get any food here. I'll have to summon it from another world again. The human-sized squirrel mutters to himself sadly. He's talking like he's not from hell, and as if he knows how to get there, maybe he knows how to leave too. Here we go again. I initiate a telepathic link with the squirrel. Hello? What? Dropping me, the long dagger appears in the squirrel's hands from nowhere. Someone's in my head. Who are you? Where are you? Since I'm asking, what are you? Well, um, calm down, please. I'm friendly. If you're friendly, then where are you? Accuses the squirrel. Well, nobody else I've seen in hell has been friendly, so I'm just taking precautions. I lie. I'm actually right next to his foot, but he doesn't need to know that yet. Oh, is that bad? I've heard about it, but then again, I've never met anyone who's actually been here before, so... uh, He trails off. Then uh, why take the risk with me? You don't look like you're from around here. Neither am I, but I don't have a way to get back. I heard you talking and thought you might. I explain, seeing that he seems to be reasonable. Yes, no, kinda, he says uncertainly. If I've been to the world before, I can go back, but otherwise, it's up to luck. Which world are you from? Arduia, I hold my metaphorical breath. Arduia, heard of it, heard of it. Who hasn't heard of it, he says rhetorically. Haven't been there, unfortunately. Still, we can try our luck. Wait, you're still willing to help me? You don't have something you wanted to do here, I ask in disbelief. Here? No, it's not like I said before, it's up to like which world I go to. With my luck, it's a wonder that I haven't wound up in hell before now, he muses. This place is art and I doubt there's any good food or water, and the residents have a reputation of being violent and evil. Who would want to go there? I will have to wait until my mana regenerates, however... He continues grimly. We're both stuck here until then, so are you going to show yourself, or are we just going to keep talking awkwardly like this until we're ready to go? Yes, no, kinda. Seems like my luck is a little better than yours, see? I'm Gerald, the only living fork in existence, I say dryly. Living fork. Wait, fork! Oh! He exclaims, looking down at me. Yep, that's me. I lift myself off the ground and onto the table in front of us. He shakes his head in amazement. I knew that took way too much mana for it to be because it was a mithril. Right, right, introductions. I'm Drea, the squirrel beastman space-based randomizing summoning mage. That is an considerably long title, I note. It is, but I rarely use it. It's not a good idea to tell every person you meet your specialties, so I normally just go by Drea, Drea shrugs. Rather than that, I'm more interested in you. How do you see you here? Do anything. Unconventional skills, I explained. Manicide lets me see to a certain degree. Lip-reading allows me to follow conversation. Telepathy allows me to talk, as I am doing right now, as well as a few others for movements and so on. 
Drea shudders slightly. That sounds pretty horrible compared to normal people. Yes, but I've been hoping to learn magic at some point that I can use to replace the missing senses. But so far I've had no such luck, I sigh. Don't suppose you'd be able to teach me? Shaking his head, Drea replies, I don't know the sort of magic that could help you with that. I could look through my spell books, but I wouldn't be too hopeful. Could you at least teach me some basics, common knowledge sort of stuff, I ask pleadingly. Pulling out a chair, he sits down. I can do that much. What do you know about a magic already? Magic is split into creation, destruction, restoration, alteration, summoning, and illusion. I reply hesitantly. I'll take it you know next to nothing then. Drea leans back in his chair. What you said is partially correct. Any spell can be split into three parts. Let's call them method, execution, and objective. Or how you are casting a spell, what type of spell you are casting, and what you are trying to do with the spell. The objective part can be split into six categories that you've mentioned earlier. Although, there are countless subcategories as well. They speak for themselves, I think, he begins. Scratching his head, he continues... There is a significantly fewer methods, although there are still some. The most common ones are chanting, formations, and imagination. Although, I wouldn't recommend the last. Why? I asked, surprised. It sounds quite useful. It's incredibly versatile, yes, Dreyer answers, putting his feet onto the table. But it is also incredibly manner inefficient, and spells can easily be disrupted if the caster is distracted even slightly. I see, I say, taken back. That is a major disadvantage. Drea begins rocking back and forth in his chair legs. Charging? Well, you could probably consider it to be a subcategory of imagination if you wanted to. The chant helps you focus, and since your most magicians have a different chant for each spell, recounting it always helps you recall how you did it the last time, which can both speed up the spell casting and make it more efficient. What? Dreyer's chair falls over, and he falls onto the ground, rubbing his back. He gets back up, sets the chair back in place, and sits down on it. Formations, he continues, as if nothing had happened, are the quickest, most minor-efficient and reliable method you can use. After you set them up, that is. While you're making them, they're the most complicated, unforgiving of mistakes and difficult to invent on the fly. Right, and they're what you use, I guess. His reply was half happiness, half sigh. Yeah. So what about execution? He shrugs, can be pretty much anything. One of the elements, something abstract like space, motion. Time, I interrupt. Dreyer's tail whips nervously. No, if you value your life, stay away from time magic. Nobody has ever come out of an attempt without something terribly, terribly wrong with them. Dreyer shivers and then gets up from his chair. I think that's enough for now. He walks over to the cupboard and selects a plate. A complex formation playfully flashes on the plate, and when he sets it down, a heavily laden with assorted of nuts. Want some? he asks. Can't eat, I remind him. Oh, his cheeks are already bulging. End of chapter. Chapter 32 Warping through the spoon time continuum. With Drea having his meal, the conversation momentarily ceased. I finally get a chance to look around at the place. This house is uh, less than a house and more like a well-built hut. 
It consists of nothing more than a single room furnished with a table, a couple chairs, a bed, a bookshelf. He is hoping that I get an opportunity to peruse its contents extensively. And a cupboard. Just outside the singular window is a small pile of assorted implements, trident, pitchfork, three blades, swords, and a singular tuning fork. Everything in the pile could, if one squints with the pit, keeps very open mind, be defined as a fork. Other than that, there is a sturdy door, padlocked shut, some crystals embedded in the floor, and an arch up against one of the walls. Is that a portal? I asked, starting up a telepathic link. What? Jaya jumps out of his chair in shock. Oh, could you give me a bit of warning next time? Your voice just comes out of nowhere. It's a bit creepy. Sorry, I apologize. I suppose it would be quite startling. How about this? If I fly up in front of you when I want to talk, is that all right? He nods. Okay. Now what was you asking again? Is that a portal on the wall, I mean, I ask again. He looks over. That's right. It's inactive, though. I deactivated for the trip across. First rule of portals. Don't put a portal through a portal. Someone always ends up dead. Usually you. That sounds fun. Why? What happens? Well, portals are just basically a carefully managed twist in the fabric of space. Drader explained after a moment. Put one through another and it becomes a horribly complicated and messy. Space breaks. Everything around you break. Poof. Sounds deadly, I say lightly, immediately adding a portal-ception to my list of things to never do. So where does it go? Arbidak, he says, a name that sounds some foreign board game, or perhaps a foreign suite. The center of all magical learning and my home world. Oh, I suppose that would be a very good place to learn magic, I asked with interest. Yes, the best, he states. There is a moment of silence. Oh, you meant you wanted to learn magic there, he finally realizes. Well, if you have enough talent, or you might be able to get a scholarship. I am probably talented, I don't know. Does having a high intelligence and wisdom stats help? I ask questioningly. Yep, Drea replies, but that's beside the point. First things first, I'm getting out of hell. Anything else can come after that. Right, sounds good, I agreed. So how long will it take to get back to enough mana for that, I ask. Dreyer scratches his head, scooping another handful of nuts in his mouth. Hard to say, I'm assuming that I need to keep summoning food and water. Two months? Two months! I exclaim in disbelief. It only takes me over three hours to fill up my mana pool from empty. And that's with the foreign mana debuff nearly halving it. Well, I put all my stats into intelligence, so of course it's going to take a while. Drea folds his furry arms, and I have to fill up all the mana crystals, even my tiny stats. It's impossible to transport a whole house with mana pool alone. You transport the entire house between worlds, I gasp. He nods, of course. I don't know how to build a house, so what else am I going to do? Pitch a tent? He laughs. I am not an animal. I refrain from mentioning that he looks exactly like a giant animal. Wait. I forgot, Dreyer hits his forehead lightly with his palm. I'll just adjust the amount of mana going into the formation to account for the extra person going through. Make that two a month and a few days. Can I fill up the mana crystals for you? I ask. That would speed this up. No, having someone else's mana in the formation would make it difficult to control, Dreyer replies. It's best not to risk it. I sigh in resignation. 
So, what do we do in the meantime? Talk, I suppose. I'll look through my spell books, see if there's anything that can help you. Maybe explore a little, he muses. In other words, all sitting around, doing nothing for me. Talk. Dreyer flips onto the last page of this last spell book and the last shelf of his bookshelf. Snapping the book shut a moment later, heat is taking him a few days to read through them all, and which each one my hope has dwindled slightly. Looks like you're out of luck this time, Drea says. I do have one spell that could be modified to suit your purposes, but it's just too advanced. To learn it, I'd have to go through and teach you exactly several dozen other things first. And with you not being able to see writing, I don't think that I'd be able to, even if I wanted to. Don't worry about it, I say, resigned. Still, thanks for taking the time to look through all the books. It was about time I read back through them anyway, he replies, waving it off. Now it's about time I do some exploring on this godforsaken place. Mind if I come with you? I ask, happy to do something other than sitting around. Sure, he replies, slipping gloves on his paws, both front and hind. From what I can see, his paws are somewhat more developed than an ordinary squirrel's with fully opposable thumbs, but still retaining the pads and claws. Opening the door, Dreyer steps outside and winces slightly. The ground is hot, he exclaims, as I fly through the open door. Will you be all right? I ask. I'll be fine, he says, shifting slightly from paw to paw to get used to the temperature. Not nearly as bad as the time I was in the Ignis, the elemental world of fire. I paused at that. How on earth did you survive a world of fire? You don't, normally, he replies. I was lucky enough to come across some friendly fire elementals who were willing to siphon off the heat around my house until I managed to get out of there. Unfortunately, they weren't able to siphon off all the heat, and I had to have extensive repairs done in this world after, he says wryly before remarking, Gosh, it really is dark, isn't it? I can't tell. Without living beings and uses reference, I am completely unable to tell the time of day. If it's night, maybe we should wait until morning, I suggest. According to my research, hell doesn't have a day, just a night and a dark. Dreyer explains the moon, there it is. The moon provides a little bit of light. After it goes beyond the horizon, there's not even that, just pure darkness. The more I learn about this place, the more I want to leave, I groan. I had seen demons using the terms before, but I thought dark and night were referring to the same thing. Apparently not. Dreyer gets down on all fours and starts dashing across the ground at a decent pace, with me following closely behind. So you know this bit about this place? I asked, curious. A bit ye I res- Ah! Dreyer plows into a boulder. How, how, how? I try to research places that I could end up in, especially the bad ones. I knew I would end up here eventually, he says, a thin trail of blood seeping from his head. You all right? I ask, slightly concerned. He waves the paw. Fine, just try not to distract me when I'm running, okay? All right. I'm keeping up telepathically between us so that we can talk at any time. Of course, that means some extra drain on my side, given that I'm also using telekinesis to fly. But since the distance between us is fairly small, it still isn't putting my consumption over my regeneration. The landscape around us isn't much different from what it was before Dreya summoned me. Bleak, barren, and sheltering minimal life. 
Drea pads in a steady, gradually expanding circles around the house, familiarizing himself with the area. As I follow him around, getting a bit exercised, so to speak, I notice some people appearing on the edge of my vision. To be more specific, it's a few demons chasing after what looks like a kid. The kid looks like an elf, and he looks to have been in terrible shape, dressed in little more than torn rags and sporting several large wounds. Noticing that they're heading roughly towards the house, I warn Drea. Hey, Drea, can you fight? We have demons incoming. Of course I can. Where are they coming from? Drea replies, standing up and looking around cautiously. Coming towards the house from uh, a bit to your right, about one and a half kilometers away, I estimate. Chasing a child as well. A child? Those beasts! Drea says angrily, running off towards them. Well... I am honestly skeptical that the kid is much better than the demons after all I've seen them so far in hell, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. We reach within a stone's throw of them just in time to witness them plunging a spear into the boy's back. No! Drea shouts. Incredibly, the boy doesn't fall, just keeps on running with the spear still tearing his flesh asunder under the growing visage of the demon holding it. Hey, Verfrek! Come to help your friend, he shouts, noticing us. Come over here so I can make a fur. The demon collapses forward, an arrow protruding from the back of his head. Drea raises a hand, plucking the arrow from thin air and setting it into a string on the bow that appeared only moments earlier. Drawing back the string, Drea releases the arrow and jumps forward into a tiny portal that emerges in front of him. The portal's twin appears over the head of the two remaining demons, who has turned around to see who shot the first one. He's soon sporting a stylish new headpiece. Seeing the demise of his accomplices, the last demon turns and runs. But honestly, what use is there in running when your opponent is a space wizard? A third arrow quickly finds its mark and the final demon collapses into the ground. Tossing the bow aside, Drea rushes towards the boy who collapsed to the ground upon witnessing the death of his pursuers. Stooping down beside him, there is a brief glimmer of light above Drea's hand before the sparks into nothingness. I don't have enough mana to summon potions. Can you do something? He asks, panicking at the sight of the boy spilling blood and numerous wounds. Probably not, but I can take a look. I look closer at the boy and both exterior and interior of the body, inspecting his bones and organs. What's left of them... Impossible. This should be impossible, I exclaim in disbelief. What's wrong? Drea asks with his dread. What's wrong? His spine is broken in three separate places, his legs in seven, his lungs are holier than Swiss cheese, and his heart is actually skish-kebabbed with the spear earlier. I report, unable to believe my eyes. Not that I have any. Drea sighs. He's dead, then. If I had a head, I would be shaking it. That's what's so impossible. He's still alive. That's right, he's alive. His lungs are still pumping and his heart's still beating, even though they don't seem to be doing anything. They just keep going on without showing any indication of stopping. What? Drea gasps. But how? Beats me, I admit helplessly, but I think it's best not to touch him. Might disrupt whatever it is keeping him alive. I think that's best, Drea agrees. But we can't just leave him here. There's nothing we can do. I don't see that we have much of a choice, I reply. 
Drea looks about to argue, but then when the boy opens his eyes, glances over to the big tall fur in front of him, the boy's eyebrows narrowly slightly, but he says nothing and just gets up off the ground, looks around unnatural and painful. His bones are broken, but are acting as if they aren't, keeping the alignment and everything. That probably means they'll heal up better, right? I think I remember something along those lines. Ignoring Drea, he walks over to the corpses of the demons and picks up a spear. Without so much as a glance at us, he starts walking away. I can see him muttering under his breath. Kill them. I have to find a way to kill them. The kid has problems. Well, I think that's that. How about we go back to your house now? That sounds good, Drea sighs. Remind me how long it'll take again? I ask, just starting traveling back. I just used all my mana, so we're back to the beginning. Three days pass as slowly as ever. I spend my time, as per usual, slowly increasing the proficiency and getting some more flying experience. Occasionally, I perform my duties as the only fork in the house. Drea spends his time reading through his tombs, sleeping or eating. Every now and again, he infuses mana into one of the crystals in the floor, making them glow ever brighter in my sight. The days turn into weeks, and a lone demon happens to spot the house. Not wanting to stay in hell any longer than I have to, I decide to face him myself. With a quick combination of my natural forky stealth, a key blast, and a magic edge, and a power stab, I fork him up real good. Weeks turn into months, and the number on the age section on my status ticks from 11 to 12. A whole year. I never expected to have my first birthday in hell. It's quite dreary, one might even go so far as to call it hellish. I think I'll make a goal to have my second birthday anywhere but hell. Actually, make that any birthday. Eventually, my age ticks to 13 months, with the day of departure drawing near. I check over my skills, satisfied that my concentrating has paid off. Power stab has advanced to... advanced, decreasing the cooldown from 4 minutes and increasing the multiplier to 1.2 times. Not exactly a startling increase, but every bit counts. Still, physical attacks are not my preferred course of action, so, with any luck, I won't have significant use for this in the future. Magic Edge has reached advance, bringing with it greater control of my skill. I mean, using all my mana on it is a powerful, but I really don't want to use all my mana on something like that. Now, for the more interesting and useful ones, mana control has increased to advanced. I don't need to explain that, do I? For manipulation, self has finally reached expert, meaning that I can transform quicker and more smoothly than ever, and at a lower cost. Heck, I can actually form an edge with some sharpness to it now, or make my tines pointy. The last, but most probably the greatest of all of these, is meditation. It has crossed the threshold of master proficiency, bringing with it a great gains. Well, the increase isn't as large from basic to advanced, but it's still significant. My mana and sire regeneration are now multiplied by 3, while my key regeneration is multiplied by 25. What's more is that the meditation state now has a calming effect and makes me slightly more resistant to mind-affecting or altering effects. With that and the old structured sanity trait, my mind should be pretty well protected. On top of all of that, my key pool is now completely full. 
The last few days seemed to crawl by at a snail's pace. My anticipation of finally leaving this place and making the hours drag on endlessly. But finally, finally, the last mana crystal gains the same bright glow as the others. Andrea says that the formation is ready. Now I just need to fill up my own mana pool again, and we're good to go. Andrea says with satisfaction when I ask him when he'll be starting to spell up. You mean there's still another few days? A few long days later. All right, let's get out of here. Dreyer exclaims, Oh, and please don't interrupt me. That could be bad. I sever the telepathic link just to be sure. Sitting down in the corner of the floor, Dreyer lays his paws onto the center of the formation. A slight amount of mana slips from his body into the formation, radiating through lines that were barely visible before. When those faint threads of mana reach the glowing mana crystals, the formation suddenly floods with light the threads of mana quickly turning into the thickness of ropes. A moment later, a portal appears just below the house. Then, in a bizarre turn of events, the house begins to start sinking. I almost contact Rare in a panic, but decide to trust that everything is happening as it's supposed to be. His expression doesn't even seem to have... uh, I can't read his expression, actually. Hmm. Rare and the furniture in the house start sinking as well, to me, who can't see beyond the portal, it appears as if Drea is just half a giant squirrel sticking out of a swirling mass of mana in the portal. After a few moments the table, I am on slips below the surface of the portal, taking me with it. As it does, the system window appears, but I ignore it for now. Well, on the other side, I can see what actually is happening. The house, and by extension us, is on flat ground, and we are not sinking into it, thank God. I should really find out more about the gods, who they are, what they do, that sort of thing. It's probably important. Anyway, back to the matters at hand. The portal on the side is above us and slowly ascending, with more and more of the house being revealed as it goes. After another ten seconds or so, the portal rises over the peak of the house, stops, and shrinks quickly into nothingness. Drea stands up and looks around. All right, everything seems to have come through fine. Gerald, it's done, you can talk again. That was a unique experience. I re-establish a telepathic connection between us. What world are we in now? Now, let's have a look, shall we? Drea opens the door and steps out. Hey, Forrest, now this is my type of world. Now this is a strange type of world. There's the forest which extends beyond the limits of my vision. And that's fine. It's just a big forest. Right? Wrong. The trees are moving. Not all of them, and not fast, but the trees are moving around. Actually, there seems to be a notable exception. The trees around us aren't moving at all. Some of the trees are moving, I know to Dryer, just outside of the ring of trees. Don't suppose you know anything about them. He peers around, but is unable to see anything. Do they have trunk-like legs? Not really. They more crawl through the ground with their roots, I reply, taking another look at one of them. No clue, then. Drea shrugged. Still, we don't seem to have anything attacking us just yet, so it's a really better landing than some of the other times. Maybe I should just mash-produce that book I'm planning to write, hand it to schools or something. 
Drea steps back inside and the rest for a while after transporting us across worlds. He tells me it's a strenuous ordeal. Since nothing is happening, I take a look out the window that I missed. You are entering the world without a system. Help function will be limited. Experience values and skill proficiencies will not update until you re-enter the system. You will still be able to view your status, but any changes to your abilities may cause the values to display to be incorrect. It is recommended that you do not spend any available stat points. I do a double take. I am outside the system just by moving to another world. I suppose it does make sense that it doesn't exist everywhere. It didn't exist on Earth, after all. Just to be sure, I asked Drea about it. This world is outside the system. Huh? Yeah, it is. He replies absently. It's pretty rare, but there are a few worlds without it. Not sure why. It can be annoying with numbers in your status getting mixed up so easily. I've learned to live without it. Interesting. The days passes without incident, despite Dre's jinxing us earlier. Unknown's POV I watched the foreigners that night. The squirrel beastmen. I haven't seen one in quite a while. Simply sleeps. The small one does not, seeming to content to watch the train through the night. He's quite unusual, even to me. He has the form of a fork, and yet the spirit of a human. The unusual combination reminds me of an old friend, one I have not seen since, uh, shortly after the darkness, but that was my choice. Stay here, watch over my people, so that's the history never repeats itself however long it takes. The night passes without incident, but they are not fortunate in the morning. One of my people, riding an ash that is young and capricious enough to still be roaming, happens to come close enough to the foreigners that the ash breezes up. Not having had visitors for a long time, my people have forgotten the tree's ancient instincts upon encountering people that they don't know. Pretend to be a normal tree lest they be felled by the axe of fire. So, it is understandable that she is perplexed about the ash suddenly stopping. Descending from amongst its branches, she strikes off into the forest, asking the forest to guide her path. Of course, the trees around her are playing possum, so none of them are able to answer her request, and she ends up walking straight towards the house. She is shocked by its appearance, and when she becomes close enough to see what it is made of, horrified. Her scream startles the beastman who had just left his house to greet her. His attempts to calm her down are met with no success, and it quickly becomes obvious that it will come to blows if nothing is done. Sighing, I step out of the forest and place my hand on her shoulder. Garb yourself. I remove my hand again as she whirls around, the anger in her eyes quickly changing to awe and respect. M- my lord, but the, the this thing it's made of... She trails off, her voice quickly regaining the angry edge. Looking to the beastman, I say, I apologize for her behavior. For so long have my people known only the forest that they have forgotten that there were once trees without walls or intelligence, and still are in other worlds. No harm done, he replies amiably. I'm Drea, and you two are... I turn back towards the now considerably calmer woman. 
Remain nearby while I stay here to prevent any further misunderstandings and teach them the way of the forest. Yes, my lord, she bows. Shaking my head softly, I step back into the forest. POV, Gerald. If he hadn't come along, I don't know what would have happened. Drea sighs with relief, but he was a tad rude. Who? I reply, confused by the whole situation. Drea tilts his head. The satire man that came in and calmed down the satire woman. Didn't you see them? No, I reply slowly. No, I didn't. Great. We have another invisible man. End of chapter. Chapter 33. Fork enrolls in magic school. Rhea looks at the satire woman who appears to be struggling with a mix of emotions. Would you like to come inside? No, she shouts reflexively before calming down and explaining herself. No, I'm sorry. Even if the Lord has said it's all right, seeing something made, she gulps, made of wood. I, I just can't. It's all right, Drea says, reassuringly stepping away from the house. Should we talk here, or would you rather be out of sight? Yes, that would be great. Can you climb? She asks. Drea smiles, flagging his tail. I am a squirrel. The two of them walk over to a nearby tree, and within seconds, both of them have climbed up into the leafy canopy. Sitting in the thick boughs, they look remarkably unperturbed, and their legs are hanging over empty space. I stealthily leave the house and float over to the tree, setting myself to rest amongst its roots, just in case. As at this distance, Drea is inside the range in which my telepathy wouldn't make more sigh than I regenerate. Letting out a deep sigh, the satire woman instantly looks more relaxed. Sorry, I was just all so much, so fast. I was just wandering around the forest like every other day, and then I found your house. Then the Lord himself came. I can give you some time if you'd like, Treya suggests. No, I'll be all right. She takes a deep breath. The Lord asked me to teach you the way of the forest, and he's right. If nobody does, you could end up dead or lost forever within the forest. Drea frowns. That doesn't sound good. Let's get started then. A moment later, he asks me. You're listening, right? Always, I replied. The trees are alive as smart as you or me. Talking in a language that we can't hear or understand. The entire forest talking to each other. She gestures wildly. Many of them like to move around, which means that they are absolutely impossible to find your way around if you rely on your memory. Drea cocks his head. How do you find your way around, then, he asks. You ask the forest, she replies. The trees know where everything is. They'll open up a path for you, or, if you're particularly lucky, they might be willing to take you there. Seems straightforward enough, Drea nods. But why are they so helpful? It's her turn to look confused. Now that you mention it, I'm not sure. There's just an old legend that we satires are the keepers and protectors of the forest. Perhaps that has something to do with it. Protectors? What are you protecting the forest from? Treya asks. She grows even more confused. I don't know. There shouldn't be anything that's a danger to the forest. Maybe you protect the forest from people from other worlds. Not all of them are as friendly as me, Treya muses. Maybe, she nods thoughtfully. 
Anyway, the same if you need food, ask and you'll be guided to a tree nearby that is ripe fruit or nuts, or a place where you move some vegetables and have finished growing. Sounds like most of your needs are taken care of, Drea notes. Most, but not all, she warns. It isn't just the satyrs who dwell in the forest. There are many animals and beasts here as well, and not all of them are friendly. The forest will try and keep you clear of them, but if you have your scent, there's rarely anything a forest can do to help. I hope that you know how to fight. Her clothing, clearly made from furs and animal hides, punctuated just how real the danger is. No worries there, Drea shrugs. I travel a lot, and I've gotten into my fair share of trouble in the past. I can take care of myself just fine. Is there anything else I should know? Don't harm the forest, or other than that, no. Maybe, she says thoughtfully. There are some old ways passed down in the stories. We don't know what they mean exactly, but they might mean something to you since you're from another world. Maybe, agrees Drea. What are they? Carry no axes and start no fire, she recites. Drea nods. Makes sense. An axe is a weapon or a tool mostly used to cut down trees. She shudders. And fire is, well, fire. It's hard to describe. Do you know how to describe fire? Drea asks me. I could give you the technical description, but I doubt that it will clarify anything, I reply dryly, describing fire to someone who's never seen it before. Well, that would be like trying to describe color to a blind man. Hey, that's a great way of putting it, Drea exclaims. Was it? Describing fire to someone who's never seen it is like trying to describe color to a blind man, Drea repeats. But fire is a... Uh, Really bad for trees. All right, she scratches her head slightly. Well, that's enough talking. I should show you how to do it. You hungry? Definitely, Drea nods. Follow me, she says, quickly climbing down the tree again, with Drea close behind. Hello, can you please lead us to some food? She says to some trees before telling Drea. You have to be polite. The forest remembers everything, so if you're rude, they'll be paying it for a long time. I still get macadamias every now and again. That's a tough nut to crack, Drea nods. I follow behind them at a distance as they walk through the trees. Around them and even me, the trees shift and move slightly, opening a path for them to walk on. My name is Drea, by the way. I forgot to properly introduce myself before. Drea rubs his head wryly. So did I. She shakes her head. My name is Sithari. Nice to meet you. Almonds rain down on them from above. Sithri turns to the trees and thanks them before starting to gather the nuts. So, what now? I ask. Sithri has finished teaching Drea everything that he needs to know to live in the area, and has left him the rest in the boughs of one of the trees nearby. Drea crunches through a mouthful of almonds. This world seems safe enough, a bit unusual, but that's not a bad thing. I'll need to charge the formation back up in case of emergencies, first of all. And after that, I'd like to stay here for a while and learn more about this world, Drea muses. But now that I've been here once, I can get back if I need to. We can keep jumping around to find your home world, if it's urgent. Is it urgent, he asks. I think about it for a moment before answering. The only people I know in that world should be safe as far as I know. And I don't particularly have anything I need to do there, so... No, it's not. Then I can fire up the portal. We'll see if we can get your scholarship. 
and I'll be able to visit with my friends in the academy, Dre said. Sounds good, I reply. Will it take long to gather the manor for the portal? Not too long, a couple days at most, Drea reassures me. It's much smaller than what I need to do to transport my house after all. Great, but we still have to wait until you fill up the formation of the house, I ask. Yeah, he agrees. All in all, this is an terrible place to be. A fair sight better than hell, that's for certain. It's quiet. Quite ironic for me to say, but it is. There aren't any sinister plots threatening to destroy the country. No evil personage out for our lives. Just a few wolves and a bear so far. Hidden amongst the trees, there might be a million small animals and insects, but it's all fairly peaceful. Perhaps a dad boring, but boring is good. Every now and again... Besides, I really wanted to. I could probably pass plenty of time just watching the wildlife scurry about. Sithery is still hanging around, keeping the order to her invisible lord. Lucky, too. Another satyr came by and practically attacked us on sight before she stopped him. Dreya seems keen to learn as much as he can about this world and the people in it, and often has conversations with the Sithery, but doesn't always get the answers he wants. He's not been able to find out the name of this world, or what there is outside the forest. She doesn't even seem to understand the concept of there being something outside of the forest at all. But regardless, the days pass by. Perhaps because of the absence of brutality and death in my surroundings, I feel more relaxed than I can remember being in a long time. For once, I don't have responsibilities and expectations weighing me down. I'm completely capable of taking care of myself, and I don't have to worry about things such as food, shelter, or even building a family. Being biologically incapable of reproduction as no longer having the hormones which cause men to become attracted to women are such convenient excuses for not getting a girlfriend. And all of this lets me do what I really want to do. Well, first I'll have to learn a bit of magic to be able to interact with the world through mediums other than absorb telepathy or telekinesis. But after that, I'll be able to pursue whatever magic interests me. Admittedly, that all hinges on me being admitted and gaining a scholarship, so during these days I focus on a few magical skills. Magic missile and mana control. Whether forkfully compressing mana into a dense point, controlling the individual movements and multiple separate bits of mana, or forming the mana into various shapes. I do it all day. Every day. Most of the time, this doesn't actually require large quantities of mana at once. Smaller amounts are often just as difficult to control, so I am able to do this literally 24-7. By the end of the first month, I am able to make approximately 1 to 100 almost exact scale model of Dreya in mana, and control three separate magic missiles in individual fight paths. By the second, my Drea model looks exactly the same to me as the real thing, and I can even mimic his movements with a fair degree of realism. Keeping track of multiple magic missiles at once is harder than it sounds, and I'm still only able to manage four. But those four, I can make each pair rotate in opposite directions, have them fly in formations and do different directions. By the end of the third, I've also made a scale model of Sothery, and two models to mimic their real-life counterparts' actions exactly. Under my control, of course. I can control five magic missiles now, or create a single one compressed to an extent that, 
Well, I imagine it can do some damage, but my only viable target here is dirt, since doing it against the trees would be us booted off this world faster than you could say oops. There was a few days left to wait, Drea soon fills up the last mana crystals, and then, before I know it, the day comes. Fetching the chest from beneath his bed, Drea opens it and retrieves a fine robe. Closing the chest and pushing it back under his bed, Drea dons the robe, explaining, My fur covers everything up, so there's usually no problem, but the academy has a dress code. Can be annoying, but it is necessary. I look at the robe, then at myself. I, uh, won't have to wear that, will I? You shouldn't have to. I don't think that you could wear anything, even if they wanted you to. Drea's tail flags in amusement. Good, I sigh. All right, let's get going. Drea says, ah, almost forgot. He quickly dashes outside and informs Slithery about what is happening. I don't think she understands much of it, but she at least is going to get the general idea. Coming back in, Drea locks the door behind him and walks up to the portal frame. He channels his mana into the frame carefully, activating it. After a few seconds, the space within twists and settles into a usual swirling mass of mana. Right, we're good, Drea says, shaking his paw slightly, walking over to the table to pick up me and the strides through the portal. The scenery changes instantly from the forest to that of a bustling city, when one starkly different from those in the Empire, cleaner, busier, and more magical by many degrees. Contact with the system has been re-established, updating status. Experience gained 48.92. Skills have increased proficiency. Magic Missile Expert, mid-uncommon active, 90.13. Fires a projectile of mana, power scales with mana consumption, unable to exceed 50 mana per shot. Maximum range equals intelligence times 1.75 divided by meters. If remotely controlled, there is an additional mana cost of 0.65 mana per second. Otherwise, direction of travel is set on initial creation of shot. Mana control expert. High, uncommon, passive. 87.92%. Your practice with magic has led to a great familiarity with handling mana. Maximum quantity of mana able to be controlled reliably. 100 mana. Minimum quantity of mana able to be controlled reliably. 0.2 mana. Multitasking advanced. Mid, uncommon, passive. 32.48. You are skilled at doing multiple things at once. Small increases to your ability to keep track of multiple things at once. Small decreases in reduction of precision when performing multiple tasks at once. Gaming. Tic-tac-toe master. Low unique passive. 48.97. You are a master at tic-tac-toe. Congratulations! Slight instinctive ability to correctly guess the outcome of a 50-50 and a 1 in 3 gambles. Foreign mana. Mana regeneration reduced by 100 minus wisdom percent. Unaffected if wisdom is equal or greater to 100. Abundant mana. Effects of all magic increased by 10%. Costs reduced by 10%. Mana regeneration doubled. Master in tic-tac-toe, huh? Didn't expect it would be that high this quickly. I suppose it's to be expected. Tic-tac-toe is an incredibly simple game once you make it even a slight analysis of it. As for when I played it, I did take some breaks while training. Talking wasn't always an option, and Minesweeper... 
Well, the way I played it takes way too long, so I figured why not play tic-tac-toe. Much quicker. Now, tic-tac-toe isn't in the game's menu, but Minesweeper, a grid. So, I just used 303 area with flags, with O's and question marks, with X's and O's. It's good that all my chaming paid dividends, even if not all that was actually intended as such. And that's abundant mana bonus puts my regeneration up to, uh, slightly higher than my usual, even with the foreign mana debuff. Forktastic. It's good to be back, Drea sighs. It's an impressive place, I agree. My office, Drea asks quizzically. That's nothing much. No, the city, I say. The amount of crime I can see is much lower than the other cities I've visited. Practically non-existent. Cleaner and more advanced too, not to mention the sheer diversity. I'm just counting the ones I can see and I've already tallied up over 50 different species. Glad to hear it's going as well as always, Treya smiles. As I said, Abadak is the center of all magical learning and this academy is the best there is. Even here, people from all over, even different worlds, and with the number of mages, wizards, sorcerers and so on here. It's practically impossible to commit a crime without being noticed, even if it looks like nobody is watching. I look at my immediate vicinity, much like Dre's house on the other side of the portal. The room is scarcely furnished. Rather than an office, this room looks to be more for residential purposes, while another larger room off through the door looks to be an actual office. Unlocking the door with a wave of his paw, Dreyer walks through and looks at a pile of papers and letters on his desk in dismay. I suppose things do build up when you're out exploring the worlds for a few years. He sighs, sitting down and looking at one of the things on his desk. Good news. We are in an enrollment period right now, Dreyer says. Wasn't sure that we would be. It's hard to keep track of the date when some worlds have longer or shorter days. Chances were good, though. We take in new students four times a year. All right, what now? I asked, excited and not a little nervous. Now we go enroll you. Dreyer unlocks the main door and enters the corridor outside it, closing and relocking the door before he sets off. He walks for quite a while before arriving at a large auditorium, packed with several lines of people. Dreyer! Hey, you're back! How are you doing? One of the people, heading the lines likely a teacher, calls out to Dreyer much to the annoyance of the person that he was supposed to be enrolling. He appears almost human, if not for the short layer of hair all over his body, the protruding jawline, a flat nose, and a waving tail. If I were a hazard a guess, I would say that he's some type of monkey beastman. Dreya hurries over. Well, considering my luck this time around, I ended up visiting both Ignis and Hal. How about you, Olsen? Olsen winces. No wonder your fur seems a bit darker. Happy to hear you're still kicking, even after all that. I'm doing fine, but what brings you to round these parts? I could say the same to you, notes Dreya. Shouldn't you be off trying to figure out how to turn your spit into diamonds? Figured that one out ages ago, thanks. Olsen waves a hand exaggeratingly. Accidentally spit hot coffee on the dean's robes. It's only for the day, but gods, this is boring. And you didn't answer my question. Helping a friend to enroll, Dreya shrugs. Oh, want me to do it now? Olsen looks around. Or are they not here yet? I'll wait in line, Dreya says, to the relief of the person still waiting to enroll. Your loss, Olsen shrugs, turning back to the person in front of him. 
Drea heads to the back of the queue, and the lion starts slowly crawling along again. After perhaps an hour of waiting, we reach the front. Are they still not here? I can't hold everyone up for long, even if it's you, you know, Olsen says, scratching his armpit. Drea presents me. Olsen looks at me. Is this a joke? I don't get it. Lying mentally, I manipulate myself into a mini-man and wave at him. All right, not a joke, Olsen eyes me curiously. If you don't mind me asking, what are you? A living fork, if you can believe it, Treya says. He can only talk with telepathy, unfortunately. Olsen's eyebrows hike up his forehead. Now, Treya, I'm not saying you're lying, but I can't take you at face value for something like this. If an enrollment form goes to the higher-ups with a race like that written on it, without proof, I'll be a laughingstock. But you saw, he was just a fork a second ago, Drea frowns. You know something like that could be faked. Olsen shakes his head. Look, only way we'll be comfortable writing it down in the forms to show me its status. There's no faking that. My whole status, I ask him, reaching out telepathically. I'm not sure I'd be comfortable with that. You weren't kidding about telepathy, Olsen nods. Not the whole thing, just your race. How do I do that? I ask, showing him my race isn't a problem, after all. Ah, uh, it's show Orson race, Orson says. Show Orson race. No kidding. Orson shakes his head in disbelief. All right, let's do this. Name? Gerald, I say. Age? He asks. Yeah, I'll have to use the show command for that. No way he'll believe that I'm 17 months old. I should be freaking baby by normal logic. Show Orson age. Seventeen? Okay. Wait, months? You sure you're old enough for this? Olsen asks, confused. I got reincarnated into this body. My actual age is closer to twenty-four years old. I say, not expecting him to believe a word of it. Whatever, it's your choice, either way. Olsen shakes his head. Gender? Show Olsen gender. Makes sense, I guess. Any prior experience of magic? Show Olsen mana control and magic missile. All right, that's a bit out of the ordinary. Anything else, he asks. No, those are my only magic-related skills, unless you count magic edge or mana sight, I reply. Could you show me that last one, he asks. Show Olsen mana sight. Sheesh, wish I had that skill. All right, that's about it. Any disabilities? Can you move on your own, he asks. I can move perfectly fine, other than that, well, other than manasite, I can't see, other than telepathy, I can't speak, and can't hear, smell, taste, or feel. That is a problem, Olsen scratches his chin, not one that can't be solved, though. Well, that's all, I think. Do you think that we can get a scholarship, Dre asks. He doesn't exactly have any money. A scholarship? Olsen barks with laughter. Even if his skills didn't qualify him, his age would be technicality. The amount of talent required to display or to receive a scholarship is proportional to age. Since he's not even two years, he exceeds the threshold to be considerable amount. There's no minimum age to enroll, I ask. Nope. We accept all races, and some mature earlier than others. Besides, what would be the point of enrolling a kid? They just get expelled when they don't pass their first term courses, Olsen explains. So, what now, I ask. Olsen shrugs. You wait until the enrollment period is over, then message will be delivered to your residence. Which is where, by the way? Just deliver it to my office. 
The world I traveled to last was quite nice, so we're living there, Drea says. Woodland, Orson asks. Without end, Drea agrees. Orson smiles. Man, you lucked out. It's all right if I come over sometime. Always, Drea smiles back, and they shake hands. We'll see you again when this is done. Don't remind me, Orson groans, turning back to the barely diminished line behind us. I think that went well, I say to Dreyer as he walks away. It did, he replies. Should only be a few days before we hear some news. And we're going to be all right without a proper sight. I mean, you can only go so far teaching without writing things down, I worry. Dreyer shakes his head. You'll soon realize that many things that seem impossible before are easily fixed here. If you manage to get a scholarship, and it sounds like you will, there won't be any issues. How fortunate. It seems that it has, as always, come to another wait. But that's all right. I can wait. I have the patience of a fork, after all. End of chapter. Chapter 34 the beginning of everyday school life or an everyday fork. Despite Dreyer thinking that it would take a few days before we heard anything, Dreyer received the letter the very next day. It's from the dean, Dreyer says, reading through it. She wants to meet you in person. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, I ask? Dreyer shrugs. She probably is just curious, but whatever the reason, it seems she'll be the one making the final decision in your enrollment. I guess so. When does she want to meet? This evening. The academy is large, with many different areas and rooms. Some of them I can see, but most of them are blocked from my view. Dreyer's office is actually one of these places. From the outside, I can't see anything inside, but if I'm inside the room itself, I can see both the inside and the outside. The result of some magic that I couldn't begin to fathom, I'm sure. Another one of these places is the dean's office. So Australia hikes up yet another set of stairs, I have no clue what lies ahead. I really wish they built this tower a bit lower, Dreya huffs. I have trouble climbing all these stairs. I'm a squirrel beastman. Must be torture on some people. At about the width of two people abreast, the staircase spirals up the interior of the tower, from the base to what I assume is the top without a single room in between. The tower is large enough that the staircase leaves a circle of empty space a few meters wide in the center, all the way up in what would be a horrendous safety hazard if not for the sturdy railing along the edge of the staircase. After about half an hour of climbing, a thoroughly exhausted Drea lifts a hand and knocks on the door. A brief moment of silence and the door swings silently inwards to reveal that there is nobody behind it but also another staircase. This one, however, has a dozen or so stairs and Drea quickly reaches the top. Once there, I am finally able to see what lies within it. Or, more accurately, without it. This is indeed the top of the tower, but it isn't all how I imagined it would be. Rather than a room, this is a platform open to the elements on all sides but the bottom. We are in mere centimeters above the clouds, so it almost appears as if we could step off the platform onto the fluffy surface that extends for kilometers. The platform itself is mostly unadorned with furniture, featuring only a large desk with a few chairs positioned around it. 
At the edge of the platform behind the desk, there are a pair of doors that do not appear to lead anywhere. Sitting behind the desk is a woman dressed in a robe similar to everyone else in the academy, but she's almost incorporeal. Her body looks like it's flowing as if it were made of water. That aside, she's bright, extremely so. How much mana do you have to have to look like that? Please, Drea, take a seat, the dean says, gesturing gracefully with a hand. You must be tired. Tea? Coffee? Drea stumps into the proffered chair, placing me on the desk in front of him. Tea, thanks, Cleo. If I have coffee, I won't be able to sit still. Cleo, I asked. She's not fond of formalities, Drea replies. Indeed, I find them to be a terrible waste of time. Cleo agrees. She gestures and the door behind her opens and a now familiar vortex of manner swirling behind it. A teapot drifts out of the portal, seemingly unsupported, and the door shuts behind it as a thick tendril of cloud twists into a pot, filling it up. You can intercept telepathy, Drea asks, surprised. You're a psychic. I dabbled once. I was never talented, but I did manage to learn a few tricks. Cleo shrugs lightly and looks down at the me. It's true, then. A living fork. Intriguing. Yes, I never met anyone quite like him, Jay replies. With another gesture, a needle, a thread, what looks like some scrap of leather, a small knife and some leaves come drifting through the door and onto the desk. The leaves deposit themselves into the now boiling water of teapot, while the needle, thread and knife begin to work stitching something together out of the leather. Nor have I, Leo states, sliding one of the desk straws open and retrieving two small objects from it before once again sliding it closed. Picking the now-finished thingamajig up off the air, Cleo lifts me and fits it around my tines, inserting the two objects into it and securing them with flaps. This small tug, she tightens the whole thing onto me and ties it into place. Drea looks at my new apparel with confusion. What's that? His uniform, so to speak, but also a tool. Cleo regarded her handiwork for a moment, nodding silently. The magical tool above you is called the Eye of Clairvoyance. It is normally used as a component in scouting and remotely controlled magical tools, but it'll work just the same here to give you sight and hearing. Just channel your manner into it where it touches you. Seriously? I tried immediately, channeling a trickle of manner into the object in my hand. A small portion of vision lights up in the colors of shadows. A little bit more, but I can hear what Cleo speaks, so I increase the flow of manner just a little bit more. There we are. Holy crepe! I actually heard something. I can hear. I can see. I can... Whoa, that's a little weird. Where the vision from the manor sight and from the eye of clairvoyance overlap, I can see both of them at once overlaid upon each other. On one hand, I see a bright mass of manor in the shape of a woman where Cleo sits, twisting like currents of water. No. Eh. On the other, I see a slightly transparent woman whose skin is moving and curling like she's made of mist instead of flesh. As I'm enjoying the new senses, Cleo speaks again. Below you is what is known as a ventriloquist's aid. It will let you speak aloud when you channel manor into it. It's quite similar to how you speak using telepathy, so you'll be able to use it without a problem. Seriously? Well, this certainly wasn't what I was expecting coming up here, but this is a nice surprise. 
I say, almost surprised by the sound of my own voice. Thanks for this. From what you've said, can I assume that my enrollment is successful? Skill gained, common language spoken, expert. You know most commonly used words in the common language. Only obscure and occupational specific words are likely to be outside of your knowledge. Huh. Am I speaking another language now using psychic translation? Or is English called common here? That's quite all right, yes, I've approved your enrollment. There are very few at your age with skills similar to what you possess. How is it that you came to train them to such a standard at such an early stage of life? Cleo asks curiously, My God, that's something I must tremendously... Intonation. I can finally detect sarcasm again. Hallelujah. Well, I can't sleep. And as you can see, that's not exactly any way for me to do for hobbies or general social interactions others might use to pass the time, I replied wryly. I could either watch the days pass or experiment with manner, and the world just isn't as interesting without color. You sound as if you speak from experience, Cleo notes, raising her eyebrows. I do. I used to be human, believe it or not. Then somehow, I or other, I died, and the next thing I knew, I was a fork, I explained. I'll admit, I had some dark days back then, but parts of it have grown on me. Reincarnation. Such a thing lies solely in the hands of gods, Cleo muses. Which world were you from, Odwea? No. You probably haven't heard of the world I'm from, I say. I haven't heard the name Earth even mentioned since I was born into this world. Not as a proper noun, at least. I was from Earth. 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 I seem to recall, looking to the sky, Cleo seems to remember something. Yes, I believe I went there once. It was a strange world, one without a system, manner, or anything else for that matter. That's it, all right, I say, surprised. I cannot imagine that the gods would be interested in a world of such as Earth, nor why one would choose to reincarnate you as a fork, of all things. Cleo shakes her head, perplexed. I must admit that I have never even heard of your kind before today. Are there others? No, I reply. Just me. You sound sure, clear notes. I have a title called Progenitor that states that I am the first of my species. Given that I can't reproduce, unless the gods have been making more like me, I am the only living folk there is and will ever be, I state frankly. The door opens and lets two teacups and saucers drift through. I see the barest glimpse of a room beyond the doors before they close. The teapot dips, pouring its contents into the cups, which drift to sit before Cleo and Drea. They each take a sip. While I would gladly hear more about yourself, I'm afraid I have little time left in my schedule, and we must get down to business. Cleo sets the teacup down with a light clink. Drea, my apologies, but I'll have to hear your adventures another time. No problem, I'll need to write them up my experiences first anyway. My most recent notes got burned up in Ignis, Drea says with resignation. Cleo nods to him and then looks back to me. Those magic tools have been lent to you, not given as a gift. If they are damaged or destroyed, you must reimburse the Academy. And upon leaving the Academy, you must return them. Sounds fair to me, I agree. Hopefully by the time I leave, I won't need them any more. You qualify for a scholarship, and your first term will be paid for, Cleo continues. Furthermore, as I've determined that you're a legitimate applicant, you'll be granted 2,000 ro. Ro? I ask. Dre replies. 
It's the currency used in Arbidak. Upon the completion of your first term, you will be assessed to determine whether you will continue to be eligible for the scholarship, Cleo explains. Apart from that, do you have a residence? He's staying with me for now, Treya says. Very well, Cleo takes another sip. Do you have any questions, Gerald? When does the term begin, I ask. Cleo smiles. Next week, Drea will explain everything you need to know before then. Then that's all I need to know, I say, already resigned to another wait. Sitting down at a teacup, Cleo stands from a chair. Thank you for both coming. This has been an interesting meeting. I found it illuminating myself, I reply, a hint of humor in my voice. Drea downs the rest of his tea in one gulp. Standing, he picks me up and nods deeply to Cleo. Thanks for the time, he says. Cleo nods slightly in return. Dre takes steps back down, the door closing behind us as we leave. Sigh, he starts to slow his descent back down. Well, she seemed nice, I say. You know that Cleo can still hear you, right? Drea shakes his head. Honestly, I'd be disappointed if she couldn't. With that level of control over the wind, I reply. There is no fire under that teapot. I have no clue how you'd even begin to boil water with there alone. Compared to that, a little eavesdropping must be practically like child's play. Even among sylphs, Cleo is a unique in her skill, Drea agrees. Sylphs, I ask. Wind spirits, they can naturally control the wind because they're a part of it. You normally don't see them. They rarely stay in one place for long, Drea explains. Cleo is one of the more rare few who keeps themselves grounded, so to speak. Hmm, so what do I need to know about the academy? I asked, changing the subject. Drea scratches his head. There's a lot, but most of it you should be able to figure out as you go along. Formerly, this place is known as Wetham Academy of Magic and Related Subjects, but most people just refer to it as Wetham Academy, or their academy. I might have already mentioned it, but there are four terms a year, even for each term you pick your subjects. Technically, you can pick as many as you want, but in reality, clashing lesson times and workload make it difficult for anyone to do more than six. Most people just do four, or even two, Drea continues. Well, not that you'll have to worry about that right now. First term is set out for you. Standard procedure to make sure everyone coming in knows at least the basics. Other than that, there's not much to say. Rules are pretty much common sense, and I can lend you the rule book later, if you're curious. There's a huge library, dueling grounds, artificing workshops, alchemy laboratories, anything you could possibly want or need that's magic-related, Drea finishes. When you put it like that, it makes me even more anxious for this week to pass, I say. Drea shrugs. These things take time. I know, I reply. The conversation lapses and I take an opportunity to look at my status to try and get an idea of how much mana I'm using. Unfortunately, for perhaps fortunately, my mana is still at its maximum, so the mana consumption is less than my regeneration, but I don't know by how much. It could be taking one mana or ten, but it wouldn't reflect in either way on my status. Either way, though, it means that I can keep using these magical tools indefinitely. The time passes quicker now that I can see as a human would, although in comparison to my memories has allowed me to determine that I can't see as far or as in much detail as I used to be able to. But it's enough, for now at least. 
and read through the rule book that Treya mentioned, mostly as something to pass the time, but also because I don't want to screw up on something unintentionally and end up getting expelled. Drea was right, it's almost mostly common sense. Stuff like don't steal, don't use magic on others without a consent, and even then it's probably unwise. No fighting outside the duelling grounds, which have a whole section of rules devoted to them, and so on and so forth. Of course, the book doesn't say it in so few words, but that's the general gist of things. I also take a look at some of the maps of the academy to make sure that I don't get lost moving around. With Manasite, it's an unlikely prospect, but it doesn't hurt to have additional information. And like that, a week passes. I hover over the auditorium on my own for the welcoming ceremony. Drea offered to carry me, but it's not like he could carry me to every class. I would end up standing out anyway, so I may as well do it myself. The people I pass gawk at me, but not as much as I had thought. By the conversations, they seem to think that I'm oddly shaped magical tool. I'm fine with that. When I near the auditorium, it's already packed with people, ordered by how many terms they've completed. My group, the new students, is the largest, while it seems like some of the most senior groups have been placed together because of how few there are. At the entrance, there is a small queue of students being directed towards the groups by a teacher. After a short wait in line, I reach the front. The teacher takes one look at me and says, No remote magical tools allowed. Next. Wait, I'm a student, I protest. Check your list for Gerald. Pausing, the teacher leafs through the list of pages before finding a name, and race listed there. My apologies, she said, although her eyebrows have hiked halfway up her forehead. Right up the front. Mentally breathing a sigh of relief, I move to join the group, hovering around the chest height. Manisite doesn't require me to have line of sight, so there is no point in blocking anyone else's views. The people around me whisper and fidget, looking around at the massive auditorium and the arrayed seniors with no small degree of awe. Most of the newcomers look young, maybe ranging from 10 to 15 years of age, although some few are older and a couple are slightly younger. Others I can't tell their age because of their race. There's a massive array of races here, most of them humanoid, but others less so. Just from the ones I can name, I can see humans, elves, dwarves, goblins, orcs, fairies, halflings, gnomes, beastmen, demi-humans, centaurs, lamia, nagas, kobolds, gnolls, lizardmen, harpies, and a couple of mermaids in a small pool of water at the edge of the auditorium. A giant, a sphinx, a cyclops, a mind flayer, and what I think is a mimic slime, and some I can only assume to be elementals. Eventually, everyone arrives and the doors close. The lines of teachers walk onto the stage, Drea amongst them. Cleo walks, or rather drifts, to the podium and begins to speak. Good morning and welcome to the third term of this year at Wetham Academy. Her voice can clearly hear even at the back of the auditorium, judging by the reactions of the people there. But whether it's due to a magical tool or her own magic, I can't be sure. There are so many enchantments and magic flowing through the air and walls here that it is difficult to tell where one starts and another begins. Or perhaps it's all one spell, just moving and changing constantly. Honestly, I have no clue. Cleo continues to speak, welcoming everyone back and offering her thanks to the teachers and staff for their smooth enrollment process. 
but not saying anything particularly interesting to me. In other news, some of the more senior students may be happy to hear that Drea has returned from his travels and will be available this term to teach space magic to anyone with the skill and intent to learn. Cleo says as Drea waves a hand from the row of teachers. A few of the people towards the rear of the auditorium smile at the serendipitous pump their fists in response. So it turns out he's a pretty popular. I guess that makes sense. Space magic, as far as I've seen, is incredibly powerful and versatile. About another five minutes of announcements and such, Cleo finishes up. Thank you for listening, and now the new students will follow their teachers to the first lesson. As students have been assigned in classes in alphabetical order, please pay attention to the signs the teachers are holding so that you follow the correct teacher. The students in the second term, please follow Mr. Hartwick to choose your classes. As for the rest of you, you know where to go. Cleo stepped off the podium, and all the teachers but four disperse. Those four walk to the front. Sadly, none of them are Drea, holding up signs. Inevitably, a cacophony of chatter almost instantly breaks out around me as everyone crowds towards the teachers. Sighing to myself mentally, I hover a bit higher to get a better look at the signs. Then higher again when I notice that one is particularly low. On them are written A to E, F to J, K to P, and Q to Z. I start moving off towards the teacher holding the F to J sign when I notice a small halfling boy jumping up and down in a fruitless attempt to see the signs. He looks very anxious and is starting to look a bit panicky, so I hover over towards him. Having trouble seeing the signs, the boy looks at me for a moment godsmacked before finding his tongue again. Uh, yes, my name is Ouya. Do you know where I need to go? Sure, I say calmly. I'm not sure if I caught your first name right. What did it start with? I, he replies, reacting to my calmness and visibly startling to calm down. Looks like you're in the same class as me, so you can just follow me, I say, starting to head towards the teacher. If you happen to get lost, the teacher is a uh, sh- a bit taller than you, with brown hair and a full white beard and thick glasses. I think he might be a gnome, but I'm not entirely sure. Ouya follows me, his short legs moving much faster than everyone else's, in order to keep up. Thanks. What's your name? Gerald, I reply. Gerald, Ouya muses, looking up at me. If you, um, don't mind me asking, what are you? Exactly what I look like, I state, already having expected the question. A fork? Ouya asks. A fork, I agree. Ouya scratches his head. That's just weird, he says, confused. How can a person be a fork? I'm not even mad, he just sounds so legitimately confused as to how I can be a fork. I'm weird like that, I agree. Huh, Ouya mutters and then falls silent. The teachers lead our small crowd through the corridors and hallways until we finally heard us inside a classroom labeled B1G.7. Standing up in front, he says, Pick whichever desk you like and I'll call the roll to make sure everyone is here. Fearing that my eye would fail to make out the full detail written on the blackboard from the rear of the room, I make a beeline for the front and center desk and set myself down upon it. A few seconds later, a girl with a grubby face falls at the chair and attempts to sit. I'm already sitting here, thanks, I say, startling her out of the chair instantly. She gives me a strange look but moves and sits to my left without saying anything. 
Ouya sits down to my right and smiles at me briefly before he awkwardly notices that I am incapable of replying in kind and looks ahead at the teacher. He begins to call out names. When he gets to mine, he stalls for half a second before calling it out. I reply like everyone else and he looks at me for a moment before shrugging to himself and continuing on. Ouya name gets called shortly after, then right towards the end. Joe, the teacher calls out. Here came a reply with a voice significantly deeper than everyone else before him, almost raspy, but I don't see anyone opening their mouth on the manor site. I practically ignore the girls on my left replying to her name, Joyce, as a half in disbelief, half in dread. I swivel myself around to face the back of the classroom. I see an old man sitting there with the school robes, his brilliantly blue eyes looking straight at me. I turn off my eye. He... And only he disappears from my sight. I turn it back on, and there he is. Joe. End of chapter. Side story number one. Her Menegild. There were a people who lived deep underground, far from the touch of sunlight, the wind, and the rain. When they first entered these depths many generations before, they were halflings, short and gentle folk who could be mistaken for human children from a distance. Now, with milky white skin and overly large eyes, their surface-dwelling cousins referred to them as deep halflings, not from fear, but merely from recognition of the fact that the two peoples were no longer the same. Among them were two enchanters of exceptional skill, even for the deep halflings, as these things often happened, the two, man and woman, developed feelings for one another, married, and had a child. The couple named him Hermanagild, which meant immense treasure, for they felt that he was considerably more valuable to them than even the significant wealth. Before long, it became apparent that he was extraordinary. Hermanagild's tiny, pale hand held onto a piece of charcoal, drawing patterns on the cave floor half seen from his parents' notes. The cave was poorly lit, so it was with some difficulty that he crudely drew what parts of it he could remember. Standing up to view his work, his gaze was drawn to a particular pattern, more complete than the others. Sitting back down in front of it, he again put his charcoal to use, joining incomplete lines together. He didn't understand enough at the time to know exactly why he drew those lines as he did, but the pattern had a high degree of symmetry, something his young mind had evidently picked up on and used to deduce the complete pattern. Even though the pattern was completed, Hermana Girl still felt that something was missing. He felt something shift within him, and he instinctively guided the feeding towards the pattern on the ground, causing it to emit a dim light. That day, he simultaneously completed his first enchantment and used mana for the first time. By the time his parents found him, her mana girl booed by his first success had somehow managed to complete another pattern and was watching in rapture as a tiny wisp of flame twisted about it. He was barely a year old. At four years of age, her mana girl enchanted tools to have greater strength and durability, showing no sign of crudeness in his first attempts. His parents would catalyze his enchantments with their own manner, significantly stronger in the arcane arts as they were. 
They were hesitant at first to teach him at such a young age, but he seemed to have little interest in anything else, and he had such a voracious appetite for knowledge that they almost felt that it was wrong not to. That appetite, the two experienced and knowledgeable teachers had an almost supernatural talent for the craft, meant that he advanced extremely quickly. Another four years passed, and her manner girl did not take relaxed his studies. Seeking knowledge had not contained within his own community. He spent time learning from the gnomes and even one of the more friendly factions of the drow, albeit under heavy guard. By the time he returned home, he had touched upon nearly every branch and variation of magic. He had not yet had the time to venture too deeply into them, but had learned enough to be useful. At this point, his enchanting knowledge and his skill were almost equal to that of his parents, and his knowledge of magic as a whole even surpassed them. Another two years passed, and Hermanagild's skills again increased, but not at the same breakneck pace as before. His parents, fearing for his social life, had pushed him to join one of the more community, which he had previously been ignoring in favor of his studies. They introduced him to a blacksmith who supplied them with tools, the baker, the seamstress, the farmers, and a dozen other people of various professions. Thereafter, whenever the family was running low on anything, Hermanagild would be the one to go and purchase more and bring it home. At first, he resented the distraction. Why? All the time spent fetching materials and food was time that he could be using to study enchanting, and therefore time wasted. But then he noticed a few things. For starters, the other boys his age were very happy doing whatever it was they were doing with that sphere. He wasn't sure it wasn't enchanting. His parents would have mentioned it if there was some strange method, or he would have come across some record of it. Interest piqued, he inquired as to the objective of the apparent sphere-kicking, and was quickly drafted into a game. He was absolutely terrible at it, but that did not stop him. The next day he returned wearing enchanted equipment, which enhanced his speed and strength. For the first half an hour he kept stumbling over himself, and even worse than the previous day. Overjudging how much strength he needed to put into the movements, because of the sudden increase. After he got used to it, well, despite his newfound physical advantage, the other boys were still considerably more skilled at the game, and outmaneuvered him at every turn. He soon decided that as the enchantments could not give him a conclusive advantage, he would just have to practice instead. After that, he would go down there nearly every day. His parents were quite delighted. He also found the freshly baked bread realized a tantalizing delicious smell that led almost without exception to him perching a loaf for himself, and when he couldn't finish it himself, the other boys to eat. Through this he made another discovery. The baker's daughter was really quite pretty. Of course, being young, the attempts he made to impress her were often led to him embarrassing himself, but he always managed to at least make her laugh and that was the reason enough for him to keep trying. The deep halflings were not unlike the surface-dreading cousins in their distaste for conflict, but unlike the halflings so secluded and away from the rest of the world, the deep halflings were not alone underground, and the neighbors did not always have the best intentions. There was an arachne, beings that were part man, part spider, powerful, and more than willing to kill and eat anything and anyone that crossed their path. 
Still, apart from what was dubbed Silk Season by the seamstress and the Howl Season by everyone else, they kept their own parts of the underground. More dangerous were the drow, dark cousins of the surface-dwelling owls that preferred not to be likened to the lesser relatives. Sly and ambitious, the only thing that stopped them from warring with other races more than they really did was internal conflict between the drow factions. In order to protect themselves from the drow, the deep halflings allied themselves with the last prominent race in their section of the underground, the gnomes. The gnomes had been down here for a long time before the halflings and had to survive on their own against the physically superior drow and arachne. They did this with a fusion of magic and scientific technologies, creating weapons and equipment which would grant great fighting power to whomever used them. In return for the use of the Deep Halfling's enchanting prowess, the gnomes would defend them in the times of need. Three years later, her manor girl was thirteen, and the best enchanter amongst the Deep Halflings by a considerable margin, designing and creating marvels of enchanting which awed the other enchanters in the town. He still went out with the other boys to play, visited the bakery and tried to make the baker's daughter smile and laugh but at the same time his works were in high demand amongst the halflings and gnomes alike. Things were going well, to say the least. Of course, if things continued that way, it wouldn't be much of a story, and the world might be a very different place. A man of gold's parents woke him from a deep sleep one night with grim expressions and brought him along to the town hall. As they walked, he idly wondered what the toll of the bell echoing through the caves meant. It wasn't just them and the town head there, either. Before long, nearly everyone worthy of note in the town was there. The butcher, the baker, the seamstress, the head of the guard, who defended the town against the mundane threats like monsters or the stray arachne, to mention a few. Every one of them were at least a decade older than himself, so her manigold was feeling very out of place, standing there in silence as the town head checked that everyone who was meant to be there was. Finally, he sighed. Everyone's here, so I'll get started. Ceres, who was gathering intelligence amongst the drow, sent us a message. He held up a notebook. A man girl recognized it as one of a pair, enchanted with some pathetic magic to mimic what was written in its twin, and vice versa. A simple enough enchantment, and very useful, although weaker enchantments would deliberately limitations on range. The drow are planning to mount another attack on us, the town head said. A few people gasped, although the head of the guard was unfazed. What's the problem? We got intel earlier this time. Contact the gnomes and they should have plenty of time to prepare a defense. A few people nodded, Hermagald included. It was all hell season, so the drow would have to wait until it ended to mount their assault. At least that's what the history books of Hermagald had read said. There wouldn't be an attack in his lifetime. Unfortunately, the situation is worse than you think. The town head shook his head. Sarah says that they have some way to avoid the arachne. We don't have a couple months, we have a week, at best. And the gnomes can't help us. The room became deathly quiet. You mean we're on our own? The head of the guard asked, his face paling in an almost ghostly white. The town head nodded tiredly. How many fighting men do we have? Eleven, 
The head of the guard gulped. I was there at the last battle with the drow. Our boys won't be able to defeat a drow in single combat, even with enchanted equipment, and there will be hundreds of them. There was no sign of surprise in the town head's face. He had been told exactly what he expected to hear. If anyone has any suggestions, I am open to hearing them. We could collapse the entrance to the tunnels and caves, someone suggested bleakly. I doubt it'll do much than delay them, but at this point I'll take what I can get. Anything else? he asked again. Could we enchant the area they go through to go up in flames when they go over it? Someone asked, asked dubiously. They looked at Hermanagild and his parents. Hermanagild was still in shock over what was happening, so his parents answered. It could be done, yes, but it would require quite a bit of mana. We would probably only be able to activate it a few times, and only if everyone were to supply mana to it. Better than nothing, the town head sighed. Make it happen. A few other methods were discussed, but none of them were able to come up with anything powerful or ingenious enough to save them. Hermanagil and his parents returned to their home with gloomy faces. After arriving, they sat at the table, none of them feeling like returning to sleep after what they had learned. After a minute of silence, Hermanagild asked quietly, Are we going to die? All of us. His parents didn't say anything, their silence telling him that he didn't want to hear. I'm going to go to the workshop, see if I can think of anything. His parents watched him leave, still silent. Can you think of anything? The father asked his wife, because I am drawing a blank. She shook her head. Nothing. They nodded sadly. Do you think you'll be able to think of anything? If you can't, then I'm afraid there's nothing we can do, she replied, looking towards the workshop. He sighs, something that was all too common that night. We should get some rest. We have enchantments to do in the morning. In the morning, Hermanagild's bed was still empty, so his parents went to the workshop to check on him. They found him sitting on a chair, sobbing into his arms with stacks of paper and tombs strewn about the desk in front of him. Immediately, they went to embrace him. It's all right, his mother comforted him. We have some time. You'll think of something. I already have, Hermanagild sobs, but it's hardly any better than letting the drow kill us. He waved at the paper in front of him, an intricate lattice of designs and formulas. His parents looked at the paper and then at each other. Apart from a few components, they couldn't understand what it did or how it worked whatsoever. What does it do? his father asked. It's based loosely on drow magic, but I improved the design significantly, so it is much more efficient than anything that they could create. He explained, a little bit of light returning to his eyes before they dimmed again. It, if you put it on a weapon and use it to stab someone in the heart and activate the enchantment, then it will drain the victim's strength and channel it into the user. His mother shook her head. A temporary enchantment, even if stack, wouldn't be enough to overcome the army. It's permanent, Hermana girl said hoarsely, and you still don't understand. I modified the enchantment so that it will have the greater effect on its victim as willing. Willing? But the drow puzzled the mother. His father's face hardened. Not the drow. Hermanagild nodded. The only way I could possibly conceive of us winning was for someone to use this to uh, kill some of the townsfolk and create a warrior capable of fighting the army by himself. What? 
his mother gasped before seeming to cool down abruptly. How? How many people will it take? I don't know, Hermana Gold cried in distress. A quarter of us, a half, maybe even the whole town wouldn't be enough. Like I said, it's almost just better to let them kill us all. Calm down, Herman, his father soothed him. He will have some rest and then try to think of something else. We'll inform the town head that we have this, at least as a last resort. This isn't a decision that we can make ourselves. All right, Hermana Gold said and got up and traipsed out of the room. We may not have a choice but to use it if he doesn't come up with something better. The town head said after hearing the explanation. We've lost contact with Ceres. The notebook melted into an acrid goop early this morning. See me again at the end of the day. If there's nothing new, I'll put it to a vote. Hermanigold's parents, along with the other enchanters, made good progress during the day enchanting the ground or the cave that the drow would have to cross to enter the town. They returned home in the evening to find Hermanigold in the workshop with dozens of boulder papers strewn around the floor. Hearing their footsteps, he turned his head towards them. Nothing, he croaked. I wasn't able to come up with anything else. His parents embraced him, murmuring meanless assurances. After a while, his father stood. Come on, we need to let the town head know. He's going to put it to a vote, whether we should use it to enchantment or not. Nothing, the town head asked. Nothing, Hermanagild's father replied. The town head sighed heavily and sighed to a man waiting just nearby. Moments later, the bell began to toll, different to the one the previous night. This one called the congregation of not just the town's most prominent members, but to the entire population. It took almost an hour for them to congregate. A milling crowd of perhaps a thousand people were constant whisper of conversation audible throughout it. The town head at the front raised podium. Once he was satisfied everyone was there, the town head began to speak, raising a cone enchanted to amplify sound that passed through it to his mouth. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Most of you are already aware, but the drow will be mounting an assault on the town within a matter of days. This statement was met by silence. The drow, he continued, have discovered some means of traveling during hell season, an ability that our allies, the gnomes, do not possess themselves. For this fight, we are alone. Some of the people began to sob. Naturally, we are doing what we can to prepare the defenses, but, to be perfectly honest, we can delay them, we can hurt them, but we don't even have the slightest hope of beating them. More sobs. Young Hermanigold has, uh, come up with something that, uh, you know what, he can probably explain it better in great detail, better than me. The downhead said, beckoning for Hermanigold. Hermanigold was completely taken back. He had not been told about this. What do I say? He whispered furiously to his parents. Just tell them why nothing else would work. Then tell them what it does. After that, it's up to them. His mother whispered back. Hermana girl nodded and headed up to the podium. The town had handed the speaker cone to him and stepped down from the podium. Hermana girl looked at it numbly and the mind panicked before having gazes upon everyone he knew fixed on him. All at once, he knew its workings. Heck, he might have been the one who enchanted this particular one. He checked the room for the signature that he had engraved in every tool he made. Instead, 
he found his mother's. A small smile flickered onto his face for the first time that day, and his mind calmed. He stepped up to the podium, raised the cone, and began to speak. Initially, I thought of creating a weapon, ranged, easy to use, but deadly. I found the design to be feasible. If everyone in town had one of those weapons, it would be impossible for the drought to breach our defenses. The townspeople began to look excited, but their faces fell at his next words. I scrapped that idea. With the time and resources we have, we would only be able to make one or two dozen, not enough to make a significant difference. A few of the other enchanters in the crowd nodded. Even the simplest enchantments took time, and there simply wasn't enough of it. Then I thought of designing a single weapon, powerful enough to destroy their entire army. I discarded that idea partway through the design process for the same reasons. It would be too complex to complete with the time that we have. By now, the townspeople were listening silently. It was clear to them already that whatever he ended up his speech on, it wouldn't be a miracle solution. Armor, equipment, the same. If we were to try something as large-scale as collapsing the cave on their army, it would also take too long to repair, and after all that they would be likely to notice it and find a way to circumvent it. A man looked at the town, and the sea of glum faces stared back at him. I was on the verge of frustration when I had the worst idea that I've ever had. Create a warrior capable of defeating an entire drow army by himself. A few people grasped in surprise, but most of them were skeptical. Naturally, it's not as easy to make someone that powerful. There's always a price. Normally, it would just be in the materials or manner, but in this case, it's a lot worse. I took a drow sacrificial ritual and simplified it, improved it and miniaturized it, adding a few extra restrictions to reduce the normally exorbitant mana cost. Several hundred people's eyes gazed over. I wish I had never created it. Firstly, I hope it never sees the light of day. Amanagild took a deep breath. The enchantment placed upon a suitable weapon allows one to permanently absorb the strength of anyone they killed with it. Should the victim be willing, the drow won't be willing. The only way to create a warrior strong enough is for the some of us, perhaps many of us, are sacrificed. Amanagild hung his head. The town had stepped up with a second speaker cone. I am going to put up to whether this enchantment or not to a vote, but before that, I'd like to ask a few questions for clarification. How much strength is transferred? Amanagild shook his head. I can't be sure. It's never been tested, and I have no practical experience in this. Theoretically, it could be as much as 20 to 22 percent, but realistically, maybe less. How many might have to be sacrificed? The town had gulped. I don't know, Amanagold admitted. At least a few hundred, perhaps more. It might not be enough even with all of us sacrificed. The town head nodded stiffly. All right, I think everybody has heard everything that they want to know. Before we vote, I'm just going to say my part. I know this isn't a good solution, not by a long shot, but it is the only one we've got. This gives us a chance to survive. Now, if you agree to using this, please move to my right. The town head motioned with his free hand. Otherwise, to my left. There was a great shuffle of people moved to the preferred side. Once everything settled down, the results were clear. They would use the enchantment. It seems the people have decided. 
Amanagild, get on to creating that weapon as fast as possible. Everyone else, get some sleep. I'll call another meeting when it's ready. Amanagild and his parents were just about to enter the house and start work when someone caught up with them. Townhead said that you could use this. He said handing them a dark bluish-gray dagger of a length that would be a bit long for a halfling but short for a human. The shape of the knife itself was nondescript. It was something that any weaponsmith would make hundreds of during their lifetime. It's of no make, one of their experimental alloys. They say that it's even tougher than mithril and still conducts mana just as well. They took the dagger and thanked him. Inside the workshop, Hermanagil's father took the sword. Steel, also made by the gnomes, and slashed it down, cutting edge on cutting edge onto the dagger. The sword came out with a deep notch in its edge, while the dagger was nary a scratch. It's quality stuff, all right. Hermanagil's father nodded. We'll have to use our best tools. The three of them spent the whole night and the better part of the next day etching the design into the blade. Not only was the hardness of the blade making the work much tougher than normal, but Manigal's design was incredibly intricate, and the whole thing had to fit on the blade of a dagger. Add on to that the pressure of the entire town depending on them, and the effort involved was incredible. They worked through the magnifying glass of similar quality to a jeweler's loop, their hands moving with such careful precision as a surgeon's. Wiping the sweat from the brows was a constant occurrence, and even a single small mistake would render the efforts thus far worthless. But eventually, it was completed successfully. Breathing heavy sighs of relief, they etched the thin line down the design on the handle of the dagger. It would be through this that the user would supply mana to the enchantment. Once this was done, they went to work with files and sandpaper, smoothing down the rough edges and their etching and readying it for the next step, which was to pour the highly mana-conductive substance into the pattern and leave it to set. Then they would sand down any spillage and make it level with the surface of the blade. All in all, it was a long and arduous process. Finally, it was done. This was an enchantment that had to be activated, rather than one that was permanently active. So Hermanagil's father picked up the dagger and ran his mana through it to test. He frowned and ran it through again. Nothing. Hermanagil looked at the etched pattern for what it felt like a hundredth time, then compared it to his original design. They were completely identical, without mistake or blemish. He poured over the design once again and broke out in a cold sweat. He had made a mistake. Moreover, it wasn't a small one. It was a great, big, catastrophic mistake. To fully understand the enormity of this mistake, one must know some basic facts about enchantments. Namely, enchantments were designed in such a way that anyone could use them. Anyone. Even the enchantments that had to be activated were designed in such a way that all you had to do was put enough mana into it and it would work. In his frustration, stress, and lack of sleep when designing it, Hermanagild had forgotten the single crucial element of enchanting. He had, as he had said, simplified and improved it, but it was still, in essence, a spell formation. I forgot to include the mana guidance component, Hermanagild breathed. What? Both of his parents yelped. It, it should still work. Let me see. Hermanagild picked up the dagger and began to infuse it with mana, guiding it through the patterns in a particular order and with certain timings. 
After a few moments, the dagger began to radiate a dull black aura. It's all right. I I can teach them how to cast it. It should be fine. To incorporate mana guidance as an enchantment of the type should have would require him to redesign the enchantment from the ground up and repeat the entire process again. It had taken around two days in total to design and produce it the first time, but they were completely burnt out, not to mention that there wasn't a second dagger of comparable quality for them to use. Even with the benefit of already being familiar with the design elements, it would take them at least another two days to make another, and it wasn't as if sacrificing possible hundreds of people and acclimatizing the explosive increase in power that wouldn't tell would take only an instant either. They would need as much time as they could get. I hope so, his father said worriedly, otherwise the only one able to use the stagger would be you, Herman. I, 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 Herman girl stuttered, unable to process the thought. I need to go teach them now. No time. No time. Hermanagold snatched the dagger up and ran to the door. His parents hurried after him. You what? The town head gasped as Hermanagold explained what had happened. And you want to teach a person using it how to use the magic instead. But the head gods are terrible at magic. Isn't there anyone else? One of the other gods? Hermanagold asked desperately. Maybe, the town head said, motioning someone over and saying to them, Bring the head guard, quick. A few minutes later, the head guard came running along. What's the matter? he asked. Besides everything, the town head replied with a sigh, before quickly explaining the situation. Is there anyone amongst the guard who has any skill in magic? There's one. I'll bring him. The head guard dashed off again, shortly returning with another man. All right, Hemmergold, you two have two hours to teach him. After that, we'll have no choice but for you to do it instead. The town head warned. Hermanagild shuddered. Yes, I'll need some paper and charcoal for writing. You will get it shortly. Hermanagild quickly explained things to the guard, who began to tremble. Once the supplies he asked for arrived, Hermanagild quickly sketched up the enchantment's design. At this point, it was practically seared into his memory and he began to explain how it worked and, more importantly, how to activate it properly. It quickly became apparent to him that the guard had little of his own knowledge of magic, despite appearing to be more than twice his age. As time passed, a manacle's hand began to shake, and he even began to cry. It was obvious that it wasn't going to be the guard who would be using the dagger to sacrifice the people of the town and then defend it against the drow. But him, and... It terrified him to no end. Still, he pressed on teaching, not because he'd hoped it would succeed, but because it gave him something to distract himself from the inevitable truth. When an hour passed and the town here came to check on the progress, Hermanagild had managed to calm down somewhat. I'm confident he could activate the two of the components in the enchantment sufficiently well, Hermanagild reported. The town had paused. How many are there? Thirteen, Hermanagold grimaced. So, it's up to you. The town head sighed. Yes, Hermanagold replied sadly. The town head shook his head. I'm sorry I came to this, Hermanagold. It shouldn't be you to bear the weight of the town. It should be on us. It's not your fault, Hermanagold bowed his head. It's not anyone's fault. Nothing more we could do. 
The town head looked at the roof of the cave, and her manigold was shocked to see tears flowing down his face. I'm going to call for volunteers. You should prepare yourself. The town had returned carrying an elderly man. He laid the man carefully on the ground and beckoned her manigold over. The man was severely emaciated, appearing a little more than a sack of skin stretched over a skeleton. Are... are you sure? Hermanigold asked. A fit of coughing racked the man, his mouth dribbling blood as he gasped for air. He nodded weakly and, with great difficulty, moved a hand to tap the gap between two ribs, the place where his heart was. Hermanigold steadied his shaking hands and grasped the dagger. He began to lower it before his heart skipped a beat, and he broke into a cold sweat. In the heat of the moment, he had almost forgotten to activate the spell. Doing so, he lowered the dagger, plunging it directly into the elder man's chest with disturbing ease. The elderly man sucked in a breath, and his eyes opened wide. Hermanigold faintly felt something rush into him, and a flash of white crossed his vision for a brief instant. So brief that he thought that he had imagined it. He could tell that his physical strength and even his manner had increased, not by a substantial amount, but at least by a noticeable amount. Did it work? The downhead asked as he bated breath. Yes, I think so, Hermanigold replied absent-mindedly, staring down at the now-deceased elderly man, the dagger still embedded in his chest. The downhead breathed a sigh of relief. First piece of good news I've had all day. He motioned to someone. Start sending in the volunteers and get people ready for the bury the bodies. Hermanigold pulled the knife free of the corpse and looked at the blood in a daze. The town head clapped him on the shoulder, causing him to jump a bit. Keep yourself together, Hermanigold. We've only just started. Hermanigold abruptly leaned over and regurgitated the contents of his stomach onto the ground. The first dozen or so were halflings too old or sick to live much longer. Then there were another couple dozen with disabilities, lost limbs, senses, who feared that they would be useless in the coming ordeal, and wanted to make a difference in perhaps the only way that they could. Widows, widowers, and even a few orphans, understanding the enormity of the situation, came to sacrifice themselves in hopes of saving the town. A man and girl took the lies and the strength one by one, with tears streaming down his face. Each time he felt an increase in strength less and less, not because they were having much effect, but because the amount he was gaining was less and less each time, in comparison to what he already had. Every time he saw a flash of white, lingering just a bit longer every time. Now too long to be dismissed by a trick of the light and his imagination. The volunteers stopped after a round of eighty was sacrificed. Is it enough? the town head asked. A man stared down at his hands, stained, completely red by the blood that they had been covered in in the time and time again. They felt... different. Stronger. Tougher. Yes. But they no longer felt like his hands. He realized that his entire body felt different. Strange. Alien. As if it wasn't his body at all. Lifting the dagger, he tapped its point onto the ground, or at least that's what he tried to do, and he got driven into the hard stone a couple centimeters deep. He knew that it was something impossible for him to do with his full strength just a short while ago, and here he was doing it with a casual move. But he didn't feel excited or proud, just numb, numb, 
and sad. Pushing harder, he drove it another couple centimeters before he hit something hard and couldn't get it further. He pulled it out, looking down at the head. I don't think it is. He looked back down at his hands, but heard the town head walk away very clearly with his newly enhanced senses. The bell for the town meeting soon tolled again. Manigold heard the town head speaking to the town in the distance, informing them that if nobody else were to volunteer, he would have to start picking people. Shortly after this, another group of volunteers came towards him. These people were mostly parents, some of them he knew only by face, but some of them he knew by name, and knew quite well. He shuddered and looked away. Every time he tried to be as careful and to do as little damage as he could, but with so little experience at his strength and it constantly increasing, he often failed, crushing chests and rupturing organs whenever he used a bit too much force. The bodies were carried away silently to be buried, every time, and he wept to see the damage that he had wrought on the bodies of people that he knew and loved. When it was over, the town head again asked, Is it enough? And Manigault simply replied, Give me a sword. After a moment of hesitation, the town headed someone fetch a sword and presented it to Hermanigold. Very, very carefully, Hermanigold drew the edge of the blade over his skin, opening a shallow wound. It shed more tears, but not because of the pain. It's not enough. More came, this time picked at random from amongst the townsfolk. Of course, children were excluded, along with their parents, if it could be helped. A manigold got stronger and stronger, and the flashes of white stayed longer and longer, until eventually he opened his eyes and it didn't go away. He looked around and saw another world, or so it seemed. The townsfolk were there, doubly shining white, and so were the caves, barely visible, but there, all the same. The area around a manigold shone bright, wisps of otherworldly light flowing and fading away in every direction. This world had no name, for no living being had ever set eyes upon it before, but Hermanigold recognized it for what it was, the world of spirits, of souls, a world that only the dead realized they occupied. Hermanigold was shocked by the realization, but calmed down when he realized that he could see the world of living as he had before. He was still alive. The two worlds were superimposed over each other in his vision, as if to go through the glass of the world beyond, and it was also seeing the world behind its reflection. In the next line, stepped forth, and once again, with a word of apology, Hermana girl plunged the dagger into their heart. A small part of him was intrigued to see the dagger still had a black aura in the spirit world, but it was an interest was quickly wiped away when he observed what happened next. The dagger tore a hole in the woman's spirit. Some of her substance was channeled through the blade into Hermanigold himself. Some of it drifted into the air as if the blood from the wound and the rest. Hermanigold found an enormous presence appear before him, so great that it seemed to encompass the entire world. He fell backwards and stared at the being who took the hand of the spirit, its wound seeding up in an instant. The being paused and turned its head to regard Hermanigold silently. Hermanigold looked back at it, torrents of sweat rolling on his body. It seemed to contemplate something, but then shook its head. Opening its mouth, it spoke three simple words that reverberated within Manigold's very soul. See you soon.
Then it was gone along with the woman's spirit. Her manner girl let out a sharp breath, only then realizing that he was holding it. He waved away the concerned town head. I'm fine, it. I'm fine. Keep going. They continued, with the manigold testing his arm with the sword every now and again. Each time was a little harder for him to break the skin, and the wound healed just a little faster. He kept an eye out, but the being did not return. The spirits of the people that he sacrificed, however, would simply disappear after a moment. He was worried about where he had gone and what was happening to them, but he already had too much to worry about with the living without worrying about the dead, too. Finally, he pressed the sword on his arm once more, and instead of cutting his skin, the sword edge blunted. Bracing himself, he held the sword in the middle of the blade and drove it into his stomach. The sword bowed, and then the tip snapped. It's enough, Hermana girl sighed in relief. The ground around him was coated in blood, and so was he, drenched in blood practically from head to toe. The relieved townsfolk were next in line, were dismissed. The town head hesitantly approached to Manigold. Ah, you okay? No, he replied, looking at the ceiling of the cave. The light enchantments were dimming to almost pitch blackness. Night, the same as it had been when they had started. That took less time than I expected. How? How many did I? He couldn't complete the sentence. It took the whole day, Hermenegold, the town head replied. Don't you remember? It got quicker towards the end, but at the start we always had to wait for you to regain your manner. I'm trying not to remember. How many, he repeated. The town's head's eyes were haunted. About, about 420. He finished a little more than a whisper, but Hermenegold could hear him as clear as day. Hermanagold slammed his fist into the ground and smashed the stone, causing cracks to radiate outwards for almost a meter. How did this happen? he cried. Four days! It only took four days for all our lives to descend into madness. Yes, and you're the only hope that we have of surviving, the town had replied. So please, please, pull yourself together. Hermanagold's face screwed up, and for a moment the town head thought that he was about to get hit. Instead, Hermanegild was just stared at his hands, speechless. The town head was suddenly reminded that despite everything that had happened in the past few days, despite everything that he did, he was still a child. Moving slowly towards Hermanegild, the town head attempted to embrace him. Don't, Hermanegild said, still staring at his hand. I can't control my strength. I make one wrong move and you could be pulverized. The town head stopped and carefully stepped back. How much time do we have? I need to familiarize myself with the strength, Hermanagold said. Fishing out a notebook from his pocket, the town had opened up and flipped to the latest entry. They're breaking through the cave-ins as we speak. We have a couple hours at best. It's enough. It has to be enough, Hermanagold said. I'm going to go experiment in the caves to train until they come. Send someone for me, or just toll the bell. I'll hear it. All right. Good luck, Amanagold. The experiment caves were empty caves, intended to be used by someone that was developing new magic or enchantments that had the potential to be dangerous. They weren't used particularly often. That day, Amanagold used them as his training grounds. He sought to find the limits of his power and control it. 
He was unsuccessful in both accounts. First, he tested his speed, simply trying to run as fast as he could to the other end of the cave. In just a couple seconds, he crashed headlong into a stone wall of the cave on the other end, an oddly belayed boom echoing throughout the cave from where it seemed to be behind him. Fearing for his life, Hermanagil checked himself over to find only a few scratches which were already closing up. His next attempt to test his strength by punching the wall as hard as he could. His fist became embedded into the rock, and the cave shuddered ominously around him, fragments of rocks falling from the cave ceiling. Then thought to attempt to test his magical strength, but quickly realized that because he formerly had only the manner of an average deep halfling, his knowledge of magic was focused on being as efficient and effective as little manner as possible. He didn't know any powerful manner-heavy spells. After that, he figured that he would tone the test down a little and try to get a handle on his speed. There was about half an hour where he repeatedly crashed into walls. It was as if a mana girl only had two speeds, walk and goodbye. At what little time he had been left to war on, Hermana Girl began to feel an uncomfortable sensation, but different from anything that he'd ever felt before. It was like an itch, but not, and everywhere, but nowhere, but he couldn't determine what it was or what was causing it. Had it worried him? The bells rang. Hermana Girl ran as fast as he could, crashing into things in every corner. In just over a minute, he was at the entrance of the town, a string of buildings with the imprint of a young halfling in them laid out behind him. On his belt was the enchanted dagger sheathed, and in his hand was a mirthful great sword longer than he was tall. The gnomes had sent it over to be enchanted just before the hell season, but her menegild hadn't managed it in time, so it had just sat there waiting for the time to pass so that it could be delivered. It was originally intended to be used by gnomish mechanical warriors, but he figured that he was strong enough to use it himself. There were a few narrow misses on the way over, and they were nearly killed himself with it, and now he wasn't so sure. He saw many of the town's remaining men and some of the women standing around fearfully wearing a variety of arms and armor behind a makeshift wooden palisade. With his extremely sharp ocular capacity, he instantly spotted the town head and the lead guard standing atop the single lookout tower. Hermanagald sighed. How was he going to make his way through the crowd? He'd be more likely to send someone flying by accident. But as soon as he approached, the crowd quickly split before him. He was confused, but then remembered that he was still covered in blood. After slowly walking through the crowd, he very slowly and carefully climbed up the ladder. How's it looking? he asked grimly seeing exactly what was happening on the other end of the huge cave, but unable to understand much of what was happening besides the fact that there was a lot of them. They're not even bothering to form a battle formations, the head god grimaced. They know they have us outmatched. The town head shook his head. We have the ground over there enchanted with fire and it's charged with mana. There's not as many uses as we expected because of, well... We're just waiting until they get as many people as possible on it before we let loose. Are you strong enough to pick up the stack after that, Hermanagold? The head guard asked. Strong enough, Hermanagold responded. Definitely, but I don't have any control over the strength. It's all or nothing. I'm barely able to stand in this tower without collapsing it by accident. No need to hold back against them, the head guard said with a smile before stifling. 
but could you please go back down to the ground? He shrugged and stepped off the edge, falling to the ground and flat on his face. He stood up without a scratch on him. Ow, he muttered, more out of reflex than actual pain. For about a minute he stood there just listening to the sounds of the approaching army. Now! The town had yelled out, and a few seconds later, her manor girl saw a light blossom in the ceiling on the far side of the cavern, and hearing screaming. The people around him rejoiced, but only her manor girl could hear the town head mutter, Crap! A moment later, the town head yelled, Turn it off and open the gate! Her manor girl, short turn. Don't bother opening the gate, her manor girl said, Just stand back. Taking a step forward, he bent his knees and jumped clear over the wall. He faintly heard the town head behind him whispering good luck, and then he crashed into the roof and fell to the ground in a heap, once again barely avoiding skewering himself on his sword. He got up and quickly dusted himself off. This time he heard the town head reassuring everyone that he was all right. He looked ahead and grimaced. The fire hadn't obliterated a large swath of the troops as he had imagined, Many of them had significant burns, but it was apparent that most of them had managed to escape the area of fire and had put themselves out. The sight of hundreds of angry drow charging towards him terrified him. The thought that he had to defeat every single one of them made him want to crawl back under his bed. But he was their only hope, their one chance at survival. He had the power. He had to do it. So he gritted his teeth, held the sword tightly with both hands, and charged. At his speed, the scenery would be little more than a nauseating blur to most people. Hermanagold saw everything clearly, but even then didn't let him stop in time. He bowled into half a dozen draw with only barely managing to keep himself upright. Steadying himself, he slashed in a wide horizontal arc and cleaved three draw in half. The other draw surrounded him and looked on in shock and horror. Then one of them splashed acid magic onto his face. A manigal screamed in pain. His skin was largely afflicted, but the stuff had gotten into his eyes and was burning its way through everything it could. It was blind in moments. The drow seemed almost surprised that his extremely powerful halfling had disabled so easily. Almost contemptuously, one of them thrust a spear at her manigal. Touching his eyes, her manigal stepped to the one side, and the spear missed. The drow, confused, thrust his spear again. This time, her manigold caught it, snapped the tip off, and thrust it back towards the drow hard. Impaled on the blunt end of his own weapon, the drow spent his last moment staring uncomprehendingly at her manigold's half-melted eyes. Her manigold was now blind, yes, but it was not thus through his eyes that he could see spirits. And so, it was that while the mortal world fell away from his eyes, he could see the world beyond clearer than ever. A sight that could not be tricked or deceived, that only saw things that were truly were. He reached for his sword, dropped when he splashed with acid, only to find that it had been stolen by one of the drow. Not so tough without your fancy weapon, eh? The drow taunted. A man girl glared with ruined eyes as the man pushed off half the ground with one foot. He caught a hold of the man as he rocketed past. The man was already dead from whiplash, but a man a girl didn't realize or didn't care and ripped the man's head off, tossing both it and the man's torso heavily into the midst of the army below. Still in midair, her man a girl winced. His sword was now lost somewhere amongst the drow behind him. 
it would be practically impossible to find it and get it back. He could use the dagger, but it wasn't a very effective weapon, and losing that to the draw would be very worst possible outcome. Not that they could use it. It was a design to be most effective on willing participants. Conversely, on unwilling participants it would show almost no effect, perhaps siphoning a tenth or even a hundredth percent of their victim's power. This was part of the reason Hermanigal didn't use the weapon. He fell back into the midst of the drow, now without a weapon. Hermanigal simply tore, ripped and punched anything within range, dying himself even further red. What few attacks he could dodge, he dodged, and the rest he simply let land on his body. Even he himself, using a weapon superior to theirs and strength far beyond theirs, could not pierce his skin. So what could they possibly do? As it turned out, quite a bit. One would think that a drow would avoid actions that could hurt their own, but they ignored the fates of the drow and immediate vicinity of Hermanigold as they poured torrents of magic down onto him. Fire, ice, acid and poison fell on and all around him. As he expected, they were unable to pierce his skin, but the smoke made him cough and then everything went into his mouth, his nose, his eyes and his ears. He wanted to scream from the pain, but he couldn't breathe. He jumped, finding momentary relief as blood, poison, and acid streamed from his body. Shaking his head, he coughed, trying to get it all out of him. Moments later, he retched, vomiting out the contents of his stomach. The resulting acrid spray killed several drow and wounded several others. Despite all being in immense pain, Hermanigold calmed down somewhat after he did this and looked towards the entrance the drow were coming from. There was still more streaming through the narrow space. In a moment, he landed, he gained, bombarded with magic. But this time, there weren't any drow around him to get caught up in it. Cursing, a man and girl took a deep breath and closed his eyes. If even this sight was stronger than it used to be, then perhaps he can hold his breath for longer too. He could. A man and girl felt almost no need to take it in another breath. This left only his nose and ears exposed. His nose wasn't a particular problem so long as he wasn't breathing through it, and in general things couldn't only get into it from below, and the draw were decidedly taller than him. His ears, however, were an issue. He had no way of covering them, and turning his head to avoid the magic simply wasn't a choice when it came from every direction. So, in the absence of a better choice, Hermanigold simply ploughed into the draw army, charging at random and punching through anyone in his way. His speed made him almost impossible to target, so apart from the occasional lucky shot, he was rarely hit. Feeling the odd buzz, he looked down, to nobody's surprise, but his, his clothes were nowhere near as durable as he was when he disintegrated into nothingness almost before the battle had started. He was clothed only in his own blood and the blood of his enemies. No! He gasped, almost catching a blast of acid again. Even his belt had been disintegrated, the belt that had his dagger on it. Now it was too lost somewhere amidst the chaos. He shook his head. This wasn't a time for idle thoughts. He could look for it after the battle. Shooting off into the drow once again, he resumed his slaughter. Time passed. Five minutes, perhaps. A manigirl couldn't tell. He had killed tens of drow, perhaps even over a hundred. His eyes had regrown, but he kept them closed to protect them from the sprays of acid, fire, and poison that still occasionally came his way. Despite his exertions thus far, he wasn't feeling any particular fatigue. 
so he was starting to feel good about his chances. Then he heard some screams in the distance and sounded decidedly undrow-like. He jumped up into the air to get a better view, and his heart grew cold. While he had killed more than a hundred, there were hundreds more, and not all of them were focusing on him. A significant portion of the drow army had broken off was assaulting the meager halfling defences to a devastating effect. A manager suddenly felt that he wasn't falling fast enough, but there was nothing that he could do to speed it up. He was forced to watch as those handful of seconds as the wooden palisade burned and the watchtower toppled to the ground. Thankfully, his sharp eyes had allowed him to discern that there was nobody in the tower when it fell. Once he landed, Hermanigal charged straight through the drow back towards the town. It took him several seconds to reach the fallen palisade, but those seconds felt like the longest in his life. By the time he'd reached him, there were already a few dozen small bodies lying on the cold stone. Hermanigal went berserk, killing every drow he laid his eyes upon. But there was only one of him and hundreds of them. Every time he went to save someone, it was like putting on a fire by scooping water with his hands. Put out a fire one place and it would start blazing in ten others. Go put out another fire and the fire you just put out catches ablaze again. Despite his best efforts, it didn't take long for the drowl to decimate the defenders. The head guard fell early, only just managing to kill the drowl that he was fighting in exchange for his own life. The town had coughed up mouthfuls of blood and acid as the hate weighs chest. The baker's stocky arms, overpowered by battle-hardened drow, had grinned as he moved on to his next victim. A manigal's own parents were dazzled with enough enchanted items to make the king weep with the without skill or experience to use them, assailed by a pack of greedy drow, who then picked their corpses to fort over the spoils. Once, practically everyone Hermanigold knew was dead, the drow turned towards the gate to the town. Seeing this, Hermanigold dashed forward and stood in front of the gate to defend it. But the gate was large and Hermanigold was quite small. He could not defend it by himself, and it soon collapsed under the drow bombardment. Though he tore apart every drow within reach, his reach was not long, and the drow avoided him like the plague. They streamed through the town itself, and there was simply nothing that he could do about it. He slumped to the ground in despair. A few drow attempted to use this opportunity to kill him, but passed by in fear when they found that all their attacks were ineffectual. Amenagald wept as he heard the screams of the women and children still in the town as they died, one by one. Then worse came silence. Standing up, Amenagald wiped tears of blood off his face, there was no longer any reason for him to stay there. He would... What would he do? He looked at one of the drow, and the drow shrieked in horror, frantically fleeing from his gaze. An idea started to sprout in his mind. He may not be able to stop the drow, but they weren't able to stop him either. Just as they walked in and destroyed his home with impunity, so too would he do the same to them. Thinking of getting a better view of the situation, Hermanagil jumped high into the air again. The drow had stopped coming out of the tunnel, and the majority of their army was also around where he was. The rest were probably in the town. After landing, he started walking towards the exit. The drow parted before him, too afraid of him to risk him attacking them, if he wasn't ready. Most of them, at least. One of them jeered, said something about Hermanagil's mother, or something. He wasn't exactly sure because he caved the man's chest in before he finished his sentence.
A man-a-girl felt like his heart was beating extraordinarily loudly, and had a strange feeling gotten stronger. He didn't care, not now, when everything he knew had just been destroyed. He ignored it. Before long, he reached the tunnel. He paused. It didn't look like he remembered it. It was much smaller. The drow must have only cleared out as much of them for them to pass through. A man of gold could almost reach both sides of the tunnel when he stretched out his arms. He smiled darkly as he sat in the entrance of the tunnel, facing back towards the drow army. It took only a few hours for the drow to collect everything, but after a couple of hours, the drow army, laden, with gold and all manner of enchanted items, came back to the tunnel to leave while talking excitedly of the new riches. One of the drow in front looked forwards and froze. He nudged the neighbors frantically. Bloody devil! Everyone around him froze, and soon the entire front of the army was silently staring at Hermanagild. He waved. Nice day, isn't it? he said innocently. None of the drow smiled. I just thought I'd remind you that this is the only exit, and if you want to make another way out, then... He shrugged. It'd be a shame if I caved in, or happened to be one of the natural gas pockets around here, wouldn't it? Can you please move? One of the drow asked awkwardly. Her manacled shrugged. Can you bring all of my people back to life? He held up a hand to stop the response. Don't bother answering that. They're gone. It was rhetorical. He would almost swear his heart was beating more loudly now. It was like someone hammering a drum inside of his chest. That strange feeling was almost infuriating in how it demanded his attention. Well, come on then. Is this big drow army scared of a single halfling kid? Hermanagild had had enough of waiting. A wave of magic poured towards him, but he simply opened his arms, closing his eyes and accepted it. Standing in the entrance of the tunnel, even his ears were protected. He had nothing to fear from them, and so it was. The magic ate into every stone around him, but it was barely able to cause a few transient scratches on his skin. Maybe weapons would work better, he laughed, as one of you found my sword. That thing might even be able to hurt me a bit. Naturally, he wasn't expecting the way to harm himself on a whim. As soon as he spotted a drow wielding his sword, he would dash out, slay the man, and take it back. The man holding it did not appear immediately, but the drow, seeing how holy and effective the magic was, began to attack Hammergold in waves. It was simple enough for him to withstand their attacks and grab their outstretched weapons in arms. At that point, they were practically already dead. His grip was crushing, and the only way possible had to escape would be through the sever his own limbs, and few were so decisive. He would pull them towards him and break their necks or punch their chests, then hold the body back into the crowd of drow to further incite them. And so the bloodbath began. This went on for a while, perhaps an hour. Piles of bodies had accumulated and been moved several times during the course of the slaughter. Then, eventually the drow broke up and fled in all directions, now possessing a fraction of the original numbers. A manigold stood in the entrance of the tunnel, blood dripping from his hands and a vague look of confusion on his face. He couldn't understand why they had run. There was no point to it. There was nowhere for them to go. At the same time, he couldn't go after them or risk them from escaping. But he could wait, even after ignoring his parents' words and not sleeping since it all began, on top of not eating for the past day or two. He didn't feel tired or hungry. 
But should he wait? He was going to destroy the drow city at some point, right? Why not now? He nodded to himself and waited for the drow to escape from his line of sight. There was no harm in making them think that he would wait, after all. And he turned around. Then his arms, legs and every single joint muscle in his body simultaneously locked up. He splashed to the ground in pools of blood. To his horror, he couldn't even breathe. The heartbeat that had been pounding in his chest for the past hour was getting ominously quieter and slower. A mana guild reached for his magic but found that after a moment it too stopped responding to him. His sense of smell, previously almost overwhelmed by the stench of death, was gone. His hearing, which was moments ago, could detect the subtle sounds of blood running over the stone. Gone. Even his eyes were quickly dimming. All that was left was an overwhelming, omnipresent feeling of discomfort, and his view of the other side. Surrounding him were all throughout the cave a countless fragments of spirits, remnants of over a thousand deaths. Many of them had his own hand. A manigold looked at himself for the first time. His spirit was almost blindingly bright, but at the same time its surface was undulating wildly. It seems like it would break apart at any moment. Of course, a manigold thought, how could it be possible for someone to gain so much strength so quickly without a repercussion? I only wish that I could have had more time, so that I could destroy them, bring justice to my people. His spirit's undulations continued to accelerate, even thinking was becoming to become hard. Then again, I killed almost as many of my people as they did, and hundreds of their besides. Ironic that the one with the most blood on the hands ended up being me. A halfling, enchanter, a boy, so many dead, so much death. The undulations of his spirit accelerated and amplified to an extreme peak of a single moment. Then it exploded into innumerable tiny fragments of spirit. A true death, without any hope of resurrection or reincarnation. He was only thirteen. Webs stretched across the dark corners and the edges of the caves and tunnels that were once part of the halfling town. It only had been just over a week, but already the Arachne was starting to claim the space as their own. A few groups of drows scoured the battlefield for any valuables that might have been dropped during the conflict. Even though they knew that they were safe, they still habitually avoided the pale webs. One group finished filling their bags, started to leave. As they reached the entrance of the tunnel, one of them kicks a corpse covered in the carapace of solidified blood. Some of the cakes of the fly off, but the body doesn't move. Why hasn't someone gotten rid of this thing? Creeps me the hell out. Nobody wants to touch it. That's the bloody devil. Another one murmured. The first row looks at it at sconce. It's just a corpse. What? Are you scared? The others shuffle restlessly. You weren't there. One of them shakes his head. That thing tore us apart like wet paper. Swords, magic, nothing worked. We could only run away and hope that it didn't catch us. How the hell did you manage to kill it then? The first row scoffed. We didn't. Nobody knows how it died. Hell, some of us aren't even sure that it's even dead. Why do you think there's even so few people here? Why the frick didn't you tell me this earlier? The first row moved away from the corpse. Look, look, I don't want to think about it. You find anything good out there? Now that you mention it, the first row's frown turned into a smile in an instant. He pulled out a small dagger from his pack. This thing seems to be made out of some strange metal. 
it's harder than steel, should be worth a fair amount. Enchanted, one asked, noting the intricate designs along the blade. It looks like it, but I think it's just decoration. Nothing happens when I put mana into it. It's a damn shame. Why put so much effort into useless engraving? Guys! The faces of his companions paled in an instant. One of them fainted, and the others immediately turned and sprinted into the tunnel, as for their lives depending on it. He turned around fearfully, and briefly felt a crushing grip on his leg before his life faded. Above his dead body stood Hermenegold, his eyes glowed with ghastly white, as if to match the color of his skin. His body was clean, completely stripped of layers of blood that had covered it, and he stared in wonder at his own two hands. For he was very much alive. One last he checked, he died. Before he had time to contemplate further, a figure stepped forth from the darkness. End of chapter. Chapter 35. Exciting first day. Gerald P.O.V. Alright, is there anyone's name that I didn't call? The teacher calls out, no? Well then, as we all be learning together for the next few months, I'll give you ten minutes to get to know each other before you start. In the seat next to mine, Oe's eyes sparkle, and he immediately turns to ask, Gerald, where are you from? I'm sorry, I think I've seen someone I know, and I really need to talk to them right now. I say, trying not to let how shaken I am show in my voice. I'll talk to you a bit later. He nods a bit sadly, but before long turns to look around to find someone to talk to. Most of the people in the room are just talking in pairs, and some not at all. There is a wide berth around Joe as everyone actively avoids the much older man. As I fly over the class towards him, several people point and whisper, an act rendered completely pointless by my man of sight. Ignoring them, I hover in front of Joe, who just raises an eyebrow at me. Are you stalking me? I ask bluntly. The other eyebrow raises and he considers my question for a moment. Technically, yes, he admits casually, but I also thought that it was high time for me to learn magic, getting a bit on in my ears, you see. Hearing him as I can now, I can tell that he doesn't have any particular fixation or even attraction towards me. It's like he just decided to start following us around on a whim, not that it means that I'll trust him more because of it. If I had a head, I'd be shaking it. Why weren't you following Ferdinand? Oh, sure, Joe says, scratching the back of his ear. He's an interesting guy, and I'll be following his life closely. Right now, though, he's entered one of those boring periods. He's gone with Lily to join the churches. With his levels and perseverance, it won't take long for him to become a squire, and even a knight. During that time, we'll be at just training, training, training. Boring enough to do, let alone watch. A knight, not a paladin. I note internally glad they managed to get out of the situation safely. A paladin? <laughs> Joe laughs. Kid hasn't even sorted out what god he'll pray to. No chance of him becoming a paladin before that. Makes sense. He seems to be in a talkative mood, so I figure that I'll try to find out more about him. It's the only way I can be sure of his motives. How did you even make it in here? You don't have mana. Some questions, he chuckles. You just aren't ready to hear the answers to. Right, I say skeptically. And how'd you get to this planet? Or am I not ready for that one either? 
Other questions you consider stroking his beard, you can find the answers to quite easily by yourself. The library is quite a comprehensive, you know. Then what will you tell me? I ask, slightly irritated. Tell you what. Joe leans back in his chair, putting onto his two legs. We'll play a game. Duration infinite. You ask me something, anytime, anywhere, and I'll either tell you the answer, if I know it, or tell you my requirements for telling you the answer. For reference, you're already a question. You need to be level 90 if you want me to answer that. Who are you? I ask. Speaking of... Level 90, he interrupts smiling, but you'll figure it out before then. Speaking of level 90, as if a walk in the park, even I know it's incredibly difficult to get to that level. I am not even two years old, I continue. Meh, not my problem, he shrugs. You're the one asking. Mine, I state, controlling my irritation. You told fortunes back in Fizo City. What's mine? He raises his arms and shrugs in mock defeat. Left my crystal ball back in the city. I'm not going to be telling fortunes for a while without it. Can't you just get another one? I ask, sighing. His gaze sharpens as he looks at me. I'll tell you something for free. You'll find no second one like it, no matter how far you roam. That sucker is completely unique. Our greatest creation since... He starts stopping himself mid-sentence. Anyway, you'll find it out at some point, and when you do... Try not to make the same mistake as a person who finds it before you, won't you? Right, sure, I'll keep it in mind, I say blandly, as if I'd ever come across a specific crystal ball with how wide the worlds are. And even if I do, I won't recognize it. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have some sleeping to attend to, Joe says, already folding his arms on his desk. I already know the basics, so this first term will be a royal ball. Joe lays his head down on his arms and closes his eyes. It seems as if he won't answer any more of my questions, so I drift back over to the class to my seat. Gerald, Oi, notices me almost immediately and introduces me to an Alban boy that he was talking with. In the seat behind us, Lamar, this is Gerald. He's a fork. A fork? Lamar looks at me. A fork? I agree. Nice to meet you, Lamar. Lamar nods absently. I've seen a lot of different people, but I don't think I've ever seen anyone like you. People rarely have, I agree. All right, settle down, everyone. The teacher speaks loudly, causing conversations to slow and quiet down as most of the class turns to look at him. I'll be starting the lesson now. My name is Mr. Tellen, and I will be your teacher for basic magical theory for this first term. Mr. Tellen begins... And I am afraid most of you will be quite disappointed to hear that you won't be learning any actual magic this term, from me or any other of your other teachers. Dang! But what you learn this term are the roots to which other topics we'll learn in the future will sprout from, Mr. Tallon says seriously. So it is important that you learn all of these subjects well. Fair enough. Mr. Tallon strides to the blackboard and with a piece of chalk writes in large letters, Manna. Let's start with manna. Manna is everywhere, in the trees, the rocks, in the very ground beneath us. Everyone and everything's have manna in them, whether just a little or a lot. By that definition, you have a walking impossibility drowsing off in the corner of your classroom, teach. 
Undaughtered by my mental interjection, Mr. Tillon continues, taking mana from Idrix's heart and generally damaging to the object itself. It's much easier to take mana from the air around us. The mana in Arbidak is much denser than the other worlds, and this... So, you're from another world, Oi asks excitedly. What's it like there? We, on the break in between lessons, Anoya has pulled me into a Lamar off to a grassy courtyard to chat. I briefly think over my experiences in Odwea. Fork, went insane, robot ruin, giant spider, hermit crab, necromancer, doppelganger, prince demon. Yeah, none of that is child-friendly. It's about as nice as Arbidak. More crime, more strife. Not as much technology either. At least where I was. Oh, why? Is understandably taken back. Well, I'm from a small village far to the west. My parents said I have a magical talent, so they brought me here to be trained. One day, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to be able to make sure that none of the sheep or cows of my people in my village are going to get sick ever again. How about you? Where are you from, Lamar? Doland, the port city to the south. My dad is a sailor, a ship wizard. He tried to teach me how he does it, but I couldn't understand him, so he sent me here to learn instead. I want to be able to work with my dad and sail all around the world. That sounds really cool, Oya, exclaims. What about you, Gerald? Why did you come here? A large part of me just wanted to be continued my existence in this world. Another part of me worried about Ferdinand, Lily Luck, even Marco. A third part was in a constant wonder and excitement of the world around me. And that last tiny part of me just wants to go home. It wasn't much but my apartment back on Earth. I felt comfortable there. Safe. Until I died, of course. Turns out nowhere is truly safe. Of course, I couldn't exactly say any of that. To learn magic and to be able to protect myself and my friends. There's nothing particularly special about why I came here. That's okay, Oi says. Now I'm hungry. For a moment I'm confused as to how my reason for being here related to him being hungry. But then he pulls out a carrot out of his pocket and starts munching. Fair enough, he was just hungry. Good day, my name is Mrs. Felt, and I will be your teacher for the basic magical safety. Or, as I like to call it, 101 ways to not blow yourself up. Her beak opens slightly and clacking chuckles escape it. The stories tell of powerful wizards and sorcerers who can throw fireballs and call down lightning to strike their enemies. What most people don't realize is just how easy it is for someone who doesn't know what they're doing to have the very same fireball spell explode in their hands. That does sound like a serious problem. Hey, do I have an inherent advantage here because I'm relatively more durable than my classmates? I mean, even if a fireball went off on me directly, it probably wouldn't do much damage. Mrs. Felt struts across the front of the classroom, her head bobbing forward a second behind each step as if it was perpetually trying to keep up with the lower body. Student safety is our utmost importance here in Wetham Academy, so it is my job to make sure that all of you know how safely research and practice magic. For the most part, so long as you keep your head and your shoulders and use some common sense, you should be fine. But as they say, better safe than sorry. She turns and begins to strut back across the room, 
a strange breeze ruffling her glossy black plumage as she goes. Rule one of magic. If you don't know what it does and how it does it, best not disturb it. Lots of ways things can go wrong if you cast a spell the wrong way, or touch an item that someone didn't want touched. Cautious is first, curious second, I always say. Mrs. Fultz a chicken! Roy burst out once we returned to the courtyard in our second break, unable to contain himself. Fortunately, Roy wasn't being derogatory but literal. Mrs. Fault is, indeed, a chicken lady. There are so many people. I could just sit here all day looking around at everyone, and I don't think that I'd ever get bored. Lamar shrugs. I see lots of different people all the time. It's not that exciting. Roy deflates slightly. Your dad's a sailor, right, Lamar? I said. You've probably seen a lot of different people because of that, but they're all still new to us. Lamar tilts his head slightly. I guess so. What do we have next? Roy asks, already flicking onto another train of thought. I briefly flick my mind back to the timetable. Mana techniques. Wonder what the teacher will be like, Roy muses curiously. Control! The man up front narrows his eyes. He didn't even introduce himself. His name was already on the board by the time we came in. Mr. Thurston. Every wizard worth his salt knows that control is the key. Mr. Thurston places his hands on his desk and looks around at us. What use is the most powerful spell, the largest store of mana, when you don't even have precision to direct it properly? None at all. I will teach you that control. Control enough that you never have to be afraid of a spell going awry, or your mana slipping from your direction. Control, as in mana control. Think I'm pretty good there. Still, maybe with some professional direction, I'll be able to boost it up to master. That would be neat. Still, I understand that many of you are young, he says, toning down the intensity. We'll start at the beginning. Could everyone please control a small portion of their mana and project it outside their bodies, holding it in front of you? If anyone does not know how to do this, raise your hands. Hey, something practical! With practice ease, I pulled out the small amount of mana, about a single point worth of mana, and let it rest in front of me. Simple enough that I could practically do it in my sleep. If I slept, that is. Nobody in the room puts their hands up and everyone is able to project their mana in front of them without difficulty. I turn around and I see even Joe has seems to have done so. I quickly review the memory of a few moments ago. It appears as if the mana came into existence out of thin air. Can he just cloak mana from my sight somehow? Mr. Thurston begins to walk across the front of the classroom, inspecting his students' efforts. He pauses in front of my desk. I've been made aware that you already have some proficiency in this subject, he says. Be aware that I still expect you to put in just as much effort into improving your skill as anyone else in this class. Yes, sir, I reply, unable to find much else to say. He nods and he continues to inspect the class. Upon finishing around the classroom, he moves back to the front. Good. Everyone seems to be able to do this well enough. Now move them in a circle. No need to move them fast. Do it at your own pace. Just as we were about to leave at the end of the lesson, Mr. Thurston called out, Gerald, a moment. I stopped and turned myself around. Oi turns around and looks at me curiously. Go ahead. I'll see you tomorrow. 
I'd tell him before heading back to the teacher's direction. Everyone filters out rather quickly, eager to head homewards after the first day of lessons. Soon, the class is empty. Gerald, I've been told your manner controls is at expert proficiency. Is that correct? he asks. It is, sir. Is that a problem? I reply tentatively. He shakes his head. No, it's not a problem, but everyone else in the class is at a much lower level. I doubt the lessons right now will be much a benefit to you, and I don't think I'll have time during the classes to teach you separately. All right, I say with some disappointment. What should I do then? Mr. Thurston scratches his hairless chin. Take a look in the library. Access is considerably restricted for the first-term students, but you should be able to find something on mana control. Thank you, sir, I acknowledge. When, then, have a good evening, he says, motioning towards the door. And you, sir, I reply, beginning to float towards the door. So, how was your first day? Drea asks, munching on a handful of cashews. I think about her for a moment. Interesting. Hard to tell much from the first day, but I think I'll learn a lot here. Made a couple of friends too, so that's an added bonus. You? Drea stops munching for a moment. I would have thought that you would remain silent and inconspicuous the entire time, not making contact with your peers for a couple months at least. He insisted, I laughed. They're good guys. One of them wants to become a town's healer, and the other wants to become some sort of weather wizard so that he can work with his dad. It's a good idea to make as many friends as you can, you know. He stretches his legs beneath the table. They managed to learn there long enough, and they're going to be the next generation of powerful wizards. It's not just if you want companions to fight with, either. Many of the world's leading enchanters and artificers won't take requests from just anyone. But if you manage to offend someone like that before they become famous, you've got a much better chance of being able to. Idly creating a blob of manner, I begin to twist it into various shapes. I know, but I've never been good at making friends. It either seems to happen naturally, like it did today, or not at all. I respond, unconcerned. Dre shrugs. Just keep it in mind. Manipulating the manner, I form it into a shape of a roaring dragon. Wonder when I'll see a real one. By the way, my manner techniques teacher recommended that I look in the library for books and manner control since I'm ahead of what the classes are teaching. Is there anything that I need to know before I go? The library, Dreya says. Let's see, basic rules are that there's no magic allowed in the library or violence of any kind. You can't be loud or disruptive, and books can't be taken out of the library, although notes are fine. You won't be able to borrow books until your second year. Oh, and you'll get a library card, actually. Speaking of cards, Dreya gets up into the table and walks through the portal at the arbor deck. He comes back a minute later and places a small blue card on the table. This is the money for your scholarship. Put a bit of manner in it and it'll register it. They have cards. Sheesh. I break a horn off of my dragon and send it into the card, where it gets sucked in. After a moment, the number 2000 appears glowing on the surface and then slowly fades away. How do I use this, I ask. Right. One moment. Drea goes back through the portal and quickly returns with another card. You hold your card over another, he says, doing so, and put a bit of mana into it. The card comes up with numbers so that you can see the amount you wish to transfer. 
which you activate with mana. As Rhythm Mana touches the number 1 on his card and then hits the OK button, and then the number on his card decreases by 1, and my card briefly shows a new balance of 2001. Is this safe? I asked, replicating his actions to return the single row that he gave me. Safe as they can make it, pretty much, he nods. Once activated with someone's mana, a card can only be operated by that person. Anyone can put money in, but only they can take it out. Plus, it has a magic cancelling feature, so it can't be tampered with. This does sound useful, but still, wouldn't something like this have a limit? Couldn't someone powerful enough force their way through? Sure they could, Dreyer shrugs nonchalantly, but they'd probably just end up destroying the card instead. And anyone with sufficient knowledge, power, and control to successfully tamper with something like this probably has the means to earn money much more easily. Even I can make a ton of money if I really wanted to. Really? How? I asked, surprised. I've been to a few dozen worlds. I could set up a surface to transport people across the worlds fairly easily. He explains, You might not realize it, but there is actually very few people capable of space magic as advanced as I am. Maybe two or three I know of in all of Arbadak. One of those is actually one of the richest people in the world. He and his family are pretty much the sole producers of bags of holding. Anyway, what I'm saying is that the service that I could provide practically doesn't exist. I could charge exorbitant prices and nobody would bat an eyelid. Interesting. Dreyer's magic is that unique. So, why not? Surely it would be useful having a lot of money. I travel across worlds all the time, and almost none of them have a common currency, he shrugs. Too much currency in any of them weighs me down. Besides, I have enough as it is, and I have better things to do. Makes sense, I guess, I respond. I was never much of a spender myself. Chances are, given that I don't have any living costs, the scholarship money will just end up sitting on the card all term. Do you know if the library is open right now? It's always open, Dreyer responds. Makes sense, I guess. There are quite a few people living in the dormitories here, after all. So keeping facilities open makes some sense. I wonder if any of the students are nocturnal races. Of course... I can't see the dormitories, like many other sections of the school. The area is blocked off to my vision. Same with the library. Still, Dre continues, I don't know if you'll manage to find anything. I doubt there's much useful available for first-term students. May as well have a look, after all. I have all the time in the world, I reply absently. I travel down the corridors to where the library is. It's late afternoon and there aren't any many people around, but there are still quite a few. Roating along, I reach the entrance and the open arch flanked on either side of the floor to ceiling gargoyles, and the ceilings are quite tall. As I pass through the arch, I note the gargoyles' eyes following as I go, quite literally. It's very clear to me that they aren't just decorative. Upon entering, I immediately see the front desk, staffed by what looks like a Batman, Seeing me, he raises an eyebrow. No remote magic tools in the library. No, I'm a new student, I reply. His other eyebrow raises and he pulls a book from under the desk. Name, then. The races of students are included in here, so I'll know if you're lying. Excellent, then. I'm Gerald. 
G, G, he leaps through the couple pages. Ah, there we are, Gerald, 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 living fork. Well, kind of be surprised. You're a new student. Sorry about that. Not every day you see a uh, living fork. No problem, I reply. I wanted to see if I could find a book on mana control, and I was told to get the library card. Indeed, you should, as that is a requirement to enter the library proper. He says mildly, taking a card from beneath the table and writing my name on race on it. Put a bit of manner in it, he says, holding it out to me. Recognizing this now as being similar to the row card earlier, I put a bit of manner into it, and it faintly glows for a moment. There we go. It's done. Use it, holding it up to the door and putting some manner into it. This will only allow you to enter the first section of the library. And frankly speaking, there isn't all much there, he says bluntly. As a precaution, you understand. Now, some general rules. Don't damage anything. Don't take anything out of the library that you didn't bring in in the first place. No magic, no fire, water, or anything else that could damage the books. Keep it quiet, and no magical tools unless they've been specifically exempted. He looks at me carefully, which yours have been. If you need any more specific rules, we have lists posted around the library. If you have any questions, you direct them to me or one of the other librarians. We have name tags. He taps the rectangular metal tag pinned to his robe, reading Mr. Leish, senior librarian. Thank you. I say, taking the card with telekinesis. His eyebrows hike a little higher up his forehead. I floated to the door and touched a card to the door with a bit of manner. I hear a click as it unlocks and swings open. After I move through, it shuts behind me and locks again. In front of me are several tall bookshelves full to capacity and an area with tables and chairs. Well then, let's see what there is to learn. End of chapter. Chapter 36. Term 1. Forking Done. Now that I'm in the library itself, I can see what's around me with Manasight, although only in the sections of the library. Almost instantly I see a poster listing the various rules of the library, including that you couldn't bring a lower-year student with you through the doors, something not mentioned by Mr. Leish. There is only one student other than me in the section of the library, a young man with messy, oily brown hair and severely wrinkled robes, his attention occupied completely by the book in front of him. I began to peruse the titles of the books, trying to find one relevant to mana control. After about ten minutes of searching, I give up, not able to find anything in particular, and many of these titles are too interesting to pass up a read. I pick one out. A brief overview of Adria, and carry it over to the table using telekinesis to read it. I position myself above the book and carefully turn the first page, skipping the author's introduction. I get straight into a use of it. Adria is unlike any other of the worlds. It does not focus on any known concept, energy, or weaponry, as so many others seem to, whilst most of the inhabitants speak common. Why is that, by the way? I'm on another forking planet, for Pete's sake, so why is everyone still speaking English? It's not like interplanetary colonization is a thing here. Andrea displays a variety of languages, cultures, and people of power far beyond that of any other. 
Even the gods themselves appear to pay more attention to it than any other worlds. He goes on briefly and describes the various important countries and kingdoms on Odria. The Empire doesn't even get a mention. Too small, I guess. There are too many unique locations to mention. Boating islands, underwater cities, endless deserts. But there is one worthy of particular mention. The most famous and feared location, perhaps across all the worlds. It is commonly known by two different names, the Plain of the Worlds and the Eternal Battlefield. It is said that there are naturally occurring portals to every world in existence hidden throughout the plain. Alas, few have been found and fewer still are safe to pass through. All the simple reason is that there are portals to both heaven and hell there. Heaven? Hell? Did whoever named these places read the Bible, or did the Bible get it from them? Their war raged since time's forgotten, and by all accounts, the other side is likely to stop. Many seeking fame and fortune have fought there, on either side, and many have fallen, some recorded being as powerful as Neville 80 range. Well, that sounds like a place I never want to go, but it may have a way back to Earth. After reading through it, I carry the book back to the shelf and find another to read. A book on the system catches my interest. How, why, and when has come to be unknown? Well, that's useless. I skim through several pages, but there is only one section in particular interest. Although there is no record of instances of such an occurrence, it has been hypothesized that a maximum level, if such a thing exists, is 100. However, it is doubtful if such a hypothesis will ever be confirmed. As one advances further in level, one will cease to receive experience from enemies more than a certain level below them. Initially 30 levels below, but decreasing to 10 or, some unconfirmed reports say, 5 levels below at the highest known levels. To even find an individual of 18th level range is prohibitively difficult, and to find someone who in the 90s is almost impossible because they are almost mythical. Individuals in the 90-level range are sometimes known as legends, sometimes as skepticism, sometimes at all. Not seeing anything else that's forcoming, I slot the book back away too. Perhaps a brief inspection of known powers would be more my speed. A brief inspection of known powers, indeed. According to the table of contents, 90% of the book's contents are on manner. Mana is the foundation of all magic. Its uses are numerous, limited only to the individual wielder's skill, knowledge, power, and imagination. Present in anyone and everything, even untaught, an individual will be able to use mana to some degree. Well, that's not biased at all. Key is a rarer power, but masters of the arts say that it can be awoken in anyone, given enough time and effort spent on doing so. It allows users to perform extraordinary feats of strength. Those experienced in the arts can simply shrug off weaker weapons and magic. Nevertheless, it takes decades to become proficient in its use, and while it can be consumed quickly, replenishing key takes a long time. Interesting. Something to take another look at in the future, to be sure. It may take decades, but I have time. Sigh. The power of the mind in its purest form quite rare, and in many cases difficult to notice. Users specialize in affecting the mental states of themselves and others, as well as the silent communication. Battles between psychics are often imperceptible to the naked eye, but no less deadly for it. 
Someday, I'm sure I'll find out how to use Sire more effectively. With my stats being mostly distributed between intelligence and wisdom, I'm almost as specked towards size as I am towards mana. It'd be a waste not to use it. Fighting spirit is unlike mana and key in that it is not a power that dwells naturally within the body, and it cannot be consumed or produced. It is more a reflection of a warrior's state of mind. Here, I say warrior because the fighting spirit most often arises in warriors, if at all. It has been described by many words, determination, perseverance, rage. Ultimately, it is simply the willingness to fight, no matter the cost to oneself. Individuals with fighting spirit can often fight through injury and fatigue, exert greater strength than others, and are resistant to mental manipulation, and can, to some lesser extent, inspire the qualities in others. Let's be honest here, I'm not getting fighting spirit. If it wasn't for the fact that I can't feel pain, there was no way that I would be able to run into combat and injure myself so fearlessly. Killing intent, rather than the will to fight, is the will to kill. Wielders, without exception, kill for the sake of killing. Observed effects include inspired unnatural fear and weakness in targets, condensing weapons in only a truly depraved, creating bloody warriors to fight for them. Yeah. No. Divide power. The power of the gods, the limits of its uses, if there are any, are unknown. The most devout priests and paladins have some access to this power, allowing them to accomplish what can be best described as miracles. I wish. Divine power gets equal easy mode. No chance of that happening, I don't think. The last overview gives me a pause, and makes me feel like the world already fantastical in nature just got weirder. Superpowers. So rare and unique that they defy proper classification, and not information is known about them. It is known, however, that every superpower has some weakness or caveat. Perhaps the user tires at an extremely fast rate while using it, or it can only be used once in a blue moon. Huh. I wonder if I can gain a superpower through Absorb, and how rare are they exactly? Questions, questions, questions. The more I answer, the more I have. In hopes of a more satisfying answers, I read on. We are introduced to our final teacher and class of the term the next day, Miss Kate, Magic Casting Techniques. When I first looked in the room, I thought someone had let her pet python escape, but it was just a teacher in the Salamia. It scared quite a few of the others, so that was somewhat amusing to watch. It appears as if the class will be about various techniques to use to cast magic and figure out which will be the best for each of us to use. Well, we haven't gotten to the meat of the things yet, but I'm guessing that I'll be doing formations. It just sounds the most logical to me. The more conceptual something is, the more difficult it is for me to learn, in general. After the second day of classes is over, I head back to the library. So many books, so little time. Well... Perhaps not, but the superficial information that we've been learning so far is far from enough to quench my interest in the arcane. In fact, I make it a habit to head to the library at the end of every day and read, practically until classes start the next day. Between that and Drea's own classes starting up, we rarely see each other for more than a couple dozen minutes a day. At the end of the week of classes, I am, as per usual, perusing the shelves of the library for another book of interest. I hear a voice behind me. Do you have a particularly severe teacher or something? I turned. Sorry, 
The speaker is the same young man who was in here the first day. He always has been in here before me and is still here when I leave. It's almost as if the guy lives here. You've been in here every night reading. Nobody does that, not in their first term. If magic didn't keep this place clean, there would be a solid inch of dust everywhere in this section. He gestured to the spotless shelves from where he sits. A small stack of books piled onto the table in front of him. So do you have a particularly severe teacher? Nothing like that. One of my teachers thought that I should look in here for some help in mana control, so I guess that was the original cause for me coming here, I muse, but there were just too many interesting things to read. Couldn't help myself. Yeah, I was pretty surprised, he shrugs. Didn't think there'd be anything here but guff. Perhaps a few entry-level texts, but there's a surprising amount of general knowledge here. You like to read. Used to be pretty much all I did in my spare time, I reply. Helped settle me down somewhat when things went pear-shaped. Pear? He raises an eyebrow curiously. Right, I guess they don't have that here. It's a sweet fruit and it has curvy shape. He nods. Yeah, life seems to have a habit of throwing curveballs. Books distract. You learn and have fun at the same time. What's not to like? I know, right? I agree. By the way, do you live in the library or something? I've never seen you leave. Yeah, I do, he replies. Technically, I'm a junior librarian, so I have a small room off of the main complex of the library. It's quite convenient. I do leave occasionally, though. Gotta eat. Nice, I say appreciatively. You've been in the academy for a while, then. I guess you could say that, he shrugs. Eight, nearly nine years I've been here longer than some of the teachers. He glances slightly at the pile of books, and I take that to mean that he wants to get back to reading. Well, nice to meet you. I'm Gerald, by the way. Raymond, he waves in response, already turning his head back to the book open in front of him. The term progresses slowly, but surely, apart from the veritable trove of information in the library, classes do teach a few interesting things as well. For example, the existence of certain languages, written and spoken, through which magic can be more easily cast. That is to say, casting magic through chanting is not just another form of imagination magic, although it can be as well. Magic is weird. So, you can cast magic through a language by using an inspiration or as a medium. Anyway, what this means is that I'll almost definitely want to learn one of these magical languages since common just about as unmagical as it gets, apparently. One problem, the first section of the library doesn't have any books in those languages, so it looks like I'll have to wait until the second term to start on that. In what little time I'm not spending in the library, in classes or chatting with Drea, I do honestly try and improve my mana control, but I make very little progress. The proficiency gains are bearably noticeable, and it makes me think that I'm missing something in the way that I practice, but I have no clue as to what it might be. I've tried controlling as much mana as I can, and as little as I can, contorting, compressing, and spreading it in every shape my tiny metal mind can imagine. No noticeable improvement, so I put it at the back of my mind for now. I immerse myself in learning what I can, conversing with a few new friends and the whole lot of reading. The calmness, the sheer regularity of the academic life, and the formality of it all lulls me into a sense that the world is a safe place, that I could learn here forever, and nothing bad would ever happen. I want it to be true. Some part of me wishes that I could believe it to be true. 
but I can't. I think back and I remember the vivid panoramic detail. Those farmers risking their lives to reclaim their homes. The casual climbs right through the cities, their perpetrators walking free with a peace of mind. The devastation of the demons and the denizens of Howl visit upon each other. That part of the world isn't about to go away just because I found a nice place. And even if the academy seems safe now, no place ever is. Not after I died in my own home and some flash of light. No, even now I am to do my best to get stronger. I am not comfortable with others being able to decide my destiny on a mere whim. On earth, even reaching the top of the food chain wasn't enough to guarantee your safety and security. But yeah, it's different. People are even more powerful, and so am I. I don't care about being the strongest. I am not some saint or a hero who aspires to fix all the world's problems, as if that was possible. But I am not going to let this life end like my last one did. Alone. Helpless. And with the largest achievement to my name being a high score in a crappy, obscure video game. I don't know what I'll do, but whatever I do choose to do, I first need the ability to protect that lifestyle. Right now, magic is the best way to do that, despite the slow start. So I pay attention in the lessons, even when it gets boring. I listen and remember. It helps that I don't slowly nod off when things get dreary. Then of course comes the assignments, and I realize that I need to figure out a way to write, and fast. Getting supplies isn't difficult, the academy has a store with the most basic supplies, so it's just a matter of utilizing my card for the first time. The paper, the ink themselves aren't particularly expensive, but I have to spend a bit more to get it delivered, because I can't really carry anything more than myself in the card. Once Andreas offers, he helps me carry it through the portal to his house. I'd made sure to pick the time that he wasn't teaching any class and would be available. From there, it's just me, a sheaf of paper and a jar of ink, all sitting on a table. I review my options. I could use self-manipulation, writing with the ink on one of my tines as if it were a finger. It wouldn't be too difficult to write like that. The problem is that I wouldn't have any good view of what I'll be writing, and that might make me prone to mistakes. A similar problem would exist if I were to wield myself telekinetically as a pen, and it might even be harder to write. Or, I could probably just directly lift and apply ink with telekinesis. A little bit of ink barely weighs anything, so it shouldn't be a problem to keep myself aloft in controlling it, in terms of psi consumption. Since it seems to be the least likely to present any significant problems, I decide to test it out. Sending a tendril of sigh, I attempt to lift a little bit of ink from the jar, only for it to prop back. Concentrating, I shape my sigh into a miniature dish and dip it into the thing before lifting it up. No dice. Clearly my sigh isn't watertight. I try again focusing on keeping my sigh as a single continuous membrane upon which droplets of ink could sit. This time a globule of ink remains suspended in the air, held by an invisible force. Success! But how was I to apply it? I couldn't exactly just splash it down onto the page after all. Then an idea came. If I could make my sigh watertight, then could I make it airtight? 
It takes me several tries, but after finally getting the right shape, I lower my psychic contraption to the ink, then lift it up another portion. Like magic, the ink gets sucked upwards, leaving me with a thin tube of ink. Now, it's not invisible, but what I've done is adapted the needleless dropper. Like the type that you might use to measure medicine, if it went to a psychic construct. I push the plunger down and into the tube expel the air, and then I draw it back to create some small suction force, drawing in the ink. Now I can easily and carefully apply the ink. And that page is ruined. One moment of lost concentration and all that I have to do is an ink blot. A good thing that I thought something like this might happen and have several pages prepared. Well, there's still some space left on this page that I can use to practice. It takes me a few hours of practice and some minor alterations to my psychic pen, mainly creating a sharpened nib in the narrow end of the ink tube, until I manage to get the image steady enough that the ink output is the right rate and attempt to write. Then I encounter more problems, not enough pressure on the page, too much pressure, not being able to sync up with my writing speed, with my ink output rate, and so on. I practice a few more hours with some improvements, but it still doesn't look much better than child scrolls. To be honest, my writing wasn't exactly pretty in my past life either. Unreadable, by some people's standards, not that it mattered. Digital documents were a superior medium anyway. It's going slowly, and I'm not worried. I have more than a week until the stuff is due. Spin the rods in a manner clockwise, moving them in a counterclockwise spiral motion in front of you. Proper pronunciation is key. Repeat after me. Three bees and wee trees did see twee peas. And then it exploded, let me tell you. He was not expecting that. Soot in his hair for weeks. The proper classification and identification of magic is subject to a minor debate of this day, although most agree that it's not a perfect solution. The term nears an end, and before I can blink, literally, I still haven't tried testing the doppelganger skill. Quite a lot of it is the teachers hammering home the same information over and over in different ways. I guess they were really making sure we know the basics. Well, Mrs. Felt was an exception. Half the time she was just telling stories and jokes. Actually, now that I think about it, most of those stories involve someone messing up their magic. Maybe she wasn't so off-topic after all. Of course, I figured out my writing problem. Well, mostly. I still end up with an ink splatter every now and again if I get distracted by someone, and my handwriting still isn't stellar. But it's workable. Results start coming in. I do well, naturally. If it's just theory and memory, it's an area of my expertise. We'll have to see how I get when it comes to the practical aspect of magic. Finally, the term ends, and the academy grows quieter. It doesn't close, but many other students don't stay during the break period. I do. Where else would I go? Most of the time I spend in the library, Raymond isn't there. He stopped showing up around halfway through the term, said he'd finished reading everything of interest in the first section of the library, and was going back to the other sections. I get the feeling there are only a few bookcases worth of books in this section, and I've read through most of them. Most of the ones left aren't very interesting or informative. Still, there's not a whole lot to do besides reading and practicing mana control. So here I am. 
I spend some time over the break discussing with Drea what units I should do in the next term. He's given me a fair idea as to what options I'll have. So, I think I know what I'll do. But the final decision will be made on the day, when I have all the options in front of me. Before too long the letter comes, saying that I've passed my first term and will be welcomed back for a second. On top of that, due to my exceptional results, my scholarship would continue, meaning that my fees for the units I take this term will be waived, accompanying the letter as a card with another 2,000 row on it. Nice. I register my manor and transfer the cash to my original card, which I barely dipped into in the first place. The rest of the break I spend reading, at least until the auditorium gets busy with new students. At that point, I start mentally going back through my memories of all the lessons of my previous term, making sure it's all nice and fresh in my mind for the new term. Besides, maybe I'll notice something I missed. It happens quite often, actually. I'll have a huge visual range, but my mind can't go fast enough to catch all the details it sees. There might be a few dozen people talking at once in my area, but I might only be able to follow one conversation, for instance. So, it's all there in the memory. Going over it can reveal new information. Doing that all takes quite some time. Before I know it, it's time for the new term, and everyone is lining up for the assembly. It looks like maybe an eighth of the people who enrolled at the same time as me have dropped out, for whatever reason, and in front of us are a fresh new cohort. Although there aren't any announcements that pique my interest, I at least recognized a few more of the staff members and teachers. After it all finished, we were all led off to choose our classes. I noticed the older years heading off in the different directions. They must choose their classes elsewhere. We ourselves are led into a very large room with what looks like it might normally be a workshop of some kind, and then the teachers there start handing everyone lists of all the possible classes we can take. I end up having to hold it in front of me with telekinesis, as all the benches and tables immediately get swooped up. Their list is more extensive than I had realized. Most every class is a basic level class, which is exception for advanced mana control, Still, I want to start with some simpler, more straightforward things before I try something like artificing or alchemy. And even though I spend most of the last term reading past the time, I think I'm going to go with just four glasses, just in case there are more demanding than I expect. Besides, I should have more access to the library this time, so there should be much more interesting things for me to read. Let's see. If I'm starting with the basics, then of course I'm going to go with this one. This one should be good too, and this. Now that I think about it, doesn't this have way more applications than the typical ones? Just thinking about it scares me. And last of all, may well do this. Should let me do the next level next term. Might be helpful later on. End of chapter. Chapter 37. Magic. Now I just need to double check that the time slots don't conflict. I'm fine. Excellent. I fill out the form, making only small, accidental ink blots on the corner of the page in the process. A slight lapse in concentration is all it takes. We have today free while the process of all our forms. So, what do I do with the free time? Of course, I head to the library. This being the second semester, I should have greater access. 
Ignoring the gargoyles, as per usual, I head to the desk. Mr. Leish isn't there right now. He usually works through the night hours. Instead, Professor Calby is at the desk, poring as usual over some ancient tomb. Seeing that the professor still hasn't noticed me by the time I'm hovering in the front desk, I loudly clear my non-existent throat. <coughs> Just a moment, I'm nearly at the end of the chapter. The professor mumbles absent-mindedly, not even looking up. Not in any particular rush, I decide to wait. After a while, I cough again. Professor, you've finished the chapter. Hi, Professor. Calby looks up and sighs. I suppose I have. Is there a problem, Gerald? No, not a problem, no. Just a new semester, so I came to see whether I could get my new card today. I explained. The new semester? So it is. Professor Calby looked vaguely surprised. Let me just get the registry. Brushing the tomb aside, the professor pulls out the registry and leaves through the pages. Gerald, second semester student. Everything is in order. Pulling a card from beneath the desk, the professor meticulously writes my name on it. I'll need your old one back now. As I hand over the professor telekinetically, I ask, Do you keep a box of cards under there every time the semester starts? All the time, actually, Professor Calby sighs, passing my old card over the new one. The new one briefly flashes. You wouldn't believe how many students come in here halfway or just before the end of the semester and need to get a new card. We had someone who had gone full three years without going to the library once. Shaking their head, the professor hands me the card back. They needed me, Leish, and an assistant librarian to have the proper authority to bypass the security measures. It's a linear system, you understand. You need to turn in the previous level card to receive the next one. It's not a problem if someone comes into the second or third semester without ever having a card. But after that, it can become, um, irritating. Makes sense, I agree. Thanks for the card. Professor Calby nods slightly already sliding the tomb back to the previous position. With my new card in telekinetic hand, I progressed through the first section of the library. I had spent long enough in here to know that every nook and cranny of its magically dustless shelves and tables, including the ever-enticing pair of doors that leads to the next section. I hold up the card with a faint feeling of trepidation, an irrational fear that for some reason it won't work. But it does and the doors swing open. I float through, filled with anticipation, at what vast troves of information lie within. As the second section of the library opens itself to my senses, I stop my forward progression abruptly. It is much larger than I had imagined. While the previous section had walls lined with bookshelves that were almost full, this room was not that large, just enough room for a few tables within it. This section is probably at least five times as long and as wide as the previous, and it has three levels. The shape of each floor is perfectly octagonal, with the staircase to the higher floor on the side, directly to each of the doors, and a staircase to the lower floor on the side to the left of the doors. There are also additional staircases up and down on the sides of the opposite side of the room, the staircases next to the doors. Another set of doors presumably to the next section of the library. It's situated on the side that runs perpendicular to the entry, on the right. 
The center of the octagon on each floor is occupied by a dozen tables, each able to seat four or perhaps six at a stretch. The rest of the floor space is dedicated to scores upon scores of bookshelves, with open paths left in between them so that people can easily navigate the floor. The sheer quantity of books makes me change my plans. Initially, I thought that I would be able to do what I had in the previous section, where I had read practically every book available. Clearly, that would be impossible. I don't think that I would have been able to finish all of these in a year, let alone in one term. And that's assuming I'm just reading through each book without pause. Ah, this is going to be awesome. Then again, maybe I shouldn't start today. If I go through and read all the titles, I'll be able to find what is easier later on when I need them. And I know what I won't be able to stop reading once I pick one of these up. I won't have the patience afterwards. All right, that's what I'll do. If I can calm down enough. I start slowly moving around the room, not touching any of the books, just reading the titles on the spines. I don't even understand the majority of them. What's eyes to the soul supposed to be about? But it doesn't matter. For now, I'm just taking a stock, so to speak. As I go, I notice another few things about the section. Unlike the first one, this section has a signage indication genres and subgenres. The genres seem to be by schools of magic, destruction, illusion, restoration, and so on, with the addition of general genre. Subgenres vary more, especially in the general section. There are elements, of course. Then there are also less basic ones, astral, blood, alchemy, nature, force, emotion, harmonic, sympathy, divination, and what seems to be like a thousand others. After going through all of them, I feel like I've had a much better grasp of everything is, even if I don't fully understand what they might contain. Doing all of this takes enough time that it's a bit after midnight by the time I finish. I head out of the library again, passing by the second set of gargoyles guarding the entrance to the second section of the library that I had barely even noticed earlier, through the first section and past the front desk, where Mr. Leish is now sitting instead of Professor Calby. Evening, I remark as I pass by, to which he nods shortly in response. Passing through practically deserted halls, I head out into the courtyard. Drea will likely be asleep. I won't be able to get through to the house, so I'll have to pass the time outside. Normally, this wouldn't be a problem as I just read through the night, but I'm afraid that I'd just get too into reading and not notice the time passing by. I could use one of the practice rooms for the duding grounds, but I honestly don't feel like going anything except reading right now. Aimlessly hovering around the courtyard, I look up into the sky. As always, I can see much more than a few of the brightest stars and distant blurs, the eyes of clairvoyance doesn't have a good vision as a normal human eye. I remember being able to see many more stars and much brighter ones, even when I needed glasses. Eventually, I decided to settle down on the table and meditate until morning comes. Once morning comes, I rouse myself and I head towards Drea's office, feeling much calmer than earlier. When I get there, I tap lightly at the door. To be honest, it's difficult for me to tap hard, considering how light I am. Drea opens the door and nods hello to me. The letter came through. You got all the classes you wanted. But if I can ask, why light magic? It doesn't seem like something that you'd be interested in. Call it an experiment, I said vaguely. 
I have something I want to test, and the most likely way to do it is through light magic. Shrugging, he moves back to his desk and throws one of the papers there towards me. Catching it with telekinesis, I take a look. It's basically just an official notice of which classes I have and when. Since I already memorized those details, I toss it into the waste bin in the corner. My first class is just a couple hours. It's earth magic. I don't know that I'll be too deep into learning earth magic, but my objective in doing it is more for a learning experience, getting the hang of casting magic and finding out some of the applications of the different elements. Light magic, I'm not sure if what I'm thinking will work, and I'm not sure that it won't work. Regardless, there's no harm in learning some light magic. At the very least, I could use it to blind people. Or just for, well, light. Most you should be starting your second term. Jolt, the teacher of basic earth magic states. Activating magic is much simpler than your teachers will have you implied. The academy does not want students experimenting with magic before they have learned the proper caution. Joel stares out of the class stonily, causing some of the students to shift in discomfort. There are many methods of activating magic. For the sake of being concise, I will limit my explanation to the three primary used methods. Freeform magic, something referred to as imagination magic. If you practice this, you might already have experience casting magic. Infuse your will into your manner and bring it out into the world, if necessary, so long as your image of magic as you wish you to create is strong enough and does not shift, your magic will cast successfully. Is there anyone willing to attempt this? A single, nervous boy tentatively stands up. Good. Come on out to the front. Gerald nods slightly. The boy glances down at his desk for a moment before stepping out from behind it and slowly walking in front of him. Draw out some mana above your palm, Gerald instructs. Without any difficulty, the boy quickly expels a ball of mana above his outstretched hand. It quickly, steady, and in uniform. Nice control. Seeing this, Joel begins to verbally guide the boy. Keep an image of a rock in your mind. Imagine your mana becoming hard and smooth, grey and heavy. Will it be so? Believe it. The boy stares at the manor in his hands, and for a few of his nervous bated breaths, nothing changes. After another few moments, though, the ball of manor slowly gains a very grey tinge, and swings slightly to a less spherical, multifaceted shape. It even begins to sink downwards from where it was floating just above his hand. Seeing the changes happening, the boy's eyes widened, and the ball of manor starts to lift again, quickly pouring into its original colour. His face falls. A good first attempt, Joel nods, although his face doesn't change expression in the slightest. The most important thing for magicians that practice preform magic is to keep the image constant. No matter what happens around them, go back and practice again at your desk, quietly. Vocal, infuse your manner into your voice and allow your manner to be guided into your voice in turn, Joel explains roughly. Does anyone speak Terran? Everyone glances around at each other, but nobody puts up their hand. Jarl's expression doesn't change, but he sounds vaguely disappointed as he says, Learn it. It has an excellent affinity for casting earth elemental magic. Vocal is a bit more complex to learn it first. For now, I will demonstrate. Jarl raises a chin slightly, and when he starts to speak again, he speaks in a gravelly word that I don't recognize, but can somehow understand. Stalagmite.
A small stone spire rises up from the surface of the desk in front of Jold, before shortly crumbling and dissipating into an ambient manner. Finally, formations. Jold takes a piece of chalk and draws a simple formation circle on the blackboard, the likes of which we'd drawn a hundred times practicing in the previous term. Simple formations are easy to activate, simple to infuse your mana into, into the formation. Placing a single thick forefinger on the formation, Joel does exactly what he said. Other than a brief glow of mana, nothing happens. This formation does not work. Why? He asks the class. Chalk is a bad carrying of mana. A girl a few seats over voices uncertainly. She looks rather familiar. In fact, wasn't she in my class last term? What was her name? Right. Joyce. Partially correct, drawled replies. Chalk is not an efficient conductor of mana. If mana seeps out and dissipates into the air, this means more mana is required to activate and sustain the spell. I could still be activated. It's because there is no diagram components of the shape of the spell, I ask. Correct, Jarl says unblinkingly. That is known as an empty formation. It does nothing. It merely is a template to be altered and built upon. Lifting the chalk, once again, Joel draws a simple symbol on the blackboard near the circle, and a second, more complex one next to it. Pointing at the simple one, Joel states, This is a common symbol for Earth. The other one is a Terran symbol for Earth. Copying the former into the circle, Joel states, I have now defined what the spell is made from, and it lacks a form or function. Jold adds a few words in common to the inner circle's circumference of the circle. Stone emerge in the form of a spike. Then he draws another circle, this time with the Terran symbol for Terran words, which, obviously, I can't read. Psychic translation doesn't translate written languages. Placing a forefinger in each of the formation, Jold refuses with both with mana, causing the stone spikes to emerge from the blackboard. The one emerging from the Terran formation is visibly thicker than the common formation. As seen by the difference in size of spikes, the Terran is superior to command in casting Earth elemental magic, Charles states. As another method of casting formation magic, you can form a formation itself without your mana. This is much more difficult to accomplish, but there is no need for external tools. Jold extends a hand in the same Terran formation, swiftly forms out of mana in front of it. Form a spike then crumbles into nothingness. For the rest of the lesson, we'll be practiced casting magic. Formation majors copy the one on the blackboard. Vocal majors the incantation you'll be. So, are you following me to all my classes now? I ask Joe as I head out of class. No, he shrugs. I'm not in the advanced mana control class. But you still know all my classes, I sigh. Of course. Did you expect any different, he asks with a hint of amusement. No, not really, I admit. So, earth, fire, and light. What other classes are you doing? Joe scratches his beard idly, keeping it simple for the first term, just doing the basic elements. I pause. The elements, as in all of them. Water, earth, fire, air, light, and darkness. Those are the ones, he nods. Huh. It's out of the ordinary, but then again, so is he. I still don't really know how he even enrolled. I suppose to get much harder, the older you get. You know, I'm kind of surprised that you don't already know magic. Oh, I do, he says, but I was originally self-taught, and it's been a long time since I've done any study or research on the topic. 
You coming here gave me an opportunity to update my knowledge and learn some of the newer techniques. So I thought, why not? Right, I replied dubiously. I never do know when he's joking or serious. Maybe he's always joking. Maybe he's always serious. The problem is everything I know about him is what he himself has told me. Who knows what's true? Almost immediately after basic earth magic, I had basic light magic class. As I move towards the class, I am surprised to see both Luia and Lamar heading in the same direction. Hey, it's Gerald, said Uya, exclaiming excitedly to Lamar as he spots me from down the corridor. Morning, I greet them as Uya runs up to me, Lamar trailing slightly behind him in the power walk. You're in a light magic class too? That's great, Oya grins. Are we in any of your other classes? I'm doing light water nature and advanced mana control, and Lamar is doing light wind water and advanced mana control. Just this and mana control, I'm afraid. I'm doing that light earth and fire, I explained. Ah, Oya groans before perking up again. Well, two out of four isn't bad. There were so many different classes to choose from that I'm kind of surprised that we got two and the same between all of us. And there's only going to be more next term, I agreed. Most of the classes here require you to have been done the other classes beforehand. So, once we've done these classes, all the classes required these ones will be open to us. Chances are that we might not even be sharing one class next term. We are frowned sadly, almost tearing up. Uh, don't remind me. I'll see you guys around, won't I? Of course, I reassure him, just as Lamar hugs the little guy. Look, how about next term, once all we have our timetables, we come together and figure out a time they all forever free so that we can still chat. I propose. Lamar nods in agreement and Oya wipes his eyes. That sounds good, he says, smiling, but not quite fully as before. The lesson taught by Mrs. Zeta was surprisingly pleasant and monetary and lady, the mostly identical to the previous class, with a spell being taught obviously being light elemental spell that just provides a soft source of light. Honestly, even something like this can be an effective weapon, just provide enough mana to the spell and you could probably blind someone quite easily. Not to mention the utility applications, just having a source of light that cannot be dust or accidentally cause a forest fire is quite useful. It appears that both Oya and Lamar are going to be vocal root of casting their magic, since I had already become somewhat familiar with casting via formations in the previous class. I take the opportunity to learn how to cast vocally as well. After all, there's no deficit in learning alternate methods of casting. In my first few tries, I was unsuccessful, then I started to wonder whether I could even cast magic this way. With my voice being generated through a magical tool, but with some careful assistance from Mrs. Zeta, I managed to figure it out. It's so bright! It's like a little fairy! Oya exclaims in awe. Almost instantly, a rather cross voice comes from the few desks over. I'm not little, and I'm tall for a fairy. We look over to see the fairy glaring at us with crossed arms. I'm sorry, Oya apologizes. I was just saying that the light magic is pretty. Are you saying that all fairies are pretty? I'm not pretty, I'm handsome. Witness my manliness. The fairy flexes his tiny limbs mightily. 
No, I didn't mean I meant, Hoya mutters, attempting to find a way to apologize. The fairy flies over, his own little ball of light bobbing along behind him, and slaps Hoya on the shoulder, laughing. Just kidding, you should have seen your face. It's pretty cool, huh? Hoya breathes a sigh of relief. Yeah, it's, uh... Just as he starts speaking, a ball of light in front of him flickers and vanishes. Oh, I'm out of mana. The Mars light spell flickers into nothing a few moments after, with spells all around the room similarly vanishing as the majority of the students run out of mana. Witness my awesome power! The fairy raises his hand dramatically, and after a few more seconds his light ball also flickers and dies. He drops his hands down and slouches exaggeratedly. Never mind. I surreptitiously end my spell. It's not like there is any particular deficits in standing out, but there aren't really any benefits either. Not that I actually weigh the pros and cons for the sordid thing. I just prefer not to stand out when I can help it. The tallest trees catch the most wind, as they say, and I'm perfectly happy in a few taller trees shelter me from the brunt of the gales. Well, that was fun. The fairy stretches in the air. The name's Spark. Yours? End of chapter. Chapter 38. Words of the Earth. First things first, I discard the thought of reading books about the elements that I'm ready to be learning. I could possibly get ahead of the content and I will learn in classes, or learn things outside the content, but then what would be the point of going to those classes? Better to learn something that I won't learn in the classes, but will supplement my understanding of magical skills. Plain magical theory? No doubt I'll be partially explained in classes, but furthering my understanding of magic itself could be beneficial. Still, to focus on just that, especially if I were to do the entire term, would get somewhat boring. There are a few books in this general section that could be interesting, studies on monsters, metals, herbs, the system itself, locations, worlds, and history. Some of them would even definitely be helpful to pursue, but much of it would only be useful once I leave the academy. I think that, for at least now, I should focus on the matters of magic. Jarl mentioned during class Terran, literally a language of Earth. If there's a Terran, let me see, yep. There's Aquan, Ignite, and Arius as well. Even Luxia and Tenbrio, all named in Latin, again, a language from Earth. It doesn't make sense, especially as I haven't heard mention of the Latin languages since I died. Wondering about it isn't going to find me any answers, though. Best I focused on the here and now, rather than pondering the worlds and their intricacies. It could be interesting to learn one of these languages, and it would increase the effect of my magic in that element. I suppose the question now is, which one? Water, wind, darkness are ruled out simply because they are learning them right now. So, earth, fire, light are my options. I suppose the best thing would be to have a look at each of them, and see which is the simplest to start with. So, I take out a book on each Terran, Ignite, and Luxia, lay them out on the table in front of me, and slowly start to read through each. As I flip the last page of Luxia shut, I frown internally. It doesn't look like learning language will be as simple as I'd thought. Even with perfect memory, memorizing the vocabulary is a large part, sure, and I could do that, but most importantly is the grammar and the sentence structure. 
Nothing can substitute that sort of thing but practice and analysis of examples. Because of that, I decide to start with Terran. Of the three, it's the most straightforward. Each word has one meaning, and as far as I can tell, each meaning has one word. It even feels, I don't know, clear-cut. Having decided that, I put all three books away and head back out to the library. I have a basic vocabulary, and there is plenty of simple sentences in there to learn from. Now, I need to practice writing the characters, pronouncing the words and attempting to formulate my own sentences. And for that, I need a more private environment that the library will provide. Laying in the grass in the midst of the endless forest on this world that I don't know the name of, I speak the words aloud repeatedly. The only actual vocal example of Terran that I have a single word that Jolt spoke in class. Apart from that word, all I have is the pronunciation spellings listed next to the respective words. As such, it's one of the most ambiguous aspects of the language for me. Gerald, is that you out there? A voice calls from inside the house. Yes, it's me, I call back. The door opens and Drea steps outside and takes a deep breath of the air, sighing happily. A bit of surprise to see you outside. I thought you'd be spending every waking moment in the library. I'm trying to learn Darren. You know, practicing the pronunciation and whatnot. Library wasn't the best place for that, I reply. He looks around. You don't have any reference materials, a Terran dictionary. Yes and no, I said. I read one in the library. I have perfect memory, so reading through something once is usually enough to memorize the contents. Wow, he nods his head appreciatively. That'll come in handy. It has its ups and downs, I say before admitting, but it is pretty useful. Anyway, I'm just having trouble with some of the pronunciations. I don't suppose you know Terran. I do, actually. What words are you having trouble with, he asks. Sorry, Gerald, but I'll have to recall it there for today. I've got some things to prepare for my next lesson, Dreyas says, stretching. No problem, I reply. Thanks for helping me for as long as you did. Don't worry about it, he waves a hand. But one last thing. I don't know if you've done much research into the different quirks and casting with different languages, but Terran and the other elemental languages are very specialized towards respective elements. Try to cast the other elements all from outside elemental magic, and it won't be very effective at all. If you're planning in the future to cast spells that use multiple different types of magic, you'll want to find a more generalized language. Common isn't too bad. It's not really good for casting any sort of magic but it isn't bad at any magic either. But you might want to look into some point. I will, thanks, I say appreciatively. Drea heads back inside through the portal. Meanwhile, I decide to keep practicing for a while longer. My next class isn't until Monday morning and the sun is only just setting. Wait, I'm on a different planet, so the orbits and therefore the day-night cycle should be different, right? I head through the portal and out into the courtyard. I was right. The sun is in a different position in the sky than it was in the other planet. That will be a problem. It's not as simple as the difference in time zones. In all likelihood, the two planets are orbiting different suns at different distances and different speeds, and rotating about their axis at different speeds. I don't have the time, knowledge, or the patience to calculate something like that. I need a clock. A plain and simple mechanical clock. Or a magical clock that doesn't rely on things like position of the sun, I suppose. Well, strictly speaking, I don't need a clock. 
I can just check through the portal every now and again, after all, but it would be nice. I suppose that's something I can think about for the future. For now, I just keep in mind that it is a time difference. Careful, careful, the teacher tuts. Plenty of people burn themselves at the first time casting fire magic. I can heal you without a problem, but needless to say that it'll burn will still be painful. Even before his words finish falling from his scaly lips, someone yelps as the fire that they create burns a bit too close to their fingers. The teacher takes long strides towards them and gently cups the hand in his. A pale flame flickers around the hand of the student, but instead of a cry of pain, they let out a sigh of relief. The teacher inspects the student's thin fingers, asking, Are you all right? Shaking their head, the student wipes a tear from the corner of their eyes surreptitiously. I can't do it. Of course you can, the teacher reassures them. Plenty of wizards burn their hands the first time of doing fire magic. It's nothing to be ashamed of. The student looks up at him tearily. Did you burn your hands? Well, I'm a draconian. Our hands don't really burn unless the fire is very, very hot, the teacher says, showing the student his scaled hands. Look, let's try it again, together. The teacher slowly coaxes the student through the process as I look on, a small tongue of flame drifting in front of me. Fire, source of life, harbinger of death, harsh, comforting, hypnotic, and my first spell with offensive applications in deadly combat. Simply turn up the heat, add some range capabilities, and it's deadly. Simple, yet effective. Well, as soon as I learn to do either of those two things. Plus, I need a better way of managing spells than keeping them constantly tethered to me with a channel of magic. The air is not efficient mana conduit, and nor is the consistent one. Fluctuations in conductivity can easily cause an inexperience and the undercompensate when they need more mana and overcompensate when they need less. Well, it's not really his problem as far as I can tell from larger spells, as the fluctuations in mana are relative to the existing mass of mana rather small and negligible. But with smaller and more precise spells, I can see it becoming a limiting factor. With something like a fire spell, overcompensating with the amount of mana you're infusing into the spell can literally meant a blowing up in your face. Well, that's probably an extreme example, but I think it could happen. After the class, I head outside to the courtyard, waiting there for Ouya and Lamar. With interesting addition of Spark, the fairy from yesterday's light magic class. All of us happened to have the afternoon off, so we had decided to make it one of the times that we would get together and chat. Hey guys, how's it going? I ask. Pretty good. How was your fire magic class? Can you cast fireballs now? Ouya asks in reply. Hi, shining. Not quite, I reply, intoning fire to create a small flame before snuffing it out. Just a basic bit of fire for now. Turns out it's quite dangerous learning fire magic, and the teacher spent a fair bit of time healing people and helping them safely cast. But thanks to that, no problems for you, right? Lamar asks. I mean, you're metal. You can't burn. Little fires probably can't hurt me, no, I agree, but if it's hot enough, I can melt, and even if not, heating and cooling metal can sometimes weaken it, so even I need to be careful around fire. Wait, 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 is the fork talking? Spark exclaims, zipping over to me and knocking into one of my tines. Why is no one else freaking out about this? That's Gerald, he's in our light magic class, remember? On the desk left of mine, Ouya reminds him. 
How was I supposed to know that it was a person? Spark throws her little hands up in exasperation. I just assumed that someone was having a lunch and they had left the behind. What in the world? I get that sometimes. Doesn't help that I don't talk much, I say with a little amusement. How do you talk? How do you fly? Heck, how do you see? Sparks rampant fire questions at me, eyes wide. I talk through this magic tool on me, I see through the other magic tool, and flying using telekinesis, I reply. Tell a what? Spark asks, looking at me blankly. Telekinesis, I reiterate, the ability to move things with my mind. Imagine it is an invisible hand raising me up into the air. So, it's magic, Spark asks, still staring blankly at me. No, it's a psychic ability, based on the... I notice his eyes entirely glaze over. Ah, uh, yeah, you can think of it like that, I suppose. So, what have you guys been doing today? Practicing with light magic, Ouya says excitedly, casting a ball of light before his mana runs out again and it fades away. It's just so cool, it's like a candle, but I don't have to worry about it burning the house down. And it's so bright, he exclaims. Uh, do you have experience with accidentally burning houses down? It's pretty cool, right? I agree. And uh, this is only the basic stuff. Imagine what we'll be able to do a year from now. I'll be able to cast illusion magic and make me look a large, muscular man, Spock says with great zeal. What? It'd be fun. As Oya and Spark discuss the great excitement with all the awesome spells that they might be able to cast a year from now. I can't help but notice Lamar isn't really paying attention and is looking off towards the east. What's up, Lamar? I ask. My dad's setting sail from the port sometime this afternoon. I thought I might be able to go see the ship from here, but the wall's too high, he replies a little sadly. The academy, of course, is surrounded by barriers, both magical and physical. It ensures the safety of privacy of everyone studying here but it does hamper the view from the lower floors somewhat. There are a few balconies up high, but they aren't accessible to the students. There are windows, I suppose. Most of them are small, though, and there are other tall buildings in the city that would block the view. Again, the window high enough to provide an unrestricted view is of limits to students. Heading through the city to the docks would be take quite a while, as well, not to mention I'm not exactly familiar with the laws practiced there, or what parts of the city would avoid. Not a problem if I were on my own, but if I'm with others, especially when they're young, I want to know a bit more about the area. All that really only leaves us with one acceptable option. There's a mountain a bit to the northwest of the academy that should have a good view of the port and the sea, I offer, but it would be a fair hike. I'm up for a climb if the others are, Lamar replies, looking a bit brighter at the idea. Sounds like fun, Oya says. I hadn't realized he'd been listening. On the other hand, Spark definitely hadn't. What now? He blurts out quizzically. What are we doing? Gerald says there's a mountain near here and that we can see the sea from it. Oya explains. All right then, let's go, Spark exclaims. Are you guys sure? I ask a bit concerned. It won't be an easy climb. Oya shrugs. I climb mountains sometimes. I'm fine. I grew up climbing rigging. Doesn't that count? Lamar asks. Uh, I can fly, Spark notes. If you're sure, I say. Do you have food and water? We have some food. 
Now let's go already, Ouya exclaims. All right, let's go then, I say, suddenly realizing that I sounded like someone's mum. Shutting my mouth, metaphorically speaking, I lead them to the north gate of the academy. Now that I think about it, this will be the first time I've actually left the academy since I enrolled. Not counting the brief times in the forest world, it'll be good to get out for once, I suppose. I lead them out into the open plain outside the academy. The city itself isn't far away, no more than a couple stone throws away. Close enough that I can see a part of it, but far enough that I can't see all of it. Now, Gerald, you might be thinking, what about monsters? Surely you aren't planning to lead a bunch of kids with little combat potential and less experience into a place filled with monsters. Of course not. You might remember that this academy is pretty much the center of all magical learning in the whole planet. Now there are plenty of people learning constructive things like healing, alchemy, or artificing, but there are also plenty of people learning magic for the sake of combat, similar to me. These people need practical experience with the magic and monsters are pretty much the best way of doing that. It's not uncommon that students will go out, alone or in classes, to hunt them. Not to mention that the city itself has a predictably powerful mage division, and there are frequent patrols to prevent unlawful activity and reduce monster numbers. With the two combined, there are rarely strong or numerous enough monsters to pose a threat. And if we somehow get terribly unlucky and a monster happens to come after us, despite me being able to see it from 1700 meters away and alter our route accordingly to avoid it, well, I'm more than capable of taking it out. Now, let's see. According to the map I looked over in the first section of the library, the mountain we're aiming for is a part of a range that runs pretty much parallel to the coast. With the academy and the city as its points of reference, I can estimate with a fair degree of accuracy that it's in this direction. Say, you were worried about us getting tired on the way out there. Spark remarks his wings fluttering as he weaves through the air. But how long can you fly for, Gerald? If I want to, the rest of my life, I reply simply. But can you fly fast? he asks, zipping about. Muttering under my breath, I say... Theoretically, given that I can experience no air resistance and likely survive the space, I can provide a constant, if small, force upon myself, and given no outside force interference, I can probably reach near light speed given enough time. A bit louder, I say. Yeah, pretty fast if I need to. Just make a bit more noise if I do. So you up for a race? Spark proposed gleefully. Not really, I replied blandly. His face falls a bit, but then he smokes craftily. Oh, you're saying that you don't think you can beat the speed of a mighty spark? I see, I see. I sigh. You can't bait me that easily, spark. I'm confused, Oya pipes up. What bait? We're not fishing. Spark is attempting to make me angry so that I'll challenge him to a race. I explain patiently. It isn't working. Ah, you're not fun, spark socks. Oya, you want to race me? Sure, comes the eager reply. The two go off at high speed. No fun, huh? I suppose not. Not for a little while now. I mean, it wasn't quite as intense as it sounds, but I did go to hell and back, literally, left behind my closest friend, along with everyone and everything I ever knew in that world. Interestingly, I think that probably had more impact on me than dying did. 
I've been trying to act like I usually do, but it's hard. What even is normal anymore? Magic and monsters, demons and undead, men and gods. It's madness. Everywhere I turn, there's something new to throw me off. First the system, then I'm a fork. Goblins, adventurers, magic, gigantic, nope, spiders, psychics, key, gods, fighting spirit, hell itself. Apparently, superpowers. Being made of air itself and walking, talking, bipedal animals. There's just so much that I can't even get a hold of what normal is in this world. Honestly speaking, after what I saw in hell, I'm paranoid. That is, more paranoid than before. Don't know if I'll be able to trust people anymore. I'm clinging on to every little piece of information about myself, not letting anybody know anything, lest they use it against me. Even though the rational part of me knows that I don't need to worry about it, I keep a constant eye on everything and everyone around me at all times, even the people that have been nothing but good to me. Socializing with these guys will probably be good for me, slowly lowering the barriers. After all, they're not going to turn on me. Probably. I guess we should catch up with them, I say. Lamar nods, picking up the pace as I accelerate to match his speed. We're halfway up the mountain and Spark is resting on Uya's shoulder, tired from flying such a distance. He's plucky, but he's also pretty small. What's one kilometer to us must be like ten to him. On the other hand, Oya and Lamar are doing quite admirably, still walking without pause in their step. Thankfully, this mountain has a path to the top. Otherwise, I think that I would have had a heart attack monitoring these guys rock climbing their way up. I don't know if I would be able to do anything to one of them fell. Telekinesis may be able to do something, but I don't know if I'd be able to handle such a weight, even for a moment. I suppose that means that I should add methods to saving people from falls in my magic learning to-do list. Hmm. At the peak, there's someone already there. A girl, probably not much older than the boys in our group. Looks like an elf and she's in the academy uniform. Hopefully, there won't be trouble. After some time, we make it to the top. Ouya is red-faced but energetic, and Lamar is sitting on a rock, trying to catch his breath as his eyes scan the coast. There, he says, pointing that ship as my dad's on. I can't see anything with either my methods of sight. The whole city is practically just a small blur in the distance. So, you said your dad was a ship wizard, right? What sort of things will he be doing? That does all sorts. The most important ones, though, are to provide a bit of wind if the ship gets becalmed and lessen the impact of storms on the ship, Lamar explains. He must be quite skilled if you can do that, I say impressed. Lamar nods, and with a hint of pride, he says, he is. A few moments of quiet passed, with just the sounds of the wind whistling around the peak. I don't think I've ever been up this high before, Spark says in wonder. It's like I can see the entire world. Ouya and Lamar's voice, their agreement. Another few moments of silence pass and the others just gaze over the sea. So, you don't mind if we shared the peak for a while, right? I asked, directing my voice to our left. We're planning to at least eat and sit here for a while before going back down. Might be a bit awkward if you hide behind the boulder the entire time. The elven girl behind the boulder in question freezes for a moment before gathering herself and coming out from behind it. Fine, just please leave soon. End of chapter. Chapter 39. The light unseen, the fork is keen. 
The others react to the elven girl's presence with surprise, but Lamar seems particularly shocked. He seems to take a half step back, almost instinctively, and when I turn myself to look at him, his dark face is paling considerably. When I turn back, I recall something I'd read in one of the books in the first section of the library and realize why. The elven girl's hair is blue, indicating that she is a high elf. Alvin royalty, as an elf, dyeing one's hair blue is equivalent to impersonating royalty, and in some cases could be punishable by death. So there's little to no possibility that it is the case here. Your Highness, Lamar stammers, if if it's us being displeases you, then 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 we can leave. She sighs and then speaks with somewhat resigned but formal tone. No, you may remain here until you wish to depart. Ah, thank you, your, your, your highness, Lamar replies, bowing. He then immediately drags the Uya and the spark along with him as far away from her on the mountain peak as he could manage, with the floating along behind him. Whoa, whoa, Uya exclaims. What's wrong? Why were we speaking all funny? She's royalty, Lamar replies, shock still evident on his face. You say the wrong thing around them and they can get you in a lot of trouble. Really? Why? Ouya asks. Lamar shrugs awkwardly. I don't really know. That's just what my dad told me. Yeah, being royalty means that she's related to the king or queen, I explain. Kings and queens are the rulers of the kingdoms, which means that they have vast amounts of military, economic, and political power. Their relatives often command some portion of that power as well, so angering one can literally ruin your life. Hey! Hey! Are we okay here, then? Spark asks agitatedly. Should be, I say, not completely sure. She said that we could stay, but it might be the best if we don't stay too long either way. Because of what had happened, it has thus turned into a rather tense situation rather than a relaxing outing. It isn't exactly like we're alone, either. The mountain is actually surrounded by a couple dozen people, both flying and on the ground. They had just all been so far apart that I hadn't realized that they might be related earlier. They're keeping a careful eye on us, and even at this distance, I don't doubt that they have a method to attack from where they are. Makes sense for a royalty to have an escort, I guess, but it doesn't exactly help me relax. She herself isn't paying much attention to us. Instead, she's just looking at the scenery and gazes at the clouds silently. The others eat quickly, and without much conversation, we head back to the academy. I had never thought that there might be a political figures at the academy, but now that I think about it, it makes sense. Wetham is apparently the one of the best, or possibly the best, of magic academy. It's probably a symbol of status for the nobles to have the kids accepted here. Suppose I'll have to watch out for that. Getting caught up in politics is the last thing that I want to happen. My last class is advanced matter control. Interestingly, Mr. Thurston is again teaching the class. It picks up pretty much where a previous class had left off, activating dummy magic formations to get used to the timing and control techniques needed to activate the magic. To be frank, it was pretty much the only part that I found useful last term. The movement and manipulation of mana I have done. Meditation? Too easy. Hopefully this term should be a bit better. Changing the brightness of your magic is a matter of how much mana you use. Quite simple. But if we add in just a little bit of extra to the formation, 
Mrs. Zeta writes another few words in the formation before infusing it with mana, producing a bluish light. We can change the color. Is it possible to have a single light spell that is a variable color, for instance, changing the light from blue to red without casting separate spells? I asked. Of course, Mrs. Zeta beams, plenty of illusionists use spells that have multiple colors that the caster can change at will. Interesting. Fire, as you can cast it normally, can be very dangerous, the draconian teacher explains, which is why temperature control is one of the first things I teach. The first thing that you have to understand is that magical fire isn't like normal fire. Normal fire, if it gets somehow gets cold, it'll go out, but magical fire will burn no matter where the temperature is. Your assignment for the week will be to create a spell that forms a rock in a specific shape, a cube with a square hole through the middle. If you have difficulty with this, there are relevant texts in the library. I float just above the ground in one of the training rooms in the junior arenas. These places were designed for students to test spells in, and so are quite sturdy and private. Once inside, you can push buttons which cause a stone to grow from the walls and close the entrance or open it again. There seems to be some sort of soundproofing too, so nothing in here gets outside or vice versa. They're generally quite full during the day, particularly as it starts to get towards the end of the term, but during the night there's usually some free spots. Not a great deal of students from nocturnal races after all. Scuffing out a word in the small cloth I brought with me, I replaced it with another using a small piece of chalk. Chalk is an abysmal manner conductor, but it works just fine for quick tests. Carefully, I guide my manner through the formation, moving the specific manner required by each part of the spell. I had done a similar process almost half a dozen times, each followed by minor edits to the formation as it didn't do quite what I needed. Hopefully, this time it'll work. A white light shines from the formation, a first good sign. At the very least, my last fix hasn't broken what was working before. I tweak the mana flow and the light turns the light blue. Very good. The drain on my mana isn't too significant, so I take it a bit slow. The light changes through the color spectrum, shifting gradually from blue to green to yellow, and then the vanishing in my vision entirely. I double-check everything, the mana flow is fine, the lines in the formation are solid and unbroken, and I can even see the mana radiating faintly above the formation. It is hard to tell for sure, especially when I have no equipment, but I think it worked. Well, that's open for some interesting possibilities, doesn't it? But that's for another day. Right now I simply have the means... Your grasp on Terran has improved substantially, Joel says nods ever so slightly. Good job. I think I see the barest hint of a smile on his face. Or maybe it's my imagination. You know, I always thought that it would be interesting to learn a second language, but I never really put any effort into learn one. I know a smattering of words and phrases from various languages from books and movies, but even I, for school, I was never particularly invested in language classes. Never expecting that the language I eventually ended up to learning would be the language of Earth itself. Not that I've mastered it, mind you. I'm still only a bit over midway through the advanced in its spoken skill, in written a bit further ahead, and I often fumble a word or a phrase every few sentences. 
think I'll aim to get the skills to expert before I stop actively learning Terran. Maybe pick another language to learn. It's maybe halfway through the term now, and there's one thing that I've realized. It's that four subjects is too little. I have plenty of time to do the work for all my classes, learn a language, read miscellaneous texts, and still have free time on the side. Next turn, I think I'll do six subjects instead. The most common method of using formulas more complex spells is with subformations. These would consist of extra formations that in most cases partially overlaps the primary formations, altering the effects of the spell or casting an entirely separate spell. The benefits of casting separate spells in this manner are that the order, timing, and the sometimes positioning of the subspells can be controlled with a much greater degree of accuracy than when cast separately. However, the likelihood of clashes and complications increasing exponentially with the quantity of component formations, along with the complexity of the casting of the spells. The highest number of formations in a single spell, including the primary formation on record, is 11, and even the master who formulated it had some difficulty casting it. There's always something interesting to learn about magic theory. My guess is that this will only really get a thing in the more advanced classes. It sounds difficult to put into practice. Alas, my reading must be cut short. There is a teacher coming through the library, and his intent is the most malicious, the worst nightmare of a library dwellers like myself. It is time for the Athletics Festival. Athletics carnivals are a pain in the tines, but you know what's more annoying than athletics festivals? An athletics carnival with compulsory attendance. You know what's even more annoying than that? An athletics carnival with a compulsory attendance and participation. Well, at least they don't make you participate in the events that you physically can't do. And you only have to do the one thing in any given category. So, I don't have to do many events. Not exactly like I can lift weights or throw things or run. I still have to do the flying race though. I wait in the line for my year group. They group us in years rather than terms for this. Bored out of my tiny metal brain, nothing to do, nothing to see, just slowly drifting forwards as the line progresses. Can't even review one of the books I've read and fear that I'll drift forward while I'm distracted and bump into the person in front of me. Pointy at first, not that I'm particularly pointy. Speaking of the person in front of me, he's an abnormally tall and lanky boy with a hair that almost looks golden. Oddly enough, his hair is sticking to his head with sweat, as if he's just finished running a marathon. After what feels like a small eternity, the person in front of me and at the front of the line, the teacher, marking us off from the records for activity, picks now, of all times, to try start a conversation. Hey, you're the kid of the speed demons, right? The teacher asks the person in front of me. That's right, the boy smiles. Name's Auden. I thought so. I don't see many people with your bald or that hair. The teacher nods. All right, I'll sign you up for all the races. The teacher's pencil. Wait, there are pencils here. I just assumed for some reason that there wouldn't be. I need to get one. I need to get ten. Pencils are the superior writing implement, no matter how much my teachers in primary school tried to convince me otherwise. Probably don't have erasers, which is a bit of a bummer, but bread works just fine, too. No, I'd really rather not participate in every single foot race event. Just put me down for a hundred meter. 
the lanky boy was saying. Well, if you're sure, the teacher says dubiously, marking down the selection, and finally, finally getting to me. One tedious conversation spent persuading the teacher that I'm incapable of doing the majority of activities later. I'm able to just get out onto the field. The whole thing is held in the open grasslands to east of the academy. There are a few pools here that weren't here yesterday. That's magic for you. Although the larger water-based events are hosted in the sea a bit further east. Sounds dangerous, but when you realize that half the participants are mostly some combination of sea-dwelling races and water wizards, it suddenly doesn't seem so bad. Magic is allowed in all events, of course. Be stupid if it wasn't. But only magic that affects yourself. Buffs, minor manipulations of surroundings, movement magic, the sort of thing. Even things like magic tools and potions can be used, so long as the student can prove that they are the one who created it. Already, having located Uya and Lamar and Spark when I was in line, I head towards them. I am fast for a ferry, Spark says with some agitation, but there's a harpy over our year. How do I race against a harpy? It's stupid. Think there's a cheetah beast woman in your year as well? Lamar scratches his head. They're fast too. They might have an advantage now, but in later years it'll become magical skill with determine who wins, I interject. Gerald! Oya exclaims. You're here! Yep, I'm here, I reply, drifting down the line on the grass. Not fond of this sort of event, but it'll be interesting to see what more senior students are capable of. Yeah, that'll be so cool, Oya says, eyes sparkling. I bet they can fall fly and go really, really fast. Maybe they can, I agree. They're all the usual events and then some weightlifting, archery, even then they had had frozen over ice-related events. Because of the size of our year, they have to break into multiple groups for some of the events. Others, such as flying or swimming, don't have as many participants, so the problem not there. I watch a few of my year's foot race events, and, as I guessed, very few people are capable of using magic to assist him in the run. There are a few races in particular I take note of, the one that the Elven Princess is in, for one, didn't do particularly well, but not too badly either. After she reaches the end, there is a bunch of guys and a few girls of a range of ages waiting to shower her with praise. She calmly and politely thanks them and makes some light conversation, but maybe because of my unique standpoint and perspective, I get the impression that she's, I don't know, distant, lonely, it feels like she's only making conversation because it's polite. That she doesn't actually enjoy their attention. Or heck, maybe it's just the royal training to allow her to appear impartial. What do I know? There's another race that has a guy that was in front of me in line, Auden, in it. A few teachers gather around seemingly expecting a spectacle. But when the signal sounds, instead of running, the guy starts walking down the track, instantly outstripped by every other person in the race. A few of the teachers sigh, walking away in disappointment. After his slow walk to the end of the track, he leaves the track with his head held high, despite the disappointed and scornful looks from the fellow students and teachers alike, wiping the sweat off his brow as he goes. I almost miss Joe's race, mainly because it's difficult for me to see him. He takes the race even less seriously than Auden, and nonchalantly strolls down the track at his own pace. In fact, 
Such a thing doesn't appear to be too uncommon. Another race has a person walking down the track, shielding his eyes from the sun and blinking furiously. Wait, that's Raymond. I'm amazed someone actually managed to pull him out of the library. Wait, isn't he one of the senior years? What's he doing in this race? Oh, he's not actually part of the race. He's just accidentally wandered onto the track, blinded by the sun. One of the teachers quickly dashes onto the track and guides him away from the race. Raymond genuinely looks to be in pain from the light, so I fly over. Hey Raymond, if it's too but bright, couldn't you just make a spell that reduces intensity of light coming towards your eyes? I assume he knows light magic. Now there's an idea, he replies in a conversational tone, belaying how his face is scrunched up. He closes his eyes completely for a few seconds, thinking, and a small formation on his hand shortly after, and a darkened rectangle forms in front of his face. There, now I just need to adjust it. The rectangle darkens until it's almost completely black. He sighs with relief. Much better. I think they need to turn the lights in the library up a bit. Going outside is almost blinding. The lights are pretty bright in most areas, I reply in concern. You should get out in the sun some more. Your eyesight seems to that could be deteriorating. Ah, there are spells for that. Waving it off, he asks. So, are you going to participate seriously? Is there a particular reason I should? I responded dubiously. Not really, just asking, Raymond shrugs. It's supposed to rile up the competitive spirit, or something like that. Doesn't matter to me, there's a special rewards if you've managed to beat the records, but some of them have stood for centuries or even longer. As if that's gonna happen. Yeah, sounds pretty pointless to me. Well, see you around, I say. See ya, he waves. I wobble at a little turbulence as if the avian flying people in my ear take to the skies. They beat their wings and straighten their bodies to eke out every last bit of speed possible. On the other hand, I, the odd forecart, slowly putter around my own little pace. I don't particularly care about what people might say. For all they know, this is my top speed. I've only really gone any faster than Frantidrea and Lamar, after all. Even then, that was far from my top speed. Heck, I don't even know what my top speed is. Regardless, I'll be happy to be back in normal school life once this is over. This is the race I've been waiting for. Past third year competing is optional. There aren't any students above the year in the first place, so they start to merge years together for the events. This one is years six and up mixed one kilometer race, meaning that participants can race via land, sea, air, or some combination of the three. It's held along the coastline on the beach. Despite how many years the race is open to, I hear that there are even few students that have been studying over the decade. There are only four competitors. A merman idly treading water, or is it flipping water? As it waits for the race to start, what looks like a mole beast woman squinting between her tiny eyes, and a pale elf hopping slightly from one foot to the other. The last contestant is, I think, a turtle or a tortoise beastkin. Beeskin are descendants of beastmen and the other races, and tend to have more human appearance while still retaining some of the animalistic features. For instance, this man has an unusually long neck, large eyes, and a thin shell, but mostly human stature, coloration, and even hair. 
He also appears to be wearing bulky rollerblades, rather weighty-looking backpack of some description, and holding what vaguely looks like a remote control with a few buttons on it. Before long, the race starts, and the competitors shoot off like speeding bullets. The merman and the mole woman dip underwater and underground, respectively, instantly shielding them from the sight from practically everyone but me. Of the two above ground, the elf instantly takes the lead, dashing forward in what would look like a normal sprint, if not for the speed of it. Despite his speed, or rather, because of it, something seems off to me. It takes me a moment to pick it. His footsteps aren't kicking up any sand, or even leaving a mark on them. The turtle beeskin, although left behind, gradually accelerates his wheels on his skates spin up, evidently powered by some form of magic or enchantment. They don't sink into the sand either, but they do leave behind paths of hardened ground, reinforcing the ground beneath him as he goes to improve the grip. Below the earth, the mole woman is digging speedily through the earth at a pace that, while fast, would not be enough to compare to the others, if not for the fact that the earth that she is digging through is moving around her, pushing and carrying her forward at a rate of knots. And you see, the merman is using a similar tactic, creating a fast water current that speeds his pace. He is just barely behind the elf, and at the moment it seems to mostly be between himself and the elf contending for first place, although the others aren't far behind. Back on land, the elf lifts his leg and steps down onto empty air, but instead of falling, he steps off of the air and again and again, until he's literally running up the air. A closer look reveals that there is actually some sort of platform that appears under his feet every time he steps, giving him something to push off of. In fact, these platforms aren't parallel to the ground, but they are a bit of an angle, allowing him to put more force into every step and increasing his speed as a result. Seeing this, the turtle beast can sighs and pushes one of the buttons on his remote. Immediately, a piece of metal snakes up to his neck and back of his skull and hatches onto the back of his backpack and skates. Despite there being little more indication than a slight blue glow of mana, the movement later, his speed increases prodigiously, even allowing to start catching up to the elf running above him. Is the race worth this much? I see him mutter to himself. Worth? Oh, of course. There's a bedding pool. Why wouldn't there be? The merman, apparently able to see the elf's actions from underwater, also reacts to the magically pass of the water in front of him, creating a void. With the water to both sides being held back, the only water able to fill the void is the water from his direction, which rushes in with greater speed, taking him with it. He does this repeatedly, looking vaguely uncomfortable as he does so. Even the mole beast woman appears to have realized that something is afoot because she reaches into a pocket with one hand and flings half a dozen small rocks into the ground around her, imbuing each with a fair amount of mana as she does so. The earth and rock around each stone gathers and forms into a rough approximations of humanoid figures. They turn to her almost in unison, then pocket of earth still carrying them all along. Make us faster, she instructs quickly. The rocky figures kneel and plant their arms into the earth. The ground around her increases to over double its former speed, faster than any of the others. However, she reacted too slow. By the time she is about to catch up, the race is already over. Jonathan wins 16.386 seconds. 
the turtle beast can win just by a fraction of a second. The speeding past the finish line, he pushes the button on his remote, and the boosters deactivate and retract into the housing. After pushing another button, the wheels out of his rollerblades stop receiving power and slowly roll to a stop. He lets out a heavy sigh, but out of the four of them it seems to be his use the least manner. Almost none at all. Must have been some type of mana storage that he used to power it all. Regardless, I'm pretty satisfied with what I saw today. Elemental manipulation, summoning some sort of creation magic, maybe barriers, and enchanted equipment. That's something I'll definitely be interested in learning all about. End of chapter. Chapter 40. It's time to duel some fools. A halfling, an alpha fairy, and a fork. We make for a strange bunch, to say the least. And none of us look physically imposing. I don't want to sound cynical, but it was only a matter of time before someone tried to pick on us. I wasn't expecting it to happen when it did, as we were walking down one of the hallways towards the library. But it wasn't too surprising. The hallway was empty, and they obviously thought that it was a perfect opportunity. The three of them, going in the opposite direction, deliberately barged into us while we were walking, immediately knocking Luya to the ground, light as he was. Immediately, the large boy leading the trio said menacingly, Get out of our way, pipsqueaks, or someone's gonna get hurt. In response, Lamar punches him straight in the face, breaking his nose. He looks ready to move on to the other one, so I hurriedly pull him with telekinesis. Lamar, stop, I exclaim. Injuring other students outside of tuning grounds is grounds for a fines or expulsion. Lamar pauses, and the guy he punched reels back, wiping blood from his nose. Like I care, idiot, nobody knows we're here. Trash, they're in our asses. He snarls, and his two friends raise their fists. Nobody except the teacher that will round the corner behind us in ten seconds, I reply. The three of them pause for a moment before one of the others says, You're lying. No way you could know that. Well, you'll only have to wait three more seconds to find out, I say. The utter certainty in my voice actually makes them stop for a few seconds and look at the hallway intersection, some twenty meters behind us. Oya takes the opportunity to get back up. A couple seconds later, a woman in a distinctive teacher's robe steps around the corner. Not lucky this time, Pipsqueak. The leading boy spits, turning around and starts walking back the other way. Next time, they won't be. Then how about we settle this in a duel? I call after him. They stop. A duel, the leader turns. You're on, fork boy. That was a good pun. But a sad thing is, I don't think he intended it to be what it was. Is there a problem here? A voice comes from behind us. Smark starts saying, Yeah, they... <laughs> of course, if the teacher found out about Lamar breaking the student's nose, whatever the situation, it wouldn't be ideal. So I force his mouth shut with telekinesis. No problem, miss, I say calmly. We've decided to settle our dispute in an official duel. Is this true? She asks, looking at the other group. Yes, miss, they says, without even a hint of aggression in his voice he held before. She narrows her eyes, looking between the two groups. If the reassures you, you could escort us to the duelling grounds, I propose. The teacher looks at her wristed watch like a magical tool. Wish I had one. Have a few minutes to spare, she nods, but quickly now. 
the teacher hastens us towards the duty grounds, and only leaves us when she's found the teacher overseeing jewels and brought us to them. Let me guess, a duel between the two of your groups, the teacher asks. Yeah, says the leader of the group. Actually, I was thinking more me versus their group, I reply. A barrage of rebuttals come from behind me. Wait, what? Ouya says, confused. Lamar furrows his brow. What are you doing, Gerald? Are you insane? Spark mutters. Insane? Not since I was about eight months old, I reply. Just trust me on this. Something's not right here. He's too confident, one of them whispers. It's one of the three now. What's more advantageous do you want? I say to them. How about I keep one arm tied behind my back? Oh, wait. I don't have any. All right. No more arguing. The teacher cuts in. Is the duel happening or not? Yeah, yeah, it's happening. If only to get a guy to shut up, the leader replies. We register our names and races, and because I'm such a nice guy, I pay the jewel fee, 50 row. I carry my card and my library most of the time, just in case. The fee covers the use of the dueling room, teacher supervision and heeding, if necessary. It also is a deterrent for people using the jewels to settle every single argument, and crowds of rooms are 24-7. As it is, there are several rooms available. We all get guided into one of them. A small one, since the first year students, we don't really need large amounts of space. We enter along with the dual referee, and take our position at the opposite ends of the room. On the surface, these rooms look exactly like the practice rooms, but functionally they are anything but. Do you want a dual to be in a private or open? The referee asks. Open, I answer. My friends outside will want to watch. The referee looks at the other group who collectively shrug. The referee pushes a button on the controller in his hands. There is no visible change, but I know that the walls are now like a one-way mirror. We can't see out, but they can see in and hear what's going on in here. Naturally, there's magic in place to block out light and sound beyond a certain intensity and volume. Activating dampener, the referee says, and I drop to the ground. Are you okay? he asks, concerned. Don't worry, I knew this would happen, I reassure him. My flight is based on the psychic ability. The room is also able to negate non-magical ability, key, psi, and so on. This is to ensure that the jewels are based purely on magical skill and power. Having read through the rule book long ago, I was aware of this. Knowledge is power. I know all about my opponents, students in the third term. They took identical classes to ensure they stayed together. They are magically gifted, but not academically so, and have had a difficulty in learning which led them to doing the same three classes in the current and previous term. They specialize in fire elemental destruction magic, and they also know the same earth magic. They're vocal casters, and as far as I can tell, they're at pretty low levels. I know practically everyone in the school, except for people who stay in cloaked areas most of the time like teachers, librarians, alchemists, artificers, and so on. On the other hand, they know absolutely nothing about me, besides the obvious. Very well, then, if both parties are ready, the referee prompts. The others nod, and I say, ready. The referee nods. Then let the duel begin in three, two, one, go. My opponents act as soon as they hear the word go, their lips moving to cast a spell. But I move quicker, beginning to act as the very moment he finishes enunciating the word go. 
The very first thing I do is form a magic circle in front of me using my mana, completing it almost instantly. A blinding light emanates from it, causing them to curse and cover their eyes. As the one closest to it, I naturally am the one who gets most of the light in my eye. But it does nothing because it causes me my eye to become blind for a few moments, when I still can see perfectly through my mana sight. I send out three balls of mana not dense enough to be visible to the normal sight. Towards the three of them, they aren't traveling particularly fast, so they manage to reach. The three of them have recovered and start casting, but the sound is a bit, they're casting fireballs. I can probably take them without making much damage, but it'd be stupid to risk it for no reason. Drawing out some more mana, I create another formation in front of myself, creating a small wall of earth that blocks the fireballs, since they have no actual mass or force, even something like this can stop them. Normally, even the excess heat from blocking this would have enough to burn, but I don't burn. Seeing my wall, two of them split off from the sides and attack from unblockable angles. Remembering that assignment I had from Earth Magic a while ago, I form another formation, creating walls around me. At this point, my mana has reached each of them, so I begin shaping them into formations beneath their very feet. Unbeknownst to them, I start this one from my left for no particular reason. The formation this time is a simple fire spell, but I turn up the heat. Almost immediately, the bottom of the robes catch a light, and the starts to scream in pain as his legs burn. I wince internally. Samuel eliminated, the referee calls out. Hearing that, I stop the spell, and is carried away by the referee, who extinguishes the fire with ease and starts to heal him. I start forming the second formation under the leader's feet, but abandon it in mere seconds as he casts some sort of fire to heat-resistant spell. Another weakness of vocal magic is that it can give your opponents an idea of what magic you're casting. I mean, assuming the opponent can see your formation, they can theoretically do the same thing, but it is much more difficult. Since the leader was a no-go, I instead opt for the third, who apparently isn't either able to cast the same spell or didn't realize that it's a good idea, and instead hurls another useless fireball at me. Soon after, he is eliminated as well. Only the leader remains, and fire magic isn't an option. My offensive options with earth are limited. Unlike fire, earth has a relatively large weight, so making a projectile is currently outside my realm of abilities. Light magic is delaying tactic at best, but does that mean that I'm out of offensive options? Not in the slightest. As he creates an earthen spike and starts to stride towards me with a smile that says that he's already won as if he could actually damage me with that. It is a re-emergence of an old skill seldom used in actual combat. Say hello, my old friend. Magic Missile. A dozen needles of mana form in the air above me. His eyes widen, and the mana is so condensed sufficiently to be visible to the human eye. I send them speeding towards him. With a cry of Earth Wall, he creates just that, obviously thinking that that would block them. He is gravely mistaken. While I may not be able to control dozens of needles individually, it's well within my abilities to have them split into the other side around the wall and back at him. I should also mention that the manor that was originally going into the formation beneath there was now starting to just disappear. I wasn't going to waste manor like that. 
I held it in a cloud-like shape until now, when I formed it into another half-dozen needles coming from, from the other side. He was not wearing armor. His clothing isn't even that thick. None of the needles are particularly powerful, but each of them is enough to penetrate the centimeter deep. Nothing life-threatening, particularly as I avoided all of his internal organs and arteries, but more than enough to stop him from continuing the fight. With every limb of his torso peppered with puncture wounds, he has to have a fight spirit and able to put up a fight now, and he really isn't the type to have fighting spirit. Not to mention, he's out of manner. Maurice eliminated Gerald wins, the referee announces, quickly pressing the button on the controller. I feel restrictions on my side lifting, and I lift myself back into the air, letting all of my spells and magic missiles dissipate. I hadn't moved from my starting position. I still have over half my mana. I doubt they'll bother us again. The door opens back up and I head out. The others are just outside, of course, and they stare at me, snack-jawed. So, um, we were heading for the library, I say. It's almost the end of the term, and similarly, they're nearly the end of the year. I'm in Dryer's house of the other world, practicing a bit of Terran. I probably won't practice it much more. I think I've got pretty much down for the most part. Maybe I'll start learning Ignatia. Gerald, Dreyer says, coming through the portal. Are you busy? Not really. What's up? I reply. Well, I've been back at the academy for nearly half a year now, Dreyer starts, sitting down at the table, and I've been thinking that it's about time that I'm off again. As in, you're going world jumping, I ask, to, just to confirm. Yeah, I wanted to give you some totus in advance, since you pretty much live here, Dre replies. I'm planning to go after this term ends. I guess I'll need to pay for a bunk in the dorm, I muse. Shouldn't be a problem. Out of curiosity, is there a particular reason you travel to different worlds? Dreyer nods. Almost every world I go to has a particular focus, a particular ability or skill, or idea that the whole world focuses on. The elemental worlds are the most obvious examples, so obvious that they're outside of the norm. But even in Arbidak, magic. Here, yeah, it's all forest, not that I've explored much, and I've seen worlds where almost every other warrior uses the same weapon. Societies where seamstresses are considered nobles. I want to find out why that is. That is odd, I reply. Something like that can't be a natural occurrence. Not if it's almost every world and with a varied focuses. Something or someone would have caused it. That's what I thought, Greya agrees. But the best guess is so far as that it's the gods. But anything related to the gods is difficult to dig into. I can't imagine, I reply. So when do you think you'll be back? Greya shrugs. Hard to say whenever I feel it's time. Probably every year. I suppose I won't see you for a while then, I say. Well, thank you for bringing me here, and best of luck in your journeys. And to you, in your studies, he replies. The dorm isn't expensive, but it is one more expense than I had before, and then slowly padding up. Not a problem right now, but at some point I'll have to find a source of income. At the same time as organizing that, I update my information with the academy to include my new residence. I don't have many possessions, so it doesn't take long to move them into the house to the dorm. I just have some ink, paper, and a few pencils in my cards. The room houses six people, with each having a bed, a desk, a chair, and a couple of drawers underneath the bed. 
The bed itself won't be using, obviously, and the chair I don't have a need for either. Just the desk itself and the drawers for storage. The end of the term rolls around again. I pass, of course. The basic classes are easy enough, so long as you put some effort in. Shortly after the time comes for Dre to leave. He's the only person I know who knows about space magic, so before he goes, I ask what kind of magic I would have to learn before learning space magic. I didn't expect it to be easy, but the list he gives me is quite extensive. The six elemental magics and the languages at a minimum of advanced level. Basic sympathetic magic, some type of summoning magic as a basic level. Scrying or divination magic. Expert formation development. Basic alchemy and chemical magic. Basic artificing, the arcane language, and finally spacious language. Excluding classes for languages, as I would rather self-teach those, that makes at least 17 classes. Pretty much three terms if I do six a term. And some of those don't sound simple in and of themselves. Not to mention, there are other classes that I want to do. I want to learn at least two types of barrier magic, some basic restoration magic and a good illusion magic. Part of why I'm learning light magic actually. At least, advanced artificing, false magic and expert mana control. The list grows, making for around 25 classes, over a full year of classes even in ideal conditions. It seems that I won't be returning to Oduya for a while yet. At the library I try and figure out what to do with my break. I have seven languages to learn, so that's certainly going to be a part of it. Ignatia first, probably. Fact of the matter is that I don't want to learn languages in a class. They would go too slow. I also don't want to learn them from a tutor. I'm not really comfortable meeting with people one-on-one, especially people I don't know. But to be perfectly honest, I don't need to learn how to speak the languages. I'm not a vocal caster. And who in the world would use magical languages to converse? Heck, probably some people. But I have translation skills for that. I know for a fact that Drea doesn't use vocal magic either. So I probably only need to learn the written languages. And that I can do on my own. It's how I learned most of the Terran language. It was now that I learned most of the English language for that matter. The school system doesn't really account for kids who like to read in their free time. So I ended up learning most words from context while reading every work of fiction that I could get my little hands on. Perhaps I could also read some more general, but still educational books. How about this one, Materials and You, on various metals and materials involved in magic. Liquid conductors of mana, common ink, not very conductive, but easy to get, boring. I'm paraphrasing this, obviously. Water, similarly bad, apparently. Magic water, here we go. General name for fluid mixed with water and powdered mana crystals. Conductivity depends on greater crystals crushed. Can be quite good as also quite expensive. Monster blood depends on how magical the monster was and a number of other factors. Can be difficult to obtain. But when obtained, can often obtained in bulk. There are various specific fluids that are good with specific types of magic. Water from a stream, a swamp or floating islands. Wait, seriously? Cool. Ancient battlefields and so forth. Dragon's blood. Forking dragon's blood. Extremely mana-conductive, but obviously near impossible to obtain. Solid conductor of mana, dirt, chalk, stone, and all that's pretty bad. Iron and most other metals are barely any better. 
Electrum, natural alloy of gold and silver, not bad. Mana crystals can give you good conductivity depending on the grade, but their shape is very different to change. Very good mana storage, mithril, fairly rare and expensive. Hardness improves according to the held mana. And has quite a good mana capacity and conductivity. Adamantium, very rare and expensive. Extremely tough, but worse conductor than even dirt. Adamantium naturally rejects mana and is often used to create magic-resistant items. Oricalcum, extremely rare, extremely tough, amongst the best-known materials in terms of mana capacity and conductivity. Whoa! Catch this! Indestructite, literally indestructible. Only a few small samples have ever been found or heard of. Every attempt to damage or alter the form of sample has failed, even with the method known as spatial severance, courtesy of the esteemed Theodore Glimfiel. Every attempt to conduct mana through indestructite has failed. Now that is something I want to absorb. There isn't a section on glasses, but it does note that mana can't move through a vacuum. Important to note. Well, that's half an hour gone. What now? The thing is, there are so many different things that I can be done with magic, and so many different things to learn, that after the basic class, which is practically an introduction to magic, the more advanced classes are more specialized. So, you don't just have advanced fire magic, you have advanced illusion magic, advanced fire destruction magic, and so on. Now, there's the problem. Sometimes it's not easy to classify magic. For example, the magic I used a while ago to create earthen walls. Most people would say that it's creation magic. But what if I created that mid-air and dropped it on someone's head? Destruction magic? If that doesn't convince you, consider the classic stone spike that you chuck at your enemy. Only difference would be between the wall as the shape, and the fundamental components of the formation are identical. It's not just creation and destruction that have overlap either. What would you say if I said that the academy has healers that specialize in destruction magic? It's true. Most healing is alteration magic, actually, increasing the body's ability to heal itself or resistance to disease. True restoration healing is very difficult and very powerful, I hear. It is the only type of magic that can heal missing limbs and the like. My point here is that anything you learn in any field has a possible applications outside of the normal context. I suppose I should clarify the formal definitions of the different schools, albeit concisely. Creation, magic that creates something purely from magic. Even things like fireballs technically fall under this. Alteration, a magic that changes the properties of something that already exists. That could be shape, hardness, or any number of other things. Amongst the other things, elemental manipulation, like the sort of mole Beastwoman did at the Athletics Carnival, falls under this. Restoration, magic that returns something to a former state. Some healing magic and other more peculiar magic, like divining and past fall into this category. Destruction, magic that harms and damages something. You get the picture. Summoning, magic that calls something, often someone, to your location usually through a medium or a catalyst. What the mole beastwoman did with those earthen elementals was summoning magic, and so is what Drea did to me, although his method is more of an outlier than the norm. Illusion magic is the effect of the senses or perception. A good example of this one would be my eye magic tool. It seems a bit easier learning Ignatia than it was learning Terran. 
Maybe it is because I am not bothering with speaking the language. Or maybe it is because I now have some experience learning a language. I've been reading a lot of miscellaneous books, books on monsters, on key, on sci, on the system, and so on. So much interesting information. Apparently, as you level up, the system allows you more access to commands, which is probably why it took me so long to find the games. I didn't have access. There's also the title that you can get 50 skills that allows you to rearrange your skills. I'm quite looking forward to that. I'm only 8 skills out from it, and my status is already quite messy. There are also quite some skills and titles relating to the party system. Ones that do things like increasing the party limit to allow the leader to see the stats like health and mana, and some other useful things. I uh, really don't see myself ever getting those or using those sorts of skills. A new year comes around and with it a new term. I pick out my new classes. Unfortunately, due to some timetable clashes, I'm not able to do all the classes I was planning on doing. But that's alright. The order isn't critical. Not right now. What I end up with is advanced fire destruction magic, advanced earthen summoning magic, advanced light creation magic, basic darkness magic, basic water magic, and advanced formation development. I have a lot of things I want to learn, and the problem is that I don't know exactly how to learn them. What I want to do with light magic, I'm not sure whether it would be categorized under creation or illusion magic. I think creation is more likely, so that's what I picked. But if it ends up being illusion magic, I'm just going to look through the library and teach myself what I need. My hope for the earth summoning magic is to get a helper that can do the heavy lifting for me. Right now, my single greatest weakness is... Well, I'm physically weak. Since my body can't actually get stronger, and I don't know how to make telekinesis that much stronger, this seems like the simplest way. My magic, uh... It's a pretty obvious why I'm doing that one. And remember, that instead of the usual assignment halfway through the term, we'll be having an outing to exterminate monsters as a more practical test of your progress. The teachers on my fire magic class says, finishing up the lesson. Must be nice learning so everything so easily, Joyce mutters from the desk next to me as she packs up her things. I never really paid much attention to her. Doesn't matter to me if she has a bone to pick with me so long she doesn't throw it. Must be nice, sleeping, I remark as I leave. End of chapter And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.